Oh, Jesus, I forgot. And then start YouTube and make sure you make me host. this i forgot that's what she said that's what she said you're talking about the chinese the chinese leader she that's what she said right that's what she said yeah that's what i meant that's what i meant yeah you think they say that in beijing that's what she said i doubt it just make me host Dan, slow down. I'm feeling this is happening too fast. This is happening way too fast for me, Dan. You got to slow down. Not ready. Your shoes so you have them. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Not ready yet. Hi. Show hasn't started yet. And I'm frozen. Mother of right out of the fucking gate. Can you believe it? Here, I'm going to make you host, and there's something wrong. Can you fucking believe it? All right, I will... Uh, You'll be right back. We'll be right back. You hold down the fort. Jesus. Okay. Fuck me. So go up to Nantucket, find the man who can suck it. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. All right. Are we rolling? You're back, but you're muted. Of course I am. There you go. Yeah, it's time for a... uh, Do I make you the host? What do I do here? Um... We haven't started yet. No, we haven't started yet. So I, do I reclaim the host or do I keep you the host? Uh, you just, if I'm still the host, just, you're good. I'll make you a co-host. Oh, you are co-host. So yeah, yeah there you're we good. go. Okay. Right out of the gate. This is the way it's going to be. Right I emailed you a half hour ago saying to reboot your computer. I rebooted it. I rebooted it. Oh, no it. shit. I should throw it out the window is what I should do. <laughs> That's I, a different kind of boot. Yeah. Let me know if I freeze. Show hasn't started yet. Okay. I'm still unfrozen. This is two days in a row, right? Yeah, you look great. All right. All right. Show hasn't started yet. I'm angry. I don't want to be angry. Hi. Welcome to the mop-up. The show has started now. <sighs> so frustrating. Welcome to the mop-up for September 12th, 2022. I'm David Feldman, barely coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 73 degrees and partly cloudy. The S&P closed today up more than 1%. I'm going to start giving... Uh, stock results. 
just keep track of how the plutocrats are doing. They won today. They're up 1%. Office hours every Friday night starting at 8 p.m. Please join me. Go to my website for the link. And please, while you're over at my website, sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday, and it also contains a link to office hours. It wraps up the week and gives you a preview of what's ahead before you see it or read it in the news. If you do subscribe to my newsletter, you will notice that uh, stuff that I write about ends up in the mainstream media two weeks later. Why is that? Because there's no filtration process. We don't go through editors or publishers or advertisers. We read it. We ask about it. We talk about it and we publish it. We have the smartest minds on this show. We just do. So subscribe to my newsletter and subscribe to this podcast wherever podcasts are found. If you're just joining us, we're following the latest report on Queen Elizabeth leading cops on a high-speed chase through the hills and dales of Scotland. The Queen was reportedly getting ready to lie in state inside St. Giles Cathedral today in the heart of Edinburgh, Scotland. But during a procession going from Holyrood, her official residence, over to the church, suddenly a voice echoed from her coffin shouting, faster, Doty, faster. The hearse then peeled out and left thousands of mourners in a cloud of royal dust. The queen, as you can see right now, is speeding down Scotland's 405 with Los Angeles police officers in hot pursuit. She is reportedly holding a gun to her head and apologizing to O.J. Simpson's children. We don't know what this is about, but we will follow this high-speed chase going on in Scotland as the Queen appears to be escaping her own funeral. Well, good news coming out of Ukraine this weekend as Russia officials in Moscow now admit that they have lost all of the Kharkiv region in the south, which had been, up until this week, been under Russian control. With the war in Ukraine now entering its 200th day, Ukraine today said it retook 20 Ukrainian towns in less than one day. 200 square miles of Kherson, the southern region of Ukraine, have also been reclaimed. Meanwhile, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, municipal deputies from 18 councils have all signed a petition demanding that Russian President Vladimir Putin resign immediately. Kharkiv is Ukraine's second largest city and was hit by missiles on Sunday, knocking out electricity and water supply. Ukraine said the missile attacks were in retribution for the massive losses suffered by Russia over the past week. Bridget A. Brink is the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. She said of the attacks, quote, Russia's apparent response to Ukraine liberating cities and villages in the east sending missiles to attempt to destroy critical civilian infrastructure. She said it's a show of force where Russia apparently has no more force. That's how the Americans are spinning it. That's what we're being told. We're told that this is one of the greatest ground victories since World War II. We'll see if it's true. Personally, I hope it is. I would have preferred Peace talks. I would have preferred if Joe Biden stopped the invasion before it happened. 
we have six million refugees, tens of thousands of dead Russian soldiers and Ukrainians. So if this means the end of the war, that's good news. Uh, as for the attack, the Russian missile attack on Kharkiv, the mayor of Kharkiv, Ihor Terikov, said, quote, this is a vile and cynical revenge of the Russian aggressor for the successes of our army at the front, in particular in the Kharkiv region. With Russian soldiers attempting to hold on to the Kherson region in the south, where Russia has set up its own government and currency, reports say they have now all but abandoned fighting in the northeast. Some military analysts are saying Ukraine tricked Putin by pretending to prepare for a massive assault on taking back the southern region, but instead surprised Putin by focusing more of its firepower towards the east, catching Russians by surprise. Meanwhile, The Intercept is reporting that Ukraine is on track to become the largest beneficiary of American military assistance in the 21st century. Alice Speary, writing in The Intercept, says the flurry of announcements coming from the Biden administration makes it difficult to keep track of just how much America has given to Ukraine. Sperry writes that so far this year, American military aid might be as much as $14 billion. This is more than what America provides in foreign assistance each year to all other countries combined, including last year's budget for the fighting in Afghanistan. Over at The Intercept, Sperry goes on to write, quote, because the assistance is drawn from a variety of sources and because it's not always easy to distinguish between aid that's been authorized, pledged, or delivered, some analysts estimate the true figure of the U.S. commitment to Ukraine is much higher than $14 billion, up to $40 billion, she says, may have been delivered in security assistance, which comes out to $110 million a day during the past year. Well, last week we talked about the murder of Las Vegas's legendary investigative reporter Jeff German, who was stabbed outside his home. Police have now arrested Clark County Public Administrator Robert Tellis and charged him with the killing. Police say German, writing in the Las Vegas Journal Review earlier this year, uncovered a pattern of abuse inside the government office run by the accused. German's reporting also uncovered the accused's inappropriate relationship with a female colleague. Vegas police say they found DNA at the murder scene leaking the stabbing to Robert Tellis. The Guardian reports that the killing of journalists here in America is a rarity. Since 1992, nine journalists have been killed. Five of those nine were killed after a Maryland shooting back in 2018, when a man walked into the newsroom of the Capitol Gazette and began firing. Similar to the stabbing last week in Vegas, this man, too, had reportedly been upset with the newspaper's coverage of a story about his 
pleading guilty to a misdemeanor charge of harassing a woman. In Indiana, the United Auto Workers say they have reached a tentative agreement with the world's largest manufacturer of powertrains, powertrains used primarily by Chrysler, Dodge, and Jeep. 1,200 workers at the Stellantis, Indiana factory went on strike Saturday, demanding safer working conditions after the United Auto Workers accused the company, which is a joint venture between Chrysler and Peugeot, of refusing to replace aging air conditioning and heating systems. Earlier this year, owners of the Stellantis Indiana factory announced a $2.5 billion deal with Samsung to build batteries for electric cars. This is a deal that would employ an additional 1,400 workers. Also in India, it is Indiana, I'm sorry, also in Indiana, it is now next to impossible to get an abortion. On Thursday, abortion clinics this week, on Thursday, abortion clinics throughout Indiana will be shuttered as the state's new abortion ban goes into effect. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe in June, leaving abortion up to the individual states, Indiana's legislature became the first state to outlaw abortion, except in the case of rape and incest, within the first 10 weeks of the pregnancy. In early August, the Republican governor signed this new law, which shut down every abortion clinic in the state, only allowing abortions to be performed by hospitals after the pregnant woman has consulted with state government sanctioned lawyers and an ethicist to determine whether or not the abortion is legal. That's how it's working now in Indiana. The only abortions are that are allowed are pregnancies due to rape and incest, and it's the first 10 weeks, and before the abortion can be performed inside a hospital, not an abortion clinic, it is necessary for the mother to consult with government lawyers and state-sanctioned ethicists to determine whether or not this abortion is legal. According to the Associated Press, there were 8,414 abortions last year in Indiana. All of those abortions, except for 133, were performed inside abortion clinics, which will now, as of Thursday, be shut down. Planned Parenthood currently has four clinics in the state of Indiana, and while they will no longer be able to perform abortions as of this Thursday, Planned Parenthood will continue to provide family planning advice as well as screen for and treat cancer and sexually transmitted diseases. For women with limited health insurance or none whatsoever, Planned Parenthood provides affordable services that are often free. The First Amendment forbids the government, the United States government, from restricting our speech. And it also, through the Establishment Clause, forbids an official state religion. That's the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. The Establishment Clause 
has spawned recently a series of religious freedom lawsuits filed by militant Christian extremists who insist the United States government is violating their First Amendment rights by forcing them to bake a cake for a same-sex couple at their wedding, or if these devout evangelical Christians own a company, forcing them to provide health insurance that covers abortion and or contraception for their employees violates their religious freedom. Hobby Lobby is a privately held corporation, and after the passage of Obamacare, Hobby Lobby went to the Supreme Court saying Obamacare's mandate that they pay for the abortions and contraceptions of their employees violates Hobby Lobby's religious liberties. In Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, the Supreme Court ruled that a privately held corporation like Hobby Lobby, that's not publicly traded on the stock market, a, a privately held corporation like Hobby Lobby is entitled to its own beliefs and therefore is protected under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 was introduced by Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer and signed into law by Democratic President Bill Clinton. So according to the Hobby Lobby ruling, any company not publicly traded like Hobby Lobby or a privately owned baker can treat its employees and or customers based solely on its own religious beliefs. If you're a same-sex couple, no cake for you. If you work for me, no contraception or abortions for you. Last Wednesday, a federal judge in Texas, of course, ruled that Obamacare also violates the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 when it mandated that employers provide employees health insurance that includes HIV prevention pills. I'm not making that up. Braidwood Management has 70 employees. They are headquartered in, you guessed it, Texas. And they are a devout Christian corporation. And they said the government forcing them to provide HIV management pills to their employees violates their deeply held Christian beliefs. Those deeply held Christian beliefs that find homosexuality an abomination. An even bigger abomination, apparently, than homosexuals dying from AIDS. In other words, if you work for Braidwood Management and you have AIDS, no cure for you. It's almost as if Jesus filed the lawsuit on behalf of Braidwood Management himself, because what could be more Christian than hating the sin, but also loving the disease that comes with the sin, AIDS? Braidwood went to a federal judge in Texas and said, by providing HIV medication to our employees suffering from AIDS, it would serve as a 
a tacit approval of promiscuity and homosexual sex. It violates their religious freedom, forcing them to provide HIV medication, which begs the question, how much gay sex is going on at Braidwood Management that they have to go to a federal judge to stop it? I don't even know what Braidwood Management does down in Texas. And with all those Braidwood tops and bottoms feverishly pounding each other into clay colored lather, a clay colored lather of convulsive dissipation, I doubt the workers have any clue either. I think they're just too busy having gay sex to do any work. This doesn't sound, Braidwood Management doesn't sound like a corporation. It sounds like an orgiastic ventricular fibrillation of prolapsian delight. Seriously, how much gay sex is going on at Braidwood Management that they have to go to a federal court to stop it? Hey, Braidwood Management, have you tried turning the lights on at the office instead? That might stop all the gay sex going on at Braidwood Management. Try turning on the lights. No, but instead they went to a federal court and a judge in Texas last week ruled Braidwood Management no longer has to pay for its employees' aid pill, AIDS pills. Well, unlike Lindsey Graham, religious freedom goes both ways. It's a two-way street. And that's why in Indiana, the ACLU has filed a lawsuit. They filed it on October 31st in Monroe County, Indiana, insisting that Indiana's new abortion ban that goes into effect this week violates that state's constitutional guarantee of freedom of religion. And a new lawsuit filed last Thursday in Indiana by Hoosier Jews for Choice claims Indiana's abortion ban violates that state's seven-year-old Religious Freedom Act signed into law by then-Governor Mike Pence. Like Mike Pence, religious freedom goes both ways. Uh, Hoosier Jews, Hoosier is a nickname for uh, the people from Indiana, uh, Hoosiers. Uh, Hoosier Jews for Choice maintains abortion. They're filing a lawsuit. Hoosier Jews for Choice maintains abortion is acceptable according to Jewish teachings. Therefore, outlawing abortion violates their religious freedoms. You have your religious freedom. I have my religious freedom. The head of Indiana's ACLU, Ken Falk, told reporters last week that Mike Pence's religious freedom law protects everyone who lives in Indiana, not just Christians opposed to abortion. Fox said, quote, the ban on abortion will substantially burden the exercise of religion by many Hoosiers. Those would be people from Indiana, Hoosiers. Uh, the ban on abortion will substantially burden the exercise of religion by many Hoosiers who, under the new law, would be prevented from obtaining abortions in conflict with their sincere religious belief. This, this is precisely why our founding fathers wanted religion out of the public square. This country 
America is a product of the Enlightenment, not the Middle Ages, no matter how much Mike Pence and Governor Greg Abbott want to take us back there. In America, we make our decisions based on reason and science, not on hateful uh, readings of the holy books to justify slavery, homophobia, and of course, misogyny, which is what abortion bans are all about. Abortion bans are misogyny, hatred for women. People who want to control women hate women. Now, whether you like it or not, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, and atheists, and anyone who isn't a Christian in America, all those groups have all been made at times to feel unwelcome here in the United States. So what what we have are a lot of Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, atheists, other religions, uh, for too long because they want to fit in, uh, they, they don't say anything. They want to fit in. They feel like outsiders. And so they, for too long, have allowed the idea of, quote unquote, religious freedom to be perverted by power-grabbing lunatics on the far right who claim they're Christian followers of the Constitution, but are neither. See, the problem is religious freedom sounds nice, but it's not. Religious freedom is a blueprint for persecution. The people who push religious freedom in America only want the freedom to shove their religious beliefs on to us. It's all under the guise of tolerance. Won't you be tolerant of my intolerance? Why won't you let me make you feel bad about the way you were born? Why don't you respect my deeply held religious beliefs that will make you or your child commit suicide? That's what religious freedom is all about. Forcing your kid to have no choice but to commit suicide. That's what religious freedom means. In America, our Constitution says, keep your religion to yourself. And that means don't discuss it. Your religious beliefs are dangerous because by their very nature, they're irrational. Religion can never be the basic building blocks of laws because religion divides us. It controls us. It celebrates faith over reason and enforces blind obedience. That's not how a people self-govern. It's how you govern the masses through religious tolerance, religious freedom. Take your religious beliefs and shove them up your ass. That's what our founding fathers said. They said, take your religious beliefs and shove them up your ass, including my religious beliefs. Your religious beliefs, my religious beliefs, shove them up your ass because that's where they belong, because I don't want to see them, hear them, or smell them. Like taking a dump, your religious beliefs are personal. 
It's why houses of worship, every single one, are toilets. And that's why they keep lighting candles inside all those houses of worship to kill the stench. So keep the door closed when you're praying. Turn on the ceiling fan and flush. That's what our founding fathers wanted. Alexander Hamilton, one of the authors of both the Constitution and the Federalist Papers, was asked years after he wrote the Constitution and the Federalist Papers, years after, he was asked, how come you left God out of the Constitution? And Alexander Hamilton replied, quote, because we forgot about him. You see, our founding fathers were too busy writing a, a blueprint for democracy to worry about your idiotic religious beliefs. Now, I'm a Jew. Israelis are settling the West Bank because they think God told them the West Bank is Judea and Samaria. That's how they read the Old Testament. It's not the West Bank, it's Judea and Samaria, and it belongs to the Jews. That's what their holy book says. How do you argue with violent extremists who believe that? Christian evangelicals also believe the West Bank is Judea and Samaria. They believe the West Bank is biblically mandated and belongs to the Jews in Israel, which is why Christian evangelicals are planting trees right now on farms that are being stolen from Palestinians and turned over to Jewish settlers. This is the 21st century version of the Crusades, taking the Holy Land back from the Muslims. Now, for the time being, Evangelical Christians are working with the Jews in Israel. But remember, there can be no crusade without also trampling the Jews. All these people are violent and dangerous extremists who are getting people killed. Because instead of learning to live with others, they only want to live with themselves. Now, anti-Semitism is real. So is the persecution of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. And despite what my illiterate, ultra-Orthodox Jewish friends think, and I'll talk more about the rising illiteracy rates within the ultra-Orthodox community in a second, despite what my illiterate, ultra-Orthodox Jewish friends think, Evangelical Christians are not going to solve the problem in Israel. They're going to exacerbate it. Evangelical Christians who pretend to be your friends are contributing to the problem. First, by siding with you, the Israelis, against the Palestinians. And then when that's settled, they will side with Jesus against the Jews. If my illiterate ultra-Orthodox Jewish friends read something other than the Bible, they would know this. The evangelical Christians who declare their undying devotion to the state of Israel are making it worse because, like during the Crusades, they want the Holy Land 
for themselves, not for the Jews and not for the Muslims. That is what Mike Pence believes. That's what Mike Huckabee believes. That's what Jersey Mike's subways. I couldn't come up with a third Mike. All right, probably not Jersey Mike subs, but I've been saying this all year. When you have Republican candidates debating one another, when you have them on Face the Nation or Meet the Press, the first question is journalistic malfeasance for the first question you ask not to be this. Governor Pence, Governor Huckabee, do you believe Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, and atheists are going to heaven or hell? Sarah Palin is running for governor right now in Alaska. Ask her that question. Do you believe Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, and atheists are going to heaven or hell? That is the question you are obligated, morally obligated to ask because there is no correct answer for them. If they say yes, if they say yes, they're going to hell, well, they've said too much to win an election. They said what you're not supposed to say. But if they say no, they've offended their core constituency. If they say uh, Jews, Muslims, pagans, Hindus, Buddhists, are going to go to heaven, uh, they're going to lose their constituents. The dog whistles have stopped. The gloves are off. So it's time for journalists to ask this question. It's not an impolite question when you have Republicans at CPAC and turning points calling this a Christian nation. Is it? It's okay for George W. Bush during the debates to say his favorite philosopher is Jesus Christ. That's not, that's not rude for him to say that, but it's rude to ask him if he believes Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, and pagans are going to heaven. Why is that a rude question? If this republic falls, much of the blame falls squarely at the feet of religious extremists who don't believe in our Constitution. They believe in the rule of God. And it's time to fight these animals in the courts because that's where they are winning. And when you win in the courts, then you win everywhere. That, that's what you have to remember. Hitler, Mussolini, Orban, and Hungary, they all won first in the courts. Yes, they resorted to violence, but it was government-sanctioned violence. Most of it. Most of it was legal. Everything Hitler did was, le was legal. The Enabling Act made it legal. The Nuremberg Race Laws of 1935 made the persecution of non-Aryans legal. The road to fascism is paved by our courts, slavery in America, the Holocaust in Germany, Jim Crow in the South, apartheid in South Africa, all legal. 
They were all laws that were passed. They were all written into law. Slavery written into our Constitution. Jim Crow, Plessy versus Ferguson, apartheid in South Africa was a law. It was all legal. The road to fascism is paved by the courts. Now, we have a new king in uh, Great Britain, Charles III. And, you know, I've been cute and talking about, you know, I'm a royalist and I love the crown and I'm fascinated by them. But it's time to get rid of the monarchy. It's time to eliminate the monarchy. Get rid of these people. There's a new king of England. His name is Charles III. And, you know, sometimes among his royal subjects, he's popular. Sometimes he's not. The king and Great Britain have been too popular in Scotland. And Scotland seems to be one referendum away from its own Brexit from Great Britain. Uh, here's how King Charles' ascendancy to the throne was greeted in the Scottish town of Edinburgh. God save the king! Uh, they booed him. They booed Charles. More about that in a second. Now, personally, I like Charles because I'm white. I think I'm white. Uh, I've never been colonized by the British government. I find the royalty to be silly and harmless because I don't know anything about the 150,000 Kenyans who were rounded up and placed in concentration camps during the 1950s where they were raped, castrated, and murdered. I like the pomp and pageantry because nobody has ever told me that apartheid in South Africa was approved by the British government. I find the British royal family to be aspirational because nobody ever told me about all the Africans who died to place those blood diamonds on Charles's crown. Now, earlier I said that oppression happens through the courts, right? That violent oppression is always legal. You can't do it without the sanctioning of the courts. Again, there were no laws being violated when South Africa created apartheid in 1947, apartheid was passed into law. It was legal. And by the way, they studied the Jim Crow South to, to uh, find out how you separate whites from blacks. The same way Hitler studied the Jim Crow South to determine how to uh, effectively separate the Aryans from other quote unquote races and the eugenics program that began here in the United States, was learned and studied uh, by, by Hitler's scientists. Uh, the rounding up of the Mau Mau's in Kenya during the 50s wasn't against the law. In fact, it was the law rounding up the lawbreakers. When you lose in the courts, you lose your rights. 
For example, citizens of Great Britain are getting arrested now for heckling the royal family. On Sunday, a royal subject was arrested in Edinburgh after holding a sign that read, quote, abolish monarchy. It also read, not my king and F imperialism. She was standing outside St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, where the queen's body is resting uh, until Tuesday. Hang on, is she still? Okay, I'm not going to go back to (laughs) to the car chase. That's over. So uh, she was arrested for shouting, uh, not my king, abolish monarchy and F imperialism. Today, in Scotland, the royal family was walking in procession as the queen was being transported from Hollywood House, the official residence of the queen in Scotland, although she stays at Balmoral. Uh, She was going from Holyrood to the cathedral. Walking behind her was her favorite, Prince Andrew. You remember Prince Andrew, right? He's no longer a working royal because this year he had to shell out a couple million dollars to a woman who says Jeffrey Epstein handed her to Andrew to be raped when she was an underage girl. The working royal stopped being a working royal, but now he's working again, walking in a procession to bury the queen, but unfortunately not the British monarchy. A loyal subject spotted Andrew, Prince Andrew, and screamed, quote, Andrew, you're a sick old man. Now, that's true. Andrew is a sick old man who, uh, you know, had to pay millions of dollars to settle uh, the case brought by one of Jeffrey Epstein's victims who said Prince Andrew raped raped her. I can assure you that if somebody accused me uh, of that and I had Prince Andrew's money, uh, I'd I take it to court. But he settled. Hmm. Uh, so here's what happened to the gentleman who screamed, you're a sick old man, Andrew. Here's what happened to the heckler. Disgusting! That would be the British, the the police, Great Britain and Scotland, their police, uh, throwing, battering uh, a protester and throwing him to the ground. And it's perfectly legal, right? That's perfectly legal. No charges against the police officer. A little different here in the United States, you know? A little different. You get caught on video doing that and you, you have a problem. So America, a uh, little better than Great Britain. Little, not by much, but a little. That was perfectly legal. It was perfectly legal to arrest the protester for shouting F- the monarchy, and it was perfectly legal for a police officer 
to throw a uh, protester to the ground because this year Parliament passed the Government Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act, otherwise known as the Policing Act, which uh, went into effect in April. It's called the Policing Act. Lane from Seaham told me about this about two weeks ago, and it gives the police in Great Britain sweeping powers. And the police get to decide how they want to handle a protest. This new act, the Policing Act, gives British police the discretion to determine which protests, which protests are, quote, serious disruptions to the life of the community and those protests which are not. The bill also permits, and this is where it gets pretty outrageous, the bill, the Policing Act, also permits individual prime ministers to decide how much protesting is legal and how much isn't. Now, usually when you're protesting, you're protesting the prime minister and his government. And this new bill, the Policing Act, gives power to the government in charge to decide through executive order what constitutes a legal protest and what, what kind of protest uh, should be illegal. Uh, no room for abuse there, right? Through executive order, a prime minister can define what types of protests will be permitted and what types of protests you will be arrested for. It's no longer codified into law. It's up to the police and the prime minister. They get to decide who's disturbing the, pe the peace. There will be no democratically, uh, no democratic debate, nothing in parliament. The act, the policing act, specifically assigns the prime minister with the administrative task of defining what is a serious disruption to the life of the community, what constitutes a serious disruption to the activities of any organization, not just the government, but let's say you're protesting Rupert Murdoch. If you're disrupting, uh, if, if you're climbing one of his buildings to protest his conservative coverage and it makes it impossible for him to put the newspaper out, you can be arrested. And we're talking about prison sentences, right? So Parliament, through an act of Parliament, abandoned, abdicated their responsibility to determine what constitutes a lawful protest. Parliament did that. That's where Prince Charles spoke today to celebrate the idea of a parliament. Did I call him Prince Charles? I apologize. King Charles spoke. You really have to get rid of this. It, it, it's, it's, you know, just to save the Windsors from this insanity. I mean, none of them is happy. Look at them. They're miserable. Take It's, it's abuse to do this to them. Uh, I was watching the, the, the official proclamation over the weekend and where Prince Charles... Uh, was uh, being crowned, essentially. And Prince William had this look on his face going, this, this, this is, how do I get out of here? 
How do I get out of here? Well, here is King Charles at Westminster Hall talking about Parliament and the importance of a democracy. And I, I think he believes this when he says this. As I stand before you today, I cannot help but feel the weight of history which surrounds us and which reminds us of the vital parliamentary traditions to which members of both houses dedicate yourselves with such personal commitment for the betterment of us all. Parliament is the living and breathing instrument of our democracy. That your traditions are ancient, we see in the construction of this great hall and the reminders of medieval predecessors of the office to which I have been called. Yeah, it's time to get rid of his job. Uh, by the way, he's also the head of the Anglican Church. Uh, that's we, another thing that we do better here in America. We don't have an official church in America, the Establishment Clause. The Anglican Church is the official religion. It's the law. Uh, it's written into law. Here in America, uh, we do have Republicans who openly admit they want to make this officially a Christian nation. And, you know, you think they're crazy and then you realize it's not that far a stretch. Look at Great Britain, which brings me back to the ACLU's religious freedom lawsuit against Indiana. The ACLU and Hoosier Jews for Choice are suing Indiana uh, for outlawing abortion. Uh, the ACLU says outlawing abortion violates the religious freedom of Jews. The ACLU claims Jews believe life doesn't begin until the baby is separated from the umbilical cord. In the Jewish tradition, the fetus is water. When it can breathe on its own, then it's a human being. More importantly, Jewish law says the physical and mental health of the mother takes priority over that of the fetus. The mental health of the mother takes priority over the fetus. That's Jewish law. Not going to say anything. Uh, that's Jewish law. Jewish law. You hear that a lot, right? People in America follow Jewish law. Uh, but you don't hear anyone on Fox News, you don't hear anybody in the Republican Party warning us against Jewish law like they warn us against Sharia law, right? The conservatives in America can't wait to talk about Muslims wanting to replace our legal system with Sharia law. But we're never warned about Jewish law Wait, there's still time. Wait a couple of years. The way we're going, we'll be hearing about communities that are only obeying Jewish law. This is the way it works. And Professor Adnan Hussein did a great job explaining what Sharia law is. Uh, Jewish law, Jews go to rabbis for advice. 
And rabbis give advice on Jewish law, which doesn't hold up in court, but people obey it. For example, a rabbi might tell a woman that Jewish law dictates, in this case, he'll say, in this case, you should divorce the man, right? There's no, it's not the government's law. It's a rabbi saying, I, I understand what the relationship is with your husband, and I've gone over the Jewish law, the Talmud, the Torah. Jewish law dictates you should divorce the man, or you should pay your friend $200, or Jewish law dictates your wife should get an abortion. That's how Jewish law works. Jews in this country often go to rabbis for issues that can't be settled in the courts. The court, there's no there's no apparatus in the courts to figure these things out, right? The same goes for Muslims in America, right? They go to their imams to learn about Sharia law. So when is Fox News... When are the Republicans going to warn about Jewish law the same way they warn about Sharia law? What are you waiting for? Sharia law and Jewish law are the same as Christian law. All three of those types of laws do not belong in the U.S. Code. Uh, there are laws that governments have, and then there is Jewish law, Christian law, and Sharia law, completely separate. But we have Christian nationalists who want Christian law to reign supreme. Josh Hawley, for example. Uh, so you're allowed in my country to uh, obey religious laws, obey, follow them, so long as those religious laws don't interfere with the laws of my government. Go to a rabbi, a priest, an imam, to resolve issues that don't need to be addressed by our government. Personal issues. My nephew borrowed a car. It got stolen. He borrowed my car. It got stolen while he's going to college. He has no money. I have more money than my nephew. Tell me, rabbi, who should pay for my new car? What do I do? And the rabbi would say, Jewish law, you know, crap like that. So follow whatever stupid religious teachings you want. Just make sure they don't violate the laws of my country and don't impose them on me. And likewise, our government, because of the Establishment Clause, cannot pass laws that favor one religion over another. You are free to believe God forbids abortion the same way you are free to believe God doesn't want you having sex for pleasure. You are free to believe people of the same sex shouldn't marry or have sex with one another. But you, but you live in this country so you are obligated to keep those religious beliefs where the sun don't shine. And you are not allowed to discriminate against or prevent people from engaging 
in all those practices just because your religion forbids it. Your religion forbids abortion? Fantastic. Don't get one. My religion doesn't. When it comes to medical issues, your religion errs on the side of the fetus. My religion is better because it errs on the side of the mother. But if you want to be stupid, that's your religious, it's your right to be stupid. My religion errs on the side of the living. And by the way, it's not just my religion that errs on the side of the mother. In this uh, lawsuit against the state of Indiana, the ACLU uh, says that abortion under similar circumstances is also permitted in Islamic, Episcopal, Unitarian, Universalist, as well as pagan religions. Therefore, outlawing abortions is religious persecution. Now, some Republicans, as I've said, insist this is a Christian nation. They should clarify which denomination of Christianity, because a lot of Christians would beg to differ. And most Christians are ashamed to hear America proclaimed as such. Most Christians do not want to hear that America is a Christian nation, which brings me to my next point. Americans also have the right to worship without being humiliated by some of the Cretans who share our faith. It's uh, pretty embarrassing for, for us when we look at people who share our so who supposedly share our religious beliefs and are ignorant morons. Uh, I went to Orthodox Hebrew school until I was 18. I, I wrapped the leather straps around the arm, the head. I didn't take it seriously. It's kind of like King Charles wearing one of his costumes. It's nice to be reminded of how primitive we once were and how far we've come. That's why sometimes it's nice to wrap the straps around your head. There is a rich intellectual tradition in all religions that should be celebrated. But what is going on with the Hasidic Jews in New York? It's not just ignorant, it just doesn't stifle the intellectual tradition of Judaism. It's dangerous. Now, I'm not talking about all Hasidic Jews. I'm talking about the Hasidic Jews of New York who are taking money from the state of New York to educate their children and turn them into morons. Now, listen to me. There is a problem with ultra-conservative Jewish yeshivas failing to teach math, English, and science. That is not teaching. That's indoctrination. That's making kids stupid. That's making kids stupid so they lack the critical thinking to stray from your religious cult. That's what cults do. They keep their children stupid. They don't teach them science or math or reading. Just read the holy books. Now, 
Whether you like it or not, here in America, we still have laws. At least we do in the state of New York. And those laws date back to 1895, demanding that children receive a standardized education. The laws state in New York that if you want to send your kid to a, you want to homeschool your kid, or you want to send that kid to a, a religious school instead of public school, you are free. But your child must pass standardized tests, especially if you're taking state funding. Now, according to the New York State Department of Education, 26 out of 28 New York City yeshivas that were investigated this year failed to meet the standards demanded by New York state law. New York state law trumps your religious law. The number of students attending yeshivas who fail standardized tests is double that of students attending New York public schools. Let me repeat that. The number of students attending yeshivas in New York City who fail standardized tests is double that of students attending New York public schools. Sorry, getting an F isn't a violation of your religious freedom. You're ignorant. Your teachers and your parents are making you ignorant. That's why you got an F. Now, you have a constitutional right to be deeply religious but you don't have a constitutional right to make your kids stupid. In Brooklyn, where I was born, the Hasidic community is now producing generation after generation of illiterate morons. You wanna know why there are so many anti-vaxxers in Brooklyn's ultra-Orthodox community? According to the Washington Post today, only one-fifth of children attending ultra-Orthodox schools are proficient in math and reading. That would be about half of how kids in the rest of the state of New York tested. If you send your child to an ultra-conservative, ultra-Orthodox Hebrew school in Brooklyn, chances are you will end up with an ignorant child, one who can easily be convinced that the West Bank is Judea and Samaria and that Christian evangelicals planting trees over there are your friends. Now, as a parent, everybody wants an ignorant child. Ignorant children stay with you forever. And more importantly, they obey who doesn't want, I can't tell you how much I would, how much I wish my children would obey one thing that I said. Uh, ignorant children are obedient because that's all they've been taught to do, to obey.
And let me assure you, this is not Judaism. Uh, creating obedient illiterates goes against everything Judaism stands for. It's not education. What's going on here is not education. It's indoctrination. And it's why, it's precisely why COVID burnt through the entire Orthodox community in New York City in 2020. The rabbis, not all, but enough out in Brooklyn wouldn't wear masks. And many, not all, but some were opposed to the vaccine. Show me a religious fundamentalist in any faith, and I will show you a mentally ill danger to the community. Look, I want to be careful here because anti-Semitism is clearly on the rise throughout the world and here in America. I get that. I know that. My last name is Feldman. Anti-Semitism is on the rise throughout the world, especially here in America. But that doesn't give ultra-conservative Orthodox Jews a license to be morons. I get it. I understand why people retreat into their own religious communities, not just Jews, the Amish, whomever. I understand why people retreat into their religious communities. I understand why persecuted faiths uh, have a segment of their population that believes they're never going to be accepted by the rest of society. So why even try? I get that. And basically, that's how I've lived my entire life. But <laughs> I've never built a religion around it. I get it. I get wanting to be isolated. And I get, I, Jews have been rounded up and placed in ghettos for centuries. And ultimately, trying to blend in is a fool's errand. History proves that. I get that. But that doesn't give you a license to be an illiterate moron and to raise illiterate morons because stupidity, like COVID, is deadly and contagious and should not be subsidized by my tax dollars. We have laws here in New York that say your children have to pass standardized tests. And if you want to take tax dollars, they better pass those tests. Uh, this is not just the Orthodox Jews. It is the deeply religious who are getting us killed here in America. And no matter what you want to believe, this is the antithesis of what our founding fathers wanted. Down in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis passed the Florida Parental Rights and Education Act and it went into law in July of this year down in Florida. And that gives parents the rights to determine how their idiot kids are going to get educated. And what that really means is parents in Florida have the right to prevent the teaching of subjects they don't approve of. Subjects like critical race and, of course, sex education. And it's always about protecting their religious rights. 
their religious rights to be stupid. Now, yeshivas here in Brooklyn and New York City are producing ignorant citizens who will believe anything you tell them and they will be obedient. Uh, that's what religious organizations have historically always tried to do. They only want to teach people to be subservient. Now, Ron DeSantis, because of this law, is going to keep Florida red for generations to come by turning public schools into these Brooklyn yeshivas where math and science take a back seat to religious bigotry. Uh, and that is dangerous for our democracy. In the end, this is about control. You know, my life has been a struggle learning to accept that I cannot control the way people behave. The source of all my suffering, other than electronic devices, is people, the way people behave and my inability to control them. And I practice three things. I practice unconditional love, forgiveness, and uh, don't scapegoat me. Those are my three rules. The only way to live for me is to uh, practice unconditional love, forgiveness, and a refusal to be scapegoated. I cannot control the way people behave, especially towards me. All I can do is protect myself from their behavior. This Republican Party, they're not just fascists. They are Christian nationalists. This Republican Party of Christian nationalists preaches liberty and freedom while at the same time doing everything in its power to control our access to money and power because that's what religious freedom is about, controlling your access to money and power. This has been going on since before the scriptures for thousands of years the key to controlling the government, the key to controlling the governed uh, is making sure they don't demand money and power. And you do that partly, mostly through organized religion, which teaches the governed that money is evil and the quest for power is demonic, except when that money and power is in, the hands, is in the hands of the rich and powerful, as well as their religious foot soldiers. Organized religion will always teach nonviolence, except when the state uses it to restore order, right? Uh, like this. Disgusting! That was uh, during a religious ceremony, the, the funeral procession for the queen, where a police officer used state violence to restore order. Uh, 
that religion, the Anglican Church, will always teach nonviolence, except when the state uses violence to restore order. And that's uh, about controlling people. That's what religion is mostly about, controlling people, and mostly women. Mostly women. And I get it. I, I wish I could control women. I do. Uh, I, I wish I could have controlled my mother, my sisters, my daughters, my ex-wives. But by now, I, have, I think I've learned that uh, women are out of control. Uh, you cannot control women. They do whatever they want. And as a man, that's not always easy to accept. And a normal, healthy man accepts that unless you're Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, and you say, I'll show them. I'll show those women. I'll make them keep that baby. Now you'll see who's in control. Americans despite all this religious indoctrination, are still pro-abortion, especially in states where draconian abortion laws have been passed and you get to see the results. Texas is pro-abortion. The Texas Signal, the Texas Signal reports today that a survey of more than 2,000 Texas voters shows 60% of Texas voters believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases. These anti-abortion laws in Texas are anti-democratic. They're anti-democratic. Only 11% of people in Texas think abortion should be banned, even in the case of rape and incest, which is the law in Texas. Texas law forbids abortion in the case of rape or incest, and any doctor who performs an abortion can face life in prison. Only 11% of people in Texas support that. How, how are these abortion laws democratic? They're not. Therefore, it's no surprise that the same poll says 90% of Texas voters believe Texas politicians are out of touch with their electorate. We'll see if Beto wins, right? Well, the midterms are now only 56 days away. Republicans need to pick up five seats in the House to start impeaching Joe Biden. The latest generic poll for the House of Representatives, conducted by Rasmussen, shows Republicans up by five points. That's not good. Fox News, a new Fox News poll shows Ron DeSantis beating former Florida Governor Charlie Crisp by five points. In Georgia, that same poll shows Democratic nominee Stacey Adams down by eight in her race against the incumbent Governor Brian Kemp. Also in Georgia, this is hard to believe, Herschel Walker is leading Georgia Senator Raphael Warnick by three. <clears throat> That's incredible. That is incredible. You know, I won't even play 
clips of Herschel Walker. I have these clips where he, he sounds brain damaged, and I think it's just unfair to play those clips. Uh, maybe I should. Uh, unbelievable. And in Florida, Senator Marco Rubio leads his Democratic challenger, Congresswoman Val Demings, by two. Like I said in uh, my uh, newsletter, uh, abortion is on the ballot. Abortion is on the ballot for the midterms. This election is about abortion and women turning out to vote because of abortion. We are now seeing women registering to vote in what may turn out to be record numbers. On Friday, Michigan's election board voted to allow abortion on the ballot. And Republicans in the state of Michigan didn't want that. They challenged the legality of a referendum, which will now ask voters to decide whether or not Michigan's state constitution should guarantee a woman's right to an abortion. Republicans do not want, especially after Kansas, Republicans do not want abortion on the ballot in November. They said, the Michigan Republicans said the wording on the referendum was too confusing, but the truth is they will do anything to keep abortion off the ballot in Michigan, where a record number of women have reportedly registered to vote right after the Supreme Court overturned Roe in June. Michigan Republicans, like former Secretary of Education under Trump, Betsy DeVoe, is they're worried that this referendum, the abortion referendum, will serve as a magnet to pro-abortion Democrats who will come to vote in November in favor of the referendum and then stick around to vote for Democrats like incumbent Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, over her Republican challenger, Tudor Dixon, who now trails the governor by 14 points in the latest polls. Michigan Republicans are terrified that there will be a surge of Democrats in November who will flip control of at least one chamber of the Michigan state legislature, which right now is run by Republicans. Abortion, people are pro-abortion. The Associated Press reports that 53% of American voters do not approve of the recent court order ruling that Roe v. Wade is unconstitutional. The same poll says 60% of Americans want Congress to pass a law right now that would make abortion accessible to all women nationwide. I wrote about this in my newsletter two weeks ago. You should read it. Uh, subscribe to my newsletter. In, in my piece two weeks ago, I talked about how social issues like same-sex marriage helped George W. Bush get reelected in 2004. That's when Karl Rove and Ken Melman, Ken Melvin, Ken Melman was the closeted homosexual as well as pre, uh, chairman of the Republican committee. Rove and Melman arranged to have same-sex marriage on the ballot in several key swing states back in 2004. 
Melman and Rove knew that Republicans were unhappy with Bush's war in Iraq. But they would also turn out, they weren't going to vote for Bush, but they would turn out to vote against same-sex marriage and then stick around to vote for Bush. And many say that strategy worked. 2004 was the most homophobic presidential campaign in American history, and it was orchestrated by Karl Rove, whose stepfather was gay, and orchestrated by Ken Melman, who was gay, but in the closet. Ken Melman later, when he couldn't do anything for the homosexual community, apologized for this strategy. And now Democrats, this is what I wrote about in my newsletter, you should read it. Democrats are deploying the same exact strategy, but this time with abortion. They're putting abortion on the ballot in Michigan, California, some other states. And this could be big for California because there are 10 Republican Congress people whose seats could be flipped because of all the women and men who are going to vote to in California to protect a woman's right to an abortion. Well, the Republicans want to make America great again. When was America great? Well, according to Republicans, the 1950s. And you know what? America is great again. The governor of New York declared a disaster emergency today, ordering an expansion of the state's polio vaccination efforts after scientists detected the virus in wastewater on Long Island. The virus also turned up in wastewater systems in New York City and several nearby counties. Yep, polio is back. It's like the 1950s. Why? Because of anti-vaxxers. Parts of Rockland County, New York, are said to be only 50% vaccinated. Now, when the year started, in fact, up until about two months ago, it was a given that the Republican Party would flip the Senate and the House and Joe Biden would be a lame duck. But in the past month, it's now received wisdom that the Democrats are actually going to pick up some Senate seats and losing the House may no longer be a given. Why is that? What, what happened? Why are the Republicans doing so poorly? Well, Nikki Haley, I believe she was governor of South Carolina, and then she became Trump's UN ambassador. She was on Sean Hannity and with Dr. Oz, and they were trying to figure out why the latest polls show Dr. Oz trailing John Fetterman in the race for senator of Pennsylvania and Nikki Haley came up with a pretty, pretty reasonable answer. That the media will give this guy with the most radical positions of any candidate I've ever seen a free pass for this election. Look, I have said it for too long, Sean. Republicans are too nice. Hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, what, what Republic, Republicans are what? Republicans are too nice. Ah, Republicans are too nice. They're being too nice to John Fetterman. That's why poor, poor Dr. Oz is losing in Pennsylvania. Yes, the Republicans are too nice. When Dr. Oz makes fun of John Fetterman for having a stroke, he's being too nice. That's medical advice, you know, to shame him into not having future strokes. 
when Dr. Oz won't stop mocking John Fetterman's stroke, saying things like he eats like a pig, he's being too nice. He's giving free medical advice. He's telling him, eat properly. When Donald Trump last week at a rally in Pennsylvania called John Fetterman a drug addict, he was being, what, what, what are Republicans? Republicans are too nice. Yes, yes, he was, they're being too nice. Donald Trump calls John Fetterman a drug addict because he's worried. He doesn't, he doesn't want him addicted to cocaine. Well, back to Michigan, a federal judge has given Flint, Michigan, the go-ahead to sue the Environmental Protection Agency for not doing a good enough job keeping lead out of Flint's drinking water, where 12,000 children, 12,000 children living in Flint were exposed to lead poisoning after then Republican Governor Rick Snyder approved plans to save money by switching Flint's water supply from Lake Huron to the Flint River, which had been contaminated by decades of industrial waste being dumped into Flint River. The water was never treated to prevent corrosion in the pipes, and that meant chemicals in Flint River began to chew away at those pipes, resulting in lead chipping off and flowing into the drinking water and the bloodstream of 12,000 12, primarily African-American children in Flint. But Republican Governor Snyder saved some money and he's being blamed for this. But you were being, what, what, what are Republicans? What is it? Republicans are too nice. Yep, they're just too nice. Nobody ever thanks Governor Snyder for saving money. And residents of Flint, Michigan, are now suing the Environmental Protection Agency for negligence, saying the EPA knew of complaints of lead in their drinking water, but failed to act. Again, Flint, Michigan is majority African-American, as is Jackson, Mississippi, where the water is flowing again, but still undrinkable. Residents are being advised to boil their water before drinking it and to shower with their mouths shut. Two weeks ago, Jackson's water treatment facility was damaged due to flooding and the taps went dry. Even before the flooding, residents had been on a boil-only mandate for years. Residents report today the tap water is still muckish and brown, while regulators continue their testing. Last winter, Jackson residents were left without water for a month after pipes were destroyed due to an unexpected freeze. Hmm. Last year, they went without drinking water due to an unexpected freeze. And as of two weeks ago, flooding uh, shut down their, their tap water. What unexpected freeze and, oh yeah, climate catastrophe. That's what they all have in common. Pastor Michael Jennings, the African-American arrested in Alabama for watering his neighbor's lawn, filed a federal lawsuit on Friday against three Childersburg, Alabama officers who handcuffed and detained him. Pastor Jennings says he's now suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder after officers Christopher Smith, Justin Gable, and Sergeant Jeremy Brooks violated his constitutional rights. I played that video two weeks ago. Pastor Brooks told the police 
He lived across the street and that his neighbors asked him to water their lawn while they were out of town. Watch me butcher this name. On Saturday, Canada's Conservative Party voted for Pierre Polievre, Polev, Polev, to be its new leader. It came as no surprise to anyone but people like me who don't pay attention to conservatives living in Canada, which is why I have no idea how to pronounce Pierre Polievre's name, and I really don't give a shit who this guy is. He is now the leader of Canada's second largest political party. He's a conservative. The next election for prime minister could be as far away as 2025. Polievre, Poliev, the new conservative leader, is 43 years old and is said to have brought 300,000 new assholes into the conservative party this year. He won with nearly 70 percent of the vote. I'm David Feldman. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is said, they say he's going to be going on trial this month in Gitmo. That's what they're saying. Will we actually see a trial? I don't think so. Defense attorneys told CBS News military prosecutors may be willing to take the death penalty off the table. And in return, the 9-11 defendants would plead guilty to the worst terrorist attack on U.S. soil. Well, they have to plead guilty because they can't have a trial. And uh, this is upsetting one of the relatives, a Mrs. Burlingame, who's... Uh, husband was killed on 9-11. We're in touch with other 9-11 families. Do they feel the same way? The families are outraged and they don't want closure. They want justice. Well, we can't have justice. We can't put these men on trial because they were denied due process and they were waterboarded. So there's no way to put them on trial. I talk about that in my newsletter last Friday. Subscribe to my newsletter gives you a detailed account of why exactly we will never put the mastermind behind 9-11 on trial. Uh, when you torture somebody, when you waterboard somebody 138 times, their confessions don't hold up in court. Why listen to me? This is his attorney, Alka Pradhan. Nearly 3,000 people died on 9-11. Is it right to take the death penalty off the table? The United States government failed all of us after September 11th in their decisions to use illegal techniques and illegal programs. A spokesman for the military trials did not address our questions about the 9-11 case, but confirmed the parties are currently engaged in preliminary plea negotiations, citing court documents. Of course, there's going to be a plea bargain. You cannot take these guys to trial because they were tortured. They were tortured. That was Dick Cheney who ordered the torturing because... Republicans are too nice. Yes, Republicans are too nice. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, subscribe to my newsletter. It's getting better and better every week. And uh, office hours every Friday night. Coming up in three minutes, 
Ethan Hershenfeld, and then uh, Howie Klein. And also in a little while, in a little while, much later, Professor Mike Steinell. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, and thirty-two thousand years. I know it's a long time, honey, to thirty-four thousand and twenty. But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way. To be a billionaire Now you can make fun of me But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die All I really need Is a second job or a third Lift myself up my boots And join that elite herd of the 600 billionaires in the USA who make more in a second than I do in a day. I'm on my way. Yes, I am. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Oh, yes, I am. I wish I were Professor Mike Steinell, who'll be joining us a little later on. Right now, we're being joined by the brilliant Ethan Hershenfeld, author of Today Is Now. I was supposed to see him on Saturday. I was going to see you and your father, but people, it, I just slept all day anyway. So it was good. What happened? How was your show? You were playing Westchester and you had a right and... Yeah, I had a show and the uh, it was at a private event and uh, they uh, asked me just the day before to write some personalized jokes because it was an event for they were making up for a lot of missed events in the last two and a half years, you know, birthdays and anniversaries. So after that was months ago, they asked me to do the show. And then just at the end of the week, they said, oh, here's some biographical facts about the people at the party. Please add some jokes about that. <laughs> and they were paying me quite well. So I didn't want to be a jerk. So I I did a little bit of that. I, if we, we could have had lunch in Englewood, New Jersey. I know. I didn't, and we didn't have the bandwidth. 
The other interesting thing is that at that gathering in in the in the aftermath, there were. Now this is where I was. We should tell that you yes. were in Anglewood with your father at yes. the very same temple where I was bar mitzvahed. Yes, Ahavat Torah, Ahavat the love Torah. of the Torah, which is an apt name for the synagogue where you, a great lover of the Torah, yes. would have been bar <laughs> And where I also a great lover of the Torah. I, it's more of a uh, casual dating situation I have with the Torah. It's not really love, but it's, you know, it's on again, off again. Sort of like an affair with someone in Canada. You know, when you're there, it's nice, but you don't, you don't see him all the time. Sometimes you see other books, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, but when you, when, but you really hold a place in your heart for that. Right. That, Sometimes when you're when you're meditating, you're thinking of Judaism. You're yes, fantasizing. The, Lord, the wonders of the Lord. That's what I really marvel at. I've been at three Jewish events in the last month. I was at a friend's bar mitzvah in Canada, then at a wedding, and then at this. And I just marvel at their, the the liturgy and all of these ceremonies. They really perseverate on how amazing God is. They just keep the <laughs> prayers, just keep coming back to that one. They keep ringing that same bell. It gets very, it's, very, it's very dull. It's why I, I hated that parochial education. I, it's so mind numbingly dull. And yet the rabbi made a point in his speech, which was actually pretty interesting. His point, because he talked about the queen dying and what she symbolized and what was important about her. And he mentioned that, in fact, it is it was her capacity to devote herself to something bigger than herself. She really did say it at a very young age. She said, I'm devoting myself. It's going to be a life of service to this thing, this constitutional monarchy, to this country. Um, and so his idea was that that's sort of what an orthodox Jew does with regard to God. So it gives them a, a sort of beacon, a thing to devote themselves to, which which I guess it sets a sort of compass for your life, which, yeah, I guess that, that that's a good thing. I just And you get diamonds, I, I, like the queen, you get some diamonds along the way. You get diamonds and you get to live to 96. Uh, so, yeah. And, and you also get a, you get, um, you know, you remember those URL passes like back in the 80s? Sure. If someone college, after college or between, you take a URL pass. Her corpse has a URL pass this week. They are taking that thing. That thing well, is just not now. We have late breaking news. Once again, oh. the, the Queen of England <laughs> is on a high speed chase uh, on the floor. Is that a Bronco? That, is that, that a white Bronco? They painted a white Bronco black. That's Al Cowings in the front. <laughs> and the Queen is said to be in, in the back of the hearse, the white Bronco wow. hearse with a gun to her head, apologizing. <laughs> Uh, to OJ's wife and kids. But this is a high-speed chase going on right now along the wow. 405 as Queen Elizabeth peeled I'm trying to do the James Bond theme song. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. No, all due respect, a great respect for, the, for that lady. God bless her and God, God keep her and protect her soul. I, I th but I, you know what? I've, I've soured on the monarchy. I, I listened to Lane. I listened to Roy Ricky. We had a, a long conversation mm -hmm. at office hours, and I didn't realize how insensitive it is on my part to trivialize the monarchy. Uh, if you are a person of color, if you're a, 
if you have ancestors who come from the Commonwealth, uh, she is a symbol of oppression. And as Professor Ben Burgess said, you, you, she didn't cause it, uh, but celebrating her is like celebrating a statue of a Confederate soldier. No, well, there is there is that. And I heard a discussion today about the fact that she just had what they call soft power. She had the ear of the prime minister. They would meet every week. So she 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 did have the potential to influence, not by by, by making demands, but she could have make made amends uh, in all sorts of rhetorical and emotional and Im historically important ways, even if not through direct policy or or actual money reparations. She could have. Uh, come out certainly. Uh, uh, maybe some apologies would have been in right. order. Yeah, but um, Prince Charles, when he addressed the Commonwealth, said, uh, "We have to address our past." Yeah, I heard that. That's that's we have that to look forward to. There's going to be a lot more of that now that now that she's gone and he's taken right. over. So that's I do, I do, I do enjoy the 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 robes and the, the gossip. And the, and the, I, I, I never got into it. I was never interested in the subject. And I also, I think I found it boring the same way I found uh, religious elementary school boring. All of that, somehow that stuff. And, and the, that history class was never particularly interesting to me for the same reason. I was much more interested in, in make-believe, in, uh, in fiction, in English class. Somehow I, I it's, think it's dodgy. I can, I can smell the mothballs. I'm somewhat interested in... British history, and I think kings and queens serve as touchstones that give you a reference point to understand history. Oh, this was Elizabethan times. This was, and so, but it's time for them to scale it back, seriously scale it back. Yeah. Um, Tell well, me about Avath Torah, because when I attended Avath Torah, Yes, I went there till I was eighteen. It was mm -hmm. it was an Orthodox Hebrew school, right? I think they're in a different building now, a and uh, building. They, someone referenced that. And they their building, interestingly, is split between them and then a Sephardic minion. So they there's two things going on at once. There's the East and the West. It's like a rap battle. <laughs> it's like a rap. You know what it's they say about an East Coast minion? East Coast minion East don't West stop. Very, yeah, East Coast minion shooting, don't stop. You're there all day. There's drive-bys in the parking lot. It's very intense. If you wear the wrong color talus, you can get shot in the bathroom. Yeah, it's it's scary. It's scary. You got to flash the right signs. It's a mess. No, but there were some positive COVID tests in the family in the wake of that whole thing. So it's good that you skipped it. Yeah. How long did it last? Um, I rolled up. I tried to uh, time it so I could get there right for the bar mitzvah boy doing his thing. Uh, instead of getting there at 9.15 or 9.30 for the service, I came in at 10.15 and he was already in the middle of it. And he was going fast. He was definitely speeding. He was doing like 75 and a 55. <laughs> Like he really must have studied his ass off. It was very impressive. Right. So he was motoring through his his Parsha. And so they were done by around, I guess, 1045. Then there was a lunch and there was a whole thing. But by 1231, it was wrapping up. I was getting exhausted. I had to just go home and sleep if I was going to do my show. And is, was the, is there a nighttime event? 
I think there was. I saw a video on WhatsApp of at the family's house then a kind of nice, I think they were doing a Havdalah service, the end of Sabbath service. It was a whole thing. But it was nice. It was the first time in years I'd seen a lot of these. We have a very big extended family. And with COVID and other stuff, I hadn't seen them in years. So it was nice. Great, great. Now I'm that old relative that you would meet when you were younger. I know. Calling people by the wrong name. Right. And, like, and I remember you when you were just this big. Right. And it's very weird. Like that corner has definitely been turned. Yes, yes. Uh, earlier in the show, I was talking about yeshivas taking money here in New York State, yeah. close to a billion dollars, and yeah. not educating the kids, that the kids are f- are failing the standardized tests. They're not teaching math or science. Right. Yeah, they're just teaching the holy books, right? And uh, well, you say they're not preparing them for life, but they are preparing them for the afterlife. <laughs> so, which one is You're more right. important? You're right. That's that's true. Something <laughs> you know. Uh, I don't mean to criticize organized religion. I think you know, like the royal family. Uh, the bad outweighs the good with all organized religion. But religion and faith is important and the holy books are important. When did the ultra-Orthodox conservatives, because that temple that I went to as a kid, that's not the same Orthodox Judaism that there was a Reformation that went on. Right. I think now it's much more right wing, right? They yeah. were liberals back then, even yeah. though they were orthodox. And now yeah. these guys, I think a lot of them watch Fox News. And the rabbi made some snarky comment about cancel. He referred to something ancient, called it cancel. Like a, he was talking about something, people getting down on Maimonides' interpretation of something and saying he was canceled. And everybody so, laughed. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a laugh line. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are you appalled by this? Because it's like 20% of the community. I, you know, I try to bifurcate my experience of the thing. If I was going to go in there and just have my political uh, beliefs and all of that front and center, I couldn't really enjoy seeing family. I, I think a lot of them or some of them might fall into that camp. I was appalled by his interpretation of one passage from Deuteronomy that, he, in fact, the mother of the bar mitzvah, uh, boy, my cousin mentioned it was very beautiful the way she talked about it, because it's this thing in Deuteronomy where it says if you come upon uh, some uh, eggs in a nest and the mother bird is there you, and you want to take the eggs and scramble them or make an omelet or a souffle, it doesn't uh, say exactly what you want to do with them, but you should send the mother bird away. That's how they described it. I just looked at the original. It doesn't say that. It just says don't take the mother but the way they were describing it, it was this compassionate thing of send the mother away. That was the interpretation. It's very compassionate to send the mother bird away. But the whole time I was thinking and talking about it, I was thinking, that's not compassionate. Compassion is leave the mother bird alone also. Right. Why are you taking the bird? Go eat some tofu. Like, what are you talking about? This isn't a compassionate. This is, this is a passage about going and robbing eggs. On the other hand, back in the day, if you were starving and it was hard to, to find protein, I guess you had to... Maybe you had to do that, but in in this day and age. And then after that's done, you go over to the banquet hall next door and you and you fress on cold cuts. <laughs> so <laughs> it's 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 not a good look. 
And then the <laughs> vegan table, just a couple of salads. They were good, but it's, you know, it's like 10 to 12 percent of what's available. Now, you lot of, it's very it's a carnivorous people. I'm not proud of that. Right. And God apparently is carnivorous. That Most of Deuteronomy is a lunch order for the altar. Well, there's, right? Like because I, said, I want a, a lamb. Ago, right. You're, yeah, but I think the other interesting thing when you read it with your vegan lenses on is that this wasn't for three meals a day, you were supposed to be eating meat. Maybe you would have meat once a week. These were rules that would pertain to that. Right. But now it's, you know, you have your McMuffin in the morning. By the way, here's a McMuffin joke I've never gotten to deliver because um, I, I just thought it was a little, I don't know, I didn't feel like doing it, but I like it. It's, uh, you know, for a vegan, that's a, it's, it's a very disturbing thing, the, the breakfast meal, because it's got, you know, it's, it's got egg, cheese, and bacon. There's, there's many species represented on that. It's it's mm -hmm. it's completely hard. It's like Bobby Yar on a bun. <laughs> <laughs> I just like that phrase, but yeah. it's a little bit harsh. Now, so, are you in Cape Cod? I am. What happened was now. How long does it take to get from Angola to Cape Cod? It's just a. Uh, it's five and a half hours. Yeah, it's a, it's two hundred ninety miles or so. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. So. It, we did a, you know, I took the the two young dogs and my partner in the dungaree business. She is mm -hmm. in New York with our two younger dogs. But the old guy, we don't think he can really handle the fourth floor walk up ever again. So I'm, I'm here with him now, the old guy who turned 15. That's 105 to you and me. And so we're <laughs> here this week. I have a callback audition on Zoom for a TV series tomorrow. On Friday, I'm recording a voiceover thing, and they got they found a studio near here. But I think next week I have to be back in New York. So we'll see what we're doing. I don't know. It's a little bit up in the air. Well, you should. Last time you mentioned the callback, the audition, yes. and you got the part. And you worked with Natalie Portman. Worked with slash accosted her in the hallway. I had an adjacent scene Because to you her. taught My her calculus. What's that? You taught her calculus. I did not. I called her to help her with a calculus problem. And by the time I got back to her with a solution, she had already solved it. She was better right. at calculus than I was. Yeah. But uh, this one would be a very interesting part, uh, a real stretch uh, for me. I, I, don't, I won't say anything more about it, but that would be fun. And then, um, yeah, I'm, I'm up here. And, uh, oh, I wanted to ask you this, your opinion. And I'd love for your audience to weigh in. So the director of this Today Is Now, here's the book, Today Is Now, uh, the book, which goes along with a movie. So the movie Today Is Now, the idea is you meet Dr. Benjamin and you think he's a real guy. When you're watching the movie, just like when you're reading the book, you're kind of like, wait a minute, is this real? Because it's kind of kooky, but it also seems like it, he means business. The director wants my TikTok to purport to actually be Dr. Benjamin. It's the Dr. S. Benjamin TikTok. Now, I began recording on TikTok. I did a few of them and really enjoyed them, but I introduced myself as me, the actor playing this guy. He really wants me to just be Dr. Benjamin on this thing. But my concern was that that's a forum in which the satirical element of it is not explicit. And so then I could get in trouble if I'm on there as Dr. Benjamin saying anything and then someone goes and jumps off a building. That seems like a real problem. Right. Right. Is that then not covered by satire? I feel like I have to talk to some lawyers about this. 
So instead, what I think I'm going to do is just restart that Dr. S. Benjamin TikTok page and simply read from the book on there. But not actually. I don't know. I'm not sure. These are like two second videos, right? No, they're now they're three minutes. But now you can even do 10 minutes. So I was doing 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. 10. They just opened up a 10 minute uh, window. Yeah. And what is what what am I missing with TikTok other than cute dogs and stuff? And and Uh, I really don't know. I think it's because there's some some way that it engages people. And it's also a much bigger audience of the youth and the youth, um, you know, buy all the uh, stuff. And mm-hmm. so they have the purchasing power. I don't know the answer, but my the director of this film is is in his early 20s. And he thinks that the TikTok is a good way to get some momentum for publicity in advance of the film coming out. So and when and when, when, is, and when does the film come out? He's going to he should in the next week have a rough cut. So we're getting we're getting close ish. But my question was this. So my idea, I was kind of hedging by going on there and saying, I'm Ethan, I'm the actor who plays this. I didn't want to be myself. I mean, I didn't want to be pretending to be the doctor. But he really thinks I need to be doing that to, to for it to have the impact he wants it to have. So anyway, that's not exactly a question, but that's my thinking. Philosophically. Oh, oh Chiron, someone in the chat, Ann Lee, is, that's a good idea. A Chiron disclaimer at the end that would say, not a real doctor. Consult your physician for actual advice. I want to ask uh, Professor Lee about Ukraine. Uh, Everybody should read her over at the Daily Kos. She does a nightly recap of the the war in Ukraine. She writes under the handle Annie Lee. And we should put it in the chat room for people uh, to read her. Annie Lee. Is it possible that things can get better? Like, Like I woke up today, right? I wish Ukraine never happened, right? I wish Biden stopped it before it happened. He obviously wanted a quagmire to sink Putin. Uh, but, there, there, you know, you're told it's good news coming out of Ukraine. And I'm thinking, okay, now things, now things are going to turn around. Life is going to get good. Uh, is anything going to get better? <laughs> Does it ever get better here? Um, I would say the the Buddhist perspective on that is that that's one of those false dichotomies that we're wed to in life. Good and bad, success and failure. Um, and that, in fact... Uh, there's good and there's bad all the time, but, um, yeah, I would say no, (laughs) things don't get better. Things get Um, worse and get better at the same time. I I, I don't know. What do I know? I'm, uh, um, do you go through periods where you're, you're actually content and you're saying things clearly and life is good and you can't imagine being depressed or anxious. No. Can I actually read you a tiny clip from the book? Because I opened to exactly this, which addresses this exact question. The, the, the chapter it's, it's tiny. It's called darkness indivisible. Here's the chapter. Here's a novel idea. You won't hear from your therapist. Depression is correct. (laughs) 
The world <laughs> is horrible. Throw a dart at a map. You just hit a country where people are suffering. Need a list? War, famine, loneliness, disease, poverty, discrimination, incarceration, addiction, etc. Life is often difficult. Pain endures. Pleasure is fleeting. Depression is an accurate assessment of the circumstances. Wait, you're telling me I should be depressed, you ask? Nope, never said that. <laughs> Now, how do people buy this book? I guess they have to go oh. to Amazon. Amazon, the evil empire. Yeah, Amazon.com today is now. And the guarantee, as I've said, is that it will change your life by $14. Go so, to Amazon. Amazon.com today is now with an exclamation point. Dr. Samuel Benjamin is the author. And, um, and it gets the Feldman guarantee. Buy the Plus book. the Hershenfeld guarantee, which is I will meet you in person and sign it and I will buy your coffee. Really? Yeah. The coffee's on Dr. Benjamin. Or come to your show. So what's your stand-up like? Where are you going these days? Where, where's the stand-up? Well, I had that big show, really big show. I have another big private show at the end of October. And then in the beginning of November, I have that vegan show on the Lower East Side. That's all that's happening at the moment. I'm really trying to focus on this thing, this project and the film, because I feel like it could it could help to catapult things out of these enjoyable, but in some way very limiting what they call co-star things, which is when you right. pop on as the shochet and you, you have a monologue with a sheep and the right. sheep has more lines. It's fun, <laughs> but it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> this is true. For those of you who don't know, you're in a movie with Natalie Portman, where you sacrifice yeah. a sheep. I sacrifice a sheep. And uh, it's a sort of, there's a kind of Bruce Lee element to it, because then the sheep turns the tables and he sacrifices me. I, I, <laughs> that's a spoiler. I shouldn't have told you that. But um, they make me into a sweater. Now, do they make diplomas truly out of sheepskin? Is that true? They call it a sheep. That's, that's condoms. You're thinking of. Oh, condoms are made out of sheepskin. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So yeah. for me to put on sheepskin around my penis, that's enough sex. That's all I need. Yeah. Who need it who sounds like maybe you were putting your diploma around your cock. That's a mistake. <laughs> I mean, that could be impressive, but not in the not in the way you want to be impressive at that moment. Look, summa cum laude. <laughs> or, or magna cum laude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, hey, um, Ethan Hershenfeld, great job. How do people okay. follow you on Twitter? Follow me on, uh, well, follow me at Dr. S. Benjamin at, on TikTok, at Dr. S. Benjamin. But otherwise, just go to EthanHershenfeld.com. Good luck spelling that. And on my website, you can uh, find all my social media stuff. Do you think I'm going to get how, th this to work? Let's see. What are you trying to do? I'm calling Howie Klein. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's working. Look at that. Hey, David. Hey, we're live. That's great. The, the system is working today. Ethan Hershenfeld, thank you, sir. Howie Klein, David Feldman, Zygazint. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Howie Klein joins us. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, which raises money for progressive candidates. And he writes Down With Tyranny, which everybody should go to right now and read them over at Down With Tyranny. 
So we should talk. Uh, I wasn't writing just. I was taking a moment off and uh, watching this uh, series I've been watching for several years. Uh, this is uh, the sequel to it. It's called uh, Osman. And Osman is the founder of the Ottoman Empire. And I'm literally planning a trip to Turkey to go to all the places that have been mentioned in Ertugrul, which is the first series, and Osman, which is the second series. Just to give you an idea about uh, what, what when I said I've been watching it for several years, a an episode is two hours, and there are there are uh, three seasons, and east and and about ninety episodes, or between ninety and hundred episodes on. Osman and in, and the earlier one, Ertugrul, was much, much, much longer. I can't remember how many seasons and series <laughs> there were. Wow. Well, it's really good. Uh, it's in Turkish with English subs. And, uh, and, and, you know, I've been to some of these places and some I haven't been to. And Turkey is one of the most, uh, to me, one of the most interesting countries in the world. And the people are wonderful and the food is fantastic. The only problem is they have a fascist, uh, a fascist leader now. And I wish they would get rid of him, but it's not going to happen. Right. Uh, anyway, what, 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 what are we it? doing today? What are we doing tonight? Well, I'm curious. I wanted to ask you about always Trump. What are your thoughts about Ukraine? When we hear stories that they're winning and Zelensky's turning the tide, have we heard this before? Well, I don't know, but but you know the area that they that they took over that the Ukrainian unless things have changed today, as of last night, the area that they had took taken over was about the size of Rhode Island, slightly bigger than the size of Rhode Island, slightly. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how important that is. Uh, you know, there were some towns in it. Not, they call them cities, but they're not really cities. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a good thing. I wrote about it a little bit on my blog. Yeah. But it, uh, it doesn't mean that the Ukrainians are going to defeat the Russians. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not, but it doesn't mean that it is. And we'll see, you know, if the Russians regroup and uh, and come back at them. I mean, obviously, the Russians have a stronger army. Now, the Ukrainians are much more motivated, right? The Russians are, you know, they're not conscripts, but they kind of basically are who are fighting, uh, you know, fighting because they're being, being told to fight and it doesn't mean anything to them. And at the first... Uh, from what I'm hearing, at uh, you know the first line of trouble, they throw their weapons down and run away. Whereas the Ukrainians are fighting for their homes and their right. families and their lives, their country. So uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, if your question was, do I think that the Ukrainians are winning? I, I'm not sure. You know, I, I read a lot of uh, propaganda from both sides, and that's really what it is. And the stuff that you get on TV in the U.S. is also propaganda, just like the stuff that you get in from Moscow. It's all propaganda. So you don't know what's really happening. Right. You quote Anne Applebaum, who I've read. She's written about fascism. And yeah, she's really good. Yeah. I, I, you know, that attracted me to that story because of her, you know. But she is very, very, very she's on the ground. She's in Ukraine. But she's getting still get, she's not in the battles and she's still getting her information from the Ukrainian government. So she is an extremely pro Ukrainian perspective. And, and also she's reciting what they want to put out to the world. 
and you know she really took it far, and she's already seeing the the collapse of uh, Putin's regime and talking about how you how do you find a new leader for Russia and stuff like that. Right. So I, I think she's a little, you know it was interesting, but a little bit uh, premature. Right. Is she fr- is she from Hungary? Or did she do? T- or did she do time in her book? I I've written so many. I've read so many books about fascism. I can't can't remember if she's the one who was visiting Hungary. Anyway, uh, the um, okay. I, I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you a, a tasteless question about Biden. Oh wow! Biden in Ukraine. Uh, how political is this for the midterms, the, the, the positive spin or it doesn't, the, the war doesn't care. The reporting on the war doesn't care about the midterms because if, if you, you do get, I mean, there are reports of Russian bloggers who are hawks re, really upset with Putin. There, there are some uh, politicians who are risking their lives and careers signing poli- uh, petitions calling for Putin to resign. Uh, well, the, most of the, uh, the, the negativity is, is directed at the generals rather than at Putin himself. So those bloggers you're talking about are, you know, screaming about the generals. They're not, they're not really screaming about Putin, that, which is very dangerous to do. So I don't know about petitions that are being signed by prominent people with their real names uh, saying that Putin should resign. Uh, you know, maybe, but I just don't know about it. And in terms of, of our midterms, you know, when this war started, I think Americans were really like captivated by it and wanted like every detail. And I get the impression that now not so much that people are more, you know, they, they've moved on to the uh, the death of the queen and the coronation of the new King Charles III. Right. I think they would be really interested if they saw Charles III go through what King Charles I went through, right. which would even interest well, so far it's starting. I mean, he lost all his hair, so that's a come over. It starts with losing your hair, and then the rest of the head eventually goes. The the yeah, I mean, we how many Americans can tell you uh, what's going on in Iraq? And we paid for that. Well, we're paying for Ukraine as well. Uh, but uh, so the midterms, the past month, we've been told. There's going to be a surprise blue wave. Women are women. I don't are, know if anybody's saying that. It's me. I mean, are people really saying a blue wave? That there was going to be women are, because of Roe, that women. Yes, are, women are registering in, in bigger numbers than normal. There are a lot. I mean, which which I think has, you know, helped the Democrats in the Senate and sort of, you know, even the things up a little bit in the House. Uh, but I don't know if you saw this, this very interesting reporting today. I don't know. I can't remember who did it about the um, the shortcomings of, of oh, was David Lionheart in, in the, I think, the New York Times wrote about the shortcomings of polling and why right. in, in very specific states. Well, you wrote about where the polling you wrote about over down with tyranny. I did that polling in some of the states that are very close has proven to be not reliable. So it's not reliable in Ohio. It's not reliable in North Carolina, et cetera. There are a bunch of states where the polling wasn't, you know, predicted big wins for Hillary that didn't materialize, predicted uh, 
big wins for Biden, which didn't materialize. They, you know, like North Carolina was supposed to be a win for Biden. Instead, it was a win for Trump. Uh, there, there were other states, you know, I think Wisconsin, for example, big, big margin for Biden. Instead, it was a very, very, very narrow margin. So, you know, and these are important states in the Senate races. Um, and, you know, the, so the predictions that the Democrats are going to expand their majority, and I've made that prediction as well, uh, you know, we have to be a little careful with being so sure of that. I have to be a little careful about that. How is it possible that some polls show Herschel Walker beating Raphael Warnick in Georgia? Well, generally speaking, the polls that show that are Republican polls. So, you know, there are, there is a specific Republican companies that uh, there's some Democratic companies that do this, too, but not as blatantly. And they they'll give you, you know, if you, you pay them, they'll give you the answers you're looking for. Really? So I don't, I don't count those polls. Uh, when, when I, you know, I just, you know, disregard them. Rasmussen, for example, is not a a viable polling company. There's another one, another big Republican polling company, and they're just just worthless. I mean, they're just, you know, there are, there are some non, I'm, I'm also not that interested in the very, you know, very democratic polls. I'm more interested, you know, in companies that don't have a point of view politically and they're just, they're just doing it. You know, like the Economist uses uh, YouGov, mm-hmm. and YouGov is not a Republican polling firm, and it's not a Democratic polling firm; it's an English polling firm. And you say and, it's uh, good for the Democrats. I, I'm, I'm, say it again. You, you say over down with Tyrion that the YouGov poll shows that the Democrats are beating the Republicans in the House. Yeah, they they did. Well, yes, but you have to remember what the way that that poll is conducted is: they ask people, "Would you rather?" Uh, you know, would you rather see a Democrat or a Republican win? And it's not done by congressional district. It's just an overall. So, you know, if you have 20 people in New York City who who say they'd rather see a Democrat, that weighs it to, towards the Democrats, but it's, it, it doesn't mean that much. So when, when the, I think that in the poll that I was citing, I'm pretty sure it was a, there was a six-point margin for the Democrats. The Democrats need an eight-point margin uh, to uh, pull ahead of the Republicans, just because of gerrymandering. Right. The I don't believe that there are cycles to American history. Uh, <clears throat> I think we're going in one direction, and it's into the toilet. But it does feel like the president has a hundred days. And after 100 days, he's got a year and a half. And then it's midterms. They usually, the president usually loses the House. And the next two. He doesn't always lose the, the body, he loses a number of seats. If he's got a big margin, it doesn't, you know, he still controls the House. But in this case, we don't, he doesn't have a big margin. So if he loses a bunch of seats, that's it. The Republicans will then control the House. But in normal times, it, it feels like the president wins. He's got political capital. He passes some landmark legislation. And then the, midterm, okay. the midterms come around. That, and then the, the opposing party takes the House. And they spend the next two years investigating what the president accomplished. And if if there's almost something good about that, 
but this Republican Party doesn't want to investigate what happened. They just want to lock up Biden. Right. We're not going to get a. a They can't do anything. I mean, they can investigate and they will. They're planning that already. Uh, So if they take over the committees, they will be investigating. They may impeach Biden. I don't think McCarthy necessarily wants that, but some of them do. Uh, including Jim Jordan, who's going to be the head of the, uh, if they win, he'll be the head of the Judiciary Committee. Right. So, and if they don't, if they don't impeach Biden, they'll impeach cabinet members. They'll de- they're definitely going to impeach somebody. Right. Uh, well, but they're, probably. But they're so, not, they're, I don't, I don't know that the government, what the voters are looking for. I would assume the voters are looking for the Republicans to hold hearings on the, Inflation Reduction Act, the bipartisan infrastructure bill to find out where the waste is, to find the next Solyndra, to find out where the corruption is, to make sure that our tax dollars were spent properly. But they're not interested in that. Uh, yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, I, I don't know that the voters are interested in, in hearings and investigations uh, at all. I think that they would like things that are going to make their lives better. I mean, and I'm not talking about, you know, the 30 percent of Americans who are MAGA fanatics and who don't believe in democracy. I, I leave them to the side. I, I just mean <clears throat> the sliver of independents and swing voters who may push it over to the Republicans or may push it over to the Democrats. We don't know yet. Those those voters, I, I think, uh, you know, would like things that are going to help their lives. Right. And I don't think the Republicans have any clue about that. In fact, uh uh, that's not what they think government is for. Quite the opposite. What are we going to see between now and Election Day in the Senate, in, in the House? Are we going to see an attempt to codify uh, Roe? Is, is Schumer going to have a vote on abortion? Well, that's the Senate. Yeah, and, you know, the House did it already. The Senate, it failed in the Senate. The Senate is going to uh, try to codify uh, marriage equality for uh, based on race and based on gender. So he says he's going to try that. It'll probably pass. I think they've got the they've got a number of Republicans who can override the veto. It's right around what they need. Uh, So I think and one of the co-sponsors of that bill is um, Susan Collins. uh, And but they've got a couple of, of Republicans who you don't normally expect to help, like 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 Rob Portman, whose son is married to another man. He's, he's on board. And there, are, but, and there are other conservative Republicans who are going along with that. So they, they will try that. The, uh, you know, the, the thing that uh, Schumer is working on the hardest right now is the really disgusting, which is this side deal that he made with Manchin. Yeah, explain, to, that. Uh, explain that, please. Okay. So they, they needed Manchin uh, to agree to, the, uh, to that, the, the build back a little bit bill. Uh, after he just, you know, cut it up and made it smaller and smaller and smaller. So that was basically unrecognizable. But if to pass anything, they needed his vote. And he, he made a deal with, with Schumer secretly. No one knew about it or few people knew about it. It certainly wasn't public that if he went along with this, Schumer would, would attach to a piece of legislation that couldn't be defeated. So in other words, keeping the government open, the CR continuing right. resolution to keep it open, he would attach a bill 
that Manchin wanted that would otherwise not pass, which is something uh, which they're calling reform, but that's funny because reform is a positive word and this is the opposite. This is a, this is a bill to make it easier to get pipelines built and to to, to do any kind of building that involves uh, uh, fossil fuels and make and make that process easier. So that that would not pass. But 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 Schumer is saying, look, if this doesn't pass, my word means nothing. I gave my word. You've got to support me. So you you have someone who, like let's take Brian Schatz. Brian Hawaii. He's from Hawaii. He's a Democrat from Hawaii. He says he ran for the Senate specifically to address global warming. That was his reason for running. That's what he says. He has also now said that, you know, they can't let Schumer down and that he's going to vote for this bill. As opposed to Bernie, who went up on the Senate floor and gave a long speech about all the reasons not to vote for the bill. And he has vowed not to vote for the bill. You now have 72 uh, Democrats who have signed a letter uh, that Raul Grijalva um, wrote. And the letter addresses this problem of what's wrong with this deal and says, why don't you just let this be a standalone piece of legislation and we'll vote on it on its right. merits. And, and the letter was to Pelosi and Hoyer urging them that no matter what the Senate does, the House should not have this as part of the CR. So there are 72 Democrats now, or, or more perhaps, because I spoke to some Democrats today who I was shocked to see their names not on the bill. And they said, I signed it. I signed the bill. I don't know why my name's not on it either. And, uh, you know, like Ted Lou, for example, for example, I was shocked when I didn't see his name on it. And he was shocked when I told him it wasn't on it. He right. said he signed it right away. And, and there were others as well. So and Ro Khan, the, right? No, Ro Khan's name was on there. His yeah. name, he, he is all, Low Connor was actually one of the few, like Bernie, right. who has now said, the only one, but he was one of the few who has said he will not vote for the bill if Manchin, the Mansion deal is in it. He says that he doesn't care. He's not voting for it. He'll shut down and the that's, government. That's, well, the thing is, is not to shut down the government. The thing is to, to, to say to let it fail and then then take it that part out. So it's not about shutting down the government. It's about getting rid of that, that little piece in there that Schumer is trying to force people uh, to vote for and who don't want to vote for it. So we'll, so we'll see. I mean, I, I, have, I have a suspicion there are enough. I don't have a suspicion. I'm sure there are enough Republicans in the Senate to make up for the couple of Democrats who will defect. I mean, Bernie has already said he would. I'm betting that uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren probably will and Ed Markey might. And Jeff Merkley might, and if they def- and so that's like four four Democrats. All you need is four Republicans. I think they got way more than that to vote for this thing. Now in the House, if seventy some odd Democrats went uh, went against it, I don't know that they have seventy Republicans that would step in to help. They may, but I don't think they do. So uh, the thing is, is that which wormy so-called progressives who sign on to the bill will then say, oh, well, I, you know, I signed, I saw, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, not signed on to the bill, signed on to the letter. They'll say, well, I signed the letter, but I, you know, I'm not going to shut down the government. And they'll, they'll just go along with uh, the Schumer and Pelosi and Biden uh, excuses for, for going along with this thing. And that's what I think will happen. I don't, I don't think that it will, um, it'll go through. Now, what I wrote about a week ago was that every time you see a member of Congress, 
presumably your own member of Congress, and they voted for this thing, you should spit in their face. And if that means you're going to get arrested, then take it like a man or a woman. So a member of Congress and said that was is a uh, that is not a good idea, and there there is a much better idea than that. Uh, and the better idea is to offer a a trade. Say to Schumer and uh, Schumer and Mansion, yeah, okay, I'll I'll vote for this thing. But what you've got to do is, and then and then they they introduce something else that removes as much. Uh, um, greenhouse gases from the atmosphere as Mansion adds to it. So in other words, if Mansion's bill uh, adds 50 billion tons of greenhouse gases, they have to find another way to take 50 billion tons out. And that might that might work for them. I mean, the one thing that that might work is to raise the cafe standards for manufacturers for car manufacturers. Uh, and that that could, that could be a pro, uh, something that would work. I asked him if he's going to. Uh, if he's going to introduce that, and he says someone is going to. Okay. You can't see, but I've posted a picture of you in a tuxedo with Lou Reed and Stevie Nicks over down with Tyranny. Howie is writing his autobiography, and he's releasing it. It's a memoir. It's not an autobiography. It's, it's, a, it's a somewhat of a difference there. What is, but the, yes. what is the difference between an autobiography and a memoir? No, an autobiography, you can't leave anything out. Oh, I see. Uh, and a memoir, you can. You can leave out whatever you want. So I'm looking at a very, very happy, handsome Howie Klein uh, looking into Stevie Nicks' eyes and uh, Lou Reed right next to you. Where was that picture taken? I don't. I don't remember. It was. It was an award uh, that I got, and I can't remember which award it was. There. There are a few. But it's funny that you should mention that now because you know what I'm looking at? I'm not looking at Stevie, but I'm looking at this incredibly beautiful teak Buddha that she that she gave me as a present. And it's a, you know, it's a sitting Buddha. It's absolutely beautiful. I'm looking at it right now as we speak. When are you happy in your previous life? When were you happier? Uh, watching the rehearsals or the live show? The, li the live show, absolutely, because there's so much, you know, energy and excitement from the crowd. It's just, it's, it, you know, I, I, I love going to rehearsals too, but I really like a live audience. The band is, is usually better uh, in that situation, and the, the excitement is, is much more. I remember speaking of Stevie Nicks, the, the first show that they did after the album came out, the live, the live album came out. I was involved with that. It was, a, it was a really big deal for me because they hadn't been on reprise. They had been on Warner brothers. And when the chairman of the company sat down at a senior meeting and announced that they were coming, they were going to make another record. The president of Warner's and the general manager of Warner's, you know, made like a face like, ugh, like they didn't want them. And, and I, and I looked at my general manager and he looked at me and we just, both of them, both of us knew the same thing. Like, just keep quiet for a minute. And then the chairman's, the chairman said to them, are you telling me that you're not interested? And they said, well, you know, our plate is full. I don't know if we could handle it. I don't know if we could do the best job. And then the chairman turned to me and he said, can you? And I said, oh yes, we, we'll be happy to take the burden mm -hmm. off their hands. And as I was saying that, 
I was calculating what they didn't do. I was calculating the tens of millions of dollars that were going to be added to Reprise's bottom line because of this, because it was obviously going to be a giant smash. Uh, it was just, it was their due. It was time. And uh, so anyway, I remember going to those live recordings, which were done in, with an audience, by the way. But anyway, it was, it was, you know, it was an invited, it was invited guests. But when they finally did the first show after the album came out, I went to that show. On, I no longer have it, but I had on my, my, answer, my answer machine at the time after that show was Stevie Nicks dedicating a song to me. Wow. And my, not only a song, but it was my favorite of her songs. And that, and that she did that on, on stage in Boston in front of the audience. Of course, you know, it's not like LA where people might know me. It's Boston where no, almost no right. one did what know me. What was it, landslide? Standing in the middle of the audience, like they have a version of the mosh pit. I started screaming, that's me, that's me. Was <laughs> it landslide? Kind of, sorry? Was it landslide? Yes, it was. She dedicated landslide to you. Yes. Wow. Hang on, let me let me just that's and you have that on tape. I I had it on tape, and so it, I certainly didn't throw it away, but I still don't know where it is now. Let me read. Like I said, it one it was on my answer machine. So, but it's, you know, it's it's a big house; it's hard to find things. This is why everybody should go to Down with Tyranny because Howie is working on his memoir. Let me just read you a few sentences. Sandy Perlman and I used to drive into Manhattan from Stony Brook for every exploding plastic, inevitable velvet underground show in 1966 and 67. I take the Long Island Railroad. I think we were first interested in Andy Warhol's movies. But right from the first gig, we became ardent Velvet fans. I would meet artists hanging out there and hire them to come back and play at Stony Brook. Teenage Jackson Brown and 20-year-old Tim Buckley being two of my favorites. Uh, and uh, the lead singer for Soft White Underbelly, the precursor to Blue Oyster Cult, which I was just playing today. Uh Wow. You, you left me out. I got Jackson Brown the gig to be the lead singer of that band. Now, it didn't last very long, but it lasted for a couple of weeks. He was the lead, he was the lead singer of what became the Blue Oyster Cult. Right. And he lived on campus with you? Not with me, but yes, he, was, he, he, you know, he wasn't there all the time. But yes, Stony Brook became his base for a few months. He was like the bell of the ball uh, all over uh, New York City. And he started, a, he had an affair with Nico as well. Right. And uh, but he would come to Stony Brook and, you know, that's where he would stay. He had girlfriends there as well. And uh, and he would play all the time. I mean, he would, you know, chances are that semester, if you were walking around in one of the lobbies, as we call them, the, the, where students gathered at the, in the dorms, you would see Jackson Brown and his guitar playing. Why is Tim Nico, why is Nico so great? $50 to open the door show. Who, 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 who'd you pay $50 to open for the doors? Tim Buckley. Wow. And because I think a lot of people don't know Tim Buckley and because I think he's one of the most talented musicians of our time, I have four um, uh, links to his music on that piece that you're reading. So right. if, if you'll notice 
in the songs and each of the songs is, is a live link. So, because I want people to listen, uh, uh, to listen to Tim's music. A lot of people know, don't, who don't know Tim know his son, Jeff Buckley, who like Tim, uh, tragically died, uh, died at a young age. Right. You brought the doors to Stony Brook. Yes, I, met, I became friends with The Doors, especially with Jim Morrison, uh, before they had an album. Uh, when they were recording, they recorded the album in L.A., but they, they uh, did some overdubs and some mixing in New York. And while they did that, they were doing a, um, uh, they did like a residency at this club called Undine, and uh, under the 59th Street Bridge. And I went every night and, and got to know them. And uh, Morrison was particularly interested because I had a rare drug that he was interested in. And, uh, you know, we would do that drug. So, you know, at one point I asked if they would come play my school and they said yes. And they agreed, they agreed to $400, the doors, 400 bucks, opening band, Tim Buckley, $50. Wow. Students were not interested. The students, you know, obviously there were some students that were interested, but huge numbers of students were not interested. And I had to advertise uh, in the Village Voice so that people would come in from New York City uh, to, to Stony Brook to see the doors. And the students, who, and it was free to students. They didn't have to pay anything. And <laughs> they still weren't. They still weren't interested. Now, now, if you talk to anybody from Stony Brook. Uh, who in those years they would say it was you know the greatest concert they ever saw and you know they were there. Fact of the matter is, of course, most of them weren't there. Before you go, are you going to write about walking Asian into concert? Are you going to write about walking into the kitchen of your house that you grew up in and seeing your mother smoking dope with Jimi Hendrix? Yeah, it, it, that's it, that. It was not. You have a, that story a little bit wrong, but yes, this part about my mother smoking dope with Jimi Hendrix. I'm definitely going to write about that. Uh, in fact, I was um, what is it called? Uh, uh, scanning a picture, not of her and Jimi Hendrix. I unfortunately don't have a picture of that, but scanning a picture of her, which I'll use. But in any case, it wasn't Jimmy. It wasn't the house I. I uh, it was the house I was living in off campus at Stony Brook after the Jimi Hendrix concert. Uh, we had a party. He came. My parents were there, not because they lived there, they, because they went to the concert. My mother wanted. To, my father wasn't that interested, but my mother wanted to see all the concerts. And uh, and then I went to sleep. I woke up in the middle of the night. Uh, I decided to take a look and see if the house was still standing. So I look out the door, and there, at the end of the hallway, so not in the kitchen, but at the end of the hallway, was my mother and Jimi Hendrix passing a joint back and forth, <laughs> which I thought was absolutely great. <laughs> That's perfect. Howie Klein, I love you. I, I just amazing. Everybody needs to go to Down with Tyranny, and I'm so glad uh, Roland finally talked you into writing a book. This is uh, this is great, uh, and parts of it can be read by going to Down with Tyranny and read him every day over at Down with Tyranny. Which candidates should people be donating to? Um, there's a guy who's running who's who's worthwhile uh, here in California uh, named Derek Marshall, and he's running against uh, uh, just a complete Trump uh, ass kisser named Jay Olbernolte. Jay is the um, is the incumbent, and Derek was formerly the um, you know the field organizer for Bernie in Nevada, and uh, and he you know he 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 knows what he's doing, 
in terms of how to how to win in, in a in a tough situation like this, and and where where your opponent has all the money, and he he's doing it by organizing. They're going to they're going to every door. They're not leaving anybody outside. They're doing uh, they're doing lots and lots of voter registration. So it's it's a red district that he feels he can win. So it's Derek Marshall. Very very good idea to um, to give him some money and go to. Uh Blue America to donate. Yes. Thank you, Howie. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you next week. Great. Thank you for that. Thank you. Joining us is Dr. Harriet Fraud. She is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. And she's in New York. In California is David Cobb. And the two of you, we thought we have an hour now where the two of you can talk and I will listen. And if people want to ask you questions, raise your hands uh, halfway through the conversation and maybe we'll we'll take some calls. How are you, David? How are you, Dr. Fraud? You know, I'm mighty fine. Thank you for asking, uh, uh, David. And I'm really excited that Dr. Fraud is uh, here so that we could do an hour you know, I, I will say that that uh, if folks were not able to to join last week, uh, we did uh, a different version of the show where uh, Feldo actually let me basically be the interlocutor or the interviewer, and I talked with Dr. Fraud about uh, a really a powerful uh, uh, broadside, a call, if you will, the manifesto, uh, and a call to radicals that had come out almost a decade ago. Yeah. And so, uh, Feldo, are folks able to, uh, is that up on your site somewhere? Because yes. uh, I really want to encourage folks, if you weren't listening to us then, I thought that conversation was very powerful. Yeah, I agree. Well, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to listen and take it away, David <laughs> Cobb and Dr. Harriet Fraud. Good. Well, thank you. And uh, I've just been informed that I'm too loud. So I know that I uh, I will modulate on my end. It's not a hot mic. It is my enthusiasm. So Dr. Fraud, I would like to actually start with this uh, premise. Howie Klein always has interesting things to say, right? Yes. Uh, and I offer the very loving but constructive critique that all he ever does is talk about electoral politics. And I worry that that is a mistake for trying to build the left to focus exclusively on electoral politics. And I'm going to invite you to react to that, including pushing back on me if you feel like I'm being uh, uh, inaccurate or unkind. Well, I totally agree. Because look, People are, they do participate in electoral politics, particularly when they're combined, as they were in Kansas, with an issue that's actually pressing, the issue of abortion rights. But people intuitively know, like Leonard Cohen's song, everybody knows, you know, on some level, people know that you need billions of dollars to run a major campaign and that they're both beholden to the Democrats and Republicans are beholden to the same corporate donors, and that we need something else. And I think the something else is showing itself 
in terms of class in a way that's very important. It came out today that um, 35% of Americans are two people working full-time who can't, who are always economically strapped between childcare and their bills. They can't get ahead. That's a little more than a third of the country. And one of the things that shows me where it's at and one of where the leadership might come from is the Amazon Labor Union is now organizing all over. It's invited in Albany, in Campbellsville, Kentucky, and um, as well as new warehouses, and that people are beginning to understand that there are two classes in the United States, the employer class and the employee class. And the employee class have got to organize together or they'll get shafted. And it is interesting that in the last month between July and August, strikes have doubled. There are 90,000 rail workers across the country that are considering a strike and will vote Friday and are very interested in having a strike. There are 15,000 nurses in 13 different hospitals in Minneapolis who are all on strike. The Seattle teachers are still out. Condé Nast editorial workers are out. There's a burgeoning strike and um, union organizations at Starbucks and all sorts of places where they never would have organized before, like the Chicago Museum workers, okay? People are understanding. We need each other across lines of sexual preference, race, and whatever else, you know, we need each other to win. And so that I think that's why strikes have doubled between July and August. And this labor movement shows us that that is an important leadership like the Amazon Labor Union. Sorry, David. No, no. Uh, So thank you for that, because one of the things that uh, is happening, and in fact, in the chat, uh, we had an observation from Sharon about the Apple store in Oklahoma, uh, because literally uh, Sharon picked up where I was going, which was take a note that this labor militancy is happening across the country in states that are considered red, purple, and blue, uh, and not just in the urban centers, but literally they're happening everywhere. And to me, one of the things that that I have, uh, like, I I would like to be part of and, and commit myself to being part of restructuring the entire political economy. And I don't think that merely voting is going to accomplish that. I think voting is a powerful tactic, but it's not a strategy in and of itself. And it's certainly not the goal to just get, you know, D's or even Bernie Sanders in office. What we have to do is have clarity on the need to have uh, both power of uh, resistance, but also the power of building alternatives. And what's worth, what, what I, again, found very helpful about the manifesto 
that we described last week was the clarity that y'all really had on we need a, a organized, coherent apparatus. It, in this country, we tend to think of it always as a, quote, political party, but it really need not be a political party. It really it just needs to be a coordinated apparatus that has a shared analytical framework uh, that then could collectivize the power. Because, Dr. Fraud, I'll say this. I believe that those of us who share our vision for a racially just, ecologically sustainable, democratic society, we actually have enough to like impact and control this empire, but we are not sufficiently educated about each other. We are not coordinated. We're not communicating. And frankly, we fall under the spell of electoral politics as if that's where all politics happen. And so this is where I try to navigate that, like, yes, to electoral politics, but not to the exclusion of all the other things that need to happen. Yeah, we need to have a united movement. That's what won in Colombia. That's what won in Chile. That's what recently won in France, which is pretty exceptional. The first uh, bills that Mélenchon initiated as a sort of left union, I, I forget what he calls it, I think it's called left turn, were a 15% raise in the minimum wage and a 10% raise for all civil workers, all workers for the state and the city. That there is, you know, because he did what they did in Colombia and Chile, a unity of the labor movement, which is much more powerful and left in France, but of the labor movement, the ecology movements, the racial justice movement, the feminist movement, and so on. These are the kind of, the indigenous movement was included in Chile and Colombia. But these are the unities that won and that have won revolutionary change in Chile and Colombia. And it became a movement, not just vote for this one, across the board. And I think if you, if we could get local meetings talking about the different things, talking about what would it be if we honored care work, the maintenance of life, because the, the lowest paid, poorest paid people are taking care of bodies and children, daycare workers, home health care workers, because that for, is a degraded sphere in the United States. I'm fond of saying, because I was impressed when I looked it up, that parking lot attendants are paid more than daycare workers because to watch something as valuable as a car, which is a commodity, is more highly regarded than watching a life, a child. That there is a different set of values that affirm life and that decommodify the basic needs for life. And I think most Americans could go for that. That housing, transportation, heat and heat and um, cold control, i.e., air conditioning and heating, healthy food, clean air, clean water, have to be rights and not commodities. I think most people 
would agree to that. And you know, Dr. Fraud, of course, if we if we approach it with common sense language the way you just did, of course, what you're describing is socialism. Uh, and most people, when presented with the concept of socialism, are in favor of it. Uh, right. Before we go forward, I want to honor Joe uh, and encourage others to do the same, uh, because I'm going to be watching the chat, and uh, uh, I want you, Dr. Fraud, to react to this. Joe writes, the narrow scope of power of a union does not function the same as a political party. Therefore, unfortunately, class is not the motivating factor in our politics as it could and should be in our labor movement. So I invite you to react to that, and then I'll react. I'd like to react to that because one of the most impressive things about the Chicago teacher strike, as well as the 15,000 nurses that are on strike, is the Chicago teachers strike demanded things like protection for children whose families are evicted, help against evictions, help against people being put in shelters against their will, and so on that I think the recognition of these wider issues can be embraced by a union as well as groups particularly for that. And I I think that, you know, the nurses are on strike because their posters and their spokespeople say so. The nurses are on strike around patient care because as corporations take over hospitals, they lay off nurses and nurses' aides and other hospital personnel. And so patients don't get care. They can just die, you know, that there is, because profit is being made. The same thing is true with the nursing home workers, that the wider issues can be brought up. And I think that because the labor movement is a very vital place, that could be done around the labor unions, but I don't have the answer. So it could be done wherever. But I think the basic priorities, which the most people would share, can children's lives are more important. And than I think that because the that labor the movement is a vital place of our needs, that could be done has around to be the changed. labor unions. But I don't and have I the answer. I also think we would have to have an so ideological umbrella that says freedom is not individual separation from other humans. Freedom is collective power. Freedom is together. We're social animals and we won't be free alone, ever. You know, I'm so glad you made that point, Dr. Fraud, because ask any uh, ethnobiologist, ask anybody who studies, uh, you know, human societies writ large, and they will tell you the only reason Homo sapiens survived is because of our collectiveness, right? Like, uh, as individuals, we simply any, would not uh, have been able to, to survive. So I think that's, studies, uh, that's a very uh, you know, profound observation. Large, and they will I also think it's important the only reason uh, to Homo recognize that this notion that, that uh, 
our Joe was making about the, right? the union movement uh, is to remember that simply in the, would not have been in to, this to country. Survive. There so was a time uh, that's a very po- profound debate about what is the purpose of the trade union movement. Uh, to recognize uh, there was one broad branch represented by that, the Knights uh, of Labor Joe and the Congress of Industrial the, Organizations, the, who understood that the labor union movement was about justice for everyone, and that. By collectivizing ourselves as workers, we could pit ourselves properly in a class-conscious way against the owning class or the ruling class. Uh, There was another sector of the union movement, frankly, represented by the American Federation of Labor, who said, our job is to represent the interest only of our members who were dues-paying members, uh, and uh, that that uh, that broad distinction was the difference between the let's call it uh, justice unions versus business unionism, and the business unionism basically won out. Uh, and nowadays, uh, most unions exist in order to provide services for their individual members. And so, when they say an injury to one is an injury to all. They mean to all of our dues-paying members. They don't mean to all of society. They don't even mean to all of workers. And I think that this is something that I try to push people when Dr. Fraud and I and people like us who are unapologetic leftists, when we talk about militancy in in the union movement, we're really talking about workers organizing themselves, whether it's the industrial workers of the world whether it's through worker centers, and absolutely, I will applaud when, uh, when you know more traditional unions go on strike. Absolutely, but let's remember that Chris Smalls was actually denied support in his, in his early stages against Amazon by traditional unions, and so I say all of that in order to have clarity. But remember that. Uh, that uh, the the support for unions is actually growing in this country uh, at, at levels that have not been seen since the 1960s. Something profound is happening, and that's without an, a, a a media apparatus to support it. Right? Absolutely. Like, like I tell people all the time when they complain about the the, the liberal media. Uh, like, look, the, the corporate media is just as liberal as the billionaire class who owns it, right? Exactly. So we don't actually have a, a true liberal uh, media apparatus in this yeah. country. And even still, you're seeing a militancy in, amongst organized labor and ordinary workers. You're seeing more and more people come to support the idea of workers. You were seeing a rising militancy amongst young people, especially as it relates to the climate justice movement and for both women's rights uh, and racial justice rights. And the trick for me is to say, how do we support the individual issue activism and help people to understand that real liberation means that we all have to win? And that's, I think, where the coordination comes in. I think we have to understand and convince other people, not only real liberation, they'll never win without all of us. What we have is the majority of people. Otherwise, forget it. 
They can pick us off. They've got the movement. They've got the money that substitutes for a movement. What we have is one another and a mass of people. That's what a union represents. There's one board of directors. There's the mass of workers who are working there. And that, I think, that is the model and that we need one another and then to branch out to the needs of one another, including the whole idea of interdependence as freedom, not isolation and individualism. And also to say that's what mental health is about, connection. And that's what will save us personally and also as a group. We need each other. And that, you know, I think that if we started such a movement, we probably would get the affiliation of places like the ALU. And they're being asked, that's the Amazon Labor Union, they're being asked to help organize in Campbellsville, Kentucky. Marino Valley, California, Albany. I mean, wow, Staten Island, that people are recognizing this is different. This isn't pork chop unionism, AFL, CIO connected to the CIA and throwing out its leftists. This is workerist. And and I think it's really worth pointing out that uh, again, the the that the the AFL-CIO leadership, uh, the ones that have made the deal with the Democratic Party, are also the ones who made, remember, during the Vietnam War, they were in support of the war. Uh, uh, they, refu- they refused to get on board with uh, the, the Green New Deal originally. Uh, I can go down the list, and I think it's because they have made a bad deal uh, with the Democratic Party because they have fallen into this idea of electoral fetishism. Like, absolutely, yes, elections matter and elections have consequences. But the difference between what's happening in the global South, who also engage in elections, but leftists are winning, is because they start at the grassroots. They start at the level of a mass movement organizations doing movement work. And they say elections are going to be part of what we do. Right. not what we do. That's right. It's a tactic, not a goal, the elections, because elections fit into the current system. And I think what really what you need is you need to have people understand we don't stand a chance unless we're united. So we need to unite. And that is more and more of what people, I think, are understanding. Also, we have to look at the structure There's a guy named Frank Annunziato who was an organizer for the teachers union and also for, um, I think it was AFSME. At any rate, he then taught uh, in Rhode Island. But he had a thesis that showed that the structure of the AFL union is exactly the same as a corporate structure. Oh. It's a corporation selling collective bargaining services, also buyers clubs and other services. The people at the top get six-figure salaries and keep electing each other and themselves, and the mass of people are disempowered. And he showed 
how it is exactly the same as a corporate structure. Whereas the Amazon labor union and these new structures are not structured that way at all. And they're democratically structured. And so that it would have to be that we stand for direct participatory democracy and discussion and questioning of everything, not the tired old re-election of the same tired old leadership, but an accountable leadership that we're all involved in. And folks, you're listening to The David Feldman Show. I am your host, our co-host, I should say, David Cobb with Harriet Fraud, the workers who have taken over the airwaves and kicked off the boss, uh, David Feldman, uh, who can only listen now as we take over the show. I love it. It's, fa- it's fantastic. It How do we, <laughs> so so what, yeah. in terms of protecting unions, what is the role the government can play in protecting unions from themselves the same way the government protects corporations from themselves? Well, that's an interesting question. I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Fraud to go first because I'm going to answer it, but I'm going to answer it in a much bigger picture way. So, Dr. Fraud, do you have a reaction? Yeah, I think that there have to be accountability on, there has to be accountability on every level. People have to be evaluated from the bottom as well as from the top. In every job, in every organization, in every situation. And that prevents that kind of thing. We have a very top-down structure throughout our country, including in our unions, including in our political parties. And one of the things that was originally part of the Chinese revolution since dropped was that everyone is accountable, that no one at any job is evaluated only from the person in the station above, but the people from below, and that we would have to institute that. And that's very different from the kind of union structure you have now, where it's a major coup to replace somebody, and it's a corporate structure. And I completely agree, and... Uh, Feldo, what I would say is really what it would require is an understanding of what the Taft-Hartley Act actually did uh, and a return to Smoot-Hawley, which uh, had existed before. Because remember that the the Taft-Hartley so-called Labor Management Relations Act uh, uh, is described by many labor historians as the slave labor bill. Because what it did was prioritize and protect uh, the businesses to ensure that commerce continued. So it literally privileged management and business over the workers themselves. So if we were really going to be serious, as you just asked, well, what could we do to protect organized labor and police organized labor? It would mean that we would have to revamp the entire, uh, uh, let's call it the theory of labor uh, and and how the legal system works. Look, remember, I'm a lawyer, right? Or And I, I don't practice law anymore, but I'm a lawyer. Uh, and it's the same thing when you start, talk about corporate power, for example. You know, uh, corporations, remember, a corporation is a legal fiction. It doesn't exist in the real world. 
uh, it has it, it's a legal fiction because it's created in order to do certain things, right? And un- the entire legal framework has been created now uh, to facilitate corporations amassing great wealth, power, and decision-making authority. This, that, and labor unions are simply collective uh, organizations of people, right, of workers. Now, a union is different than a corporation because a union really is comprised of workers. Corporations are actually a legal fiction that has shareholders. It Yes, there are workers, but it's a much more complex entity, right? Uh, but the, the reason that the corporation has been created is to shield liability. And by that, we mean legal responsibility. Like, and uh, Feldo, one of these days, whenever we're on, uh, I'll do a, a Corporations 101 uh, and describe to you what it was. In fact, I'll do it right now. Let me tell you in the United States of America that the American Revolution was not merely a rejection of monarchy as a form of rule. It was that. It was also a people's uprising against corporations, because remember that the first entities, European entities, the English European entities, was the Massachusetts Bay Trading Company, the Virginia Company, the Providence and Rhode Island Plantation. Uh, Georgia was a penal corporation, like literally Uh, Every one of the 13 colonies were corporate forms. The only one that was not a very clear uh, commercial enterprise was the state of Pennsylvania, which was a land grant to William Penn. Uh, But even still, it was a legal entity. And, And those other 12 were all businesses literally designed, chartered by the king in order to extract resources uh, from this place and to return a profit to the shareholders of the East India Company and of these different corporations. And remember, as colonists first came here, uh, the the uh, when the uh, when the American Revolution uh, was successful, again, like we can talk about the the horrors of the genocidal uh, the effort at genocide against the indigenous people, the enslavement of Africans. But I'm saying. Understand this, after the American Revolution, uh, the very first thing that the revolutionaries did was to greatly restrict what a corporation could do and how you created one. Let me now tell you what it took to create uh, the special privilege of limited liability for the first 75 years of the history of the United States of America. Number one, it was a understood to be a privilege, not a right. So you had to go to the state legislature and request that the legislature vote to create a corporate entity, right? Because again, you're getting a great privilege. You're limiting the legal liability uh, and creating a new entity under law. So when you made that application, number one, you had to prove that you were going to serve the public interest. I want to say that again. You had to prove as a, that your corporation and your business would serve the public interest. Secondly, you had to uh, agree that your corporate form would only last three, five, or 10 years, at which point it automatically dissolved 
and you had to reapply all over again. Third, the, 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 to create it took an, a, uh, it was the same thing as passing a law. Both branches, the assembly or our house and the state Senate had to agree and then the governor had to sign it. So it was a big political decision to be allowed to create a corporation. So part of what I'm trying to underscore to people is we don't know our own history in this country uh, about what it would look like when we, the people, actually took seriously the idea of exercising political power. And also, we wouldn't necessarily approve of the kind of corporations we have. We would approve of cooperatives. Look, it makes a huge difference. It even has made a difference that Biden's labor secretary, Walsh, is there instead of Trump's, because when things go up there, up to the National Labor Relations Board, people have a chance. The Amazon labor union wouldn't have succeeded without that chance. And so that a lot depends on creating organizations that are not already bought off and stacked. And you would have to have whatever form of government. Money could not be part of it. You could not allow some people to buy the affiliation and the votes of anybody else. That would be out. And of course, you know, even in France, Sarkozy, who ran for president, is up for jail now because he took, you know, whole releases or what attache cases full of euros from the head of L'Oreal. And one of the Germans, I think, Cole, I'm not sure, he was eliminated from any running ever because he took private money. Now, do they cheat? Of course, but if they're caught, they go to jail and they're completely discredited. You can't really allow, whatever we do, money cannot, private money cannot influence public anything. And in fact, now let's go, so that's what I just described, this idea of corporations being able to claim to be persons with constitutional rights right. means that corporate lawyers can go in, even when we work our butts off at elections or mass movement work and, and pass laws to try to restrict their, their worst abuses and harms, corporate lawyers can go into court and argue that that law violated a corporation's First Amendment right or Fifth Amendment right or Fourth yeah. Amendment right. They claim that they have the rights of human beings, which is patently absurd. It so is. corporate constitutional rights is one of the profound problems that are preventing us from having a functioning democratic republic. The second related uh, concept that Dr. Fraud just described was the equally odious, also court-created and crazy idea that the expenditure of money is somehow the functional equivalent of free speech. Spending money is not speech. Now, the Supreme Court has recently said it was, but here's the thing, y'all. Up before uh, Buckley versus Vallejo, uh, for the first 125 years of this country, it was understood that... Uh, uh, that that the state government and, and we, the people, had the right to restrict money in elections. Did you know in most states, 
that it was a crime to use corporate money to even try to influence an election. In fact, in the state of Wisconsin, it was a felony punishable by up to 10 years in state prison to even use money, uh, corporate money, to try to influence an election in any way. So, yeah. And look where he, where we've come. We have to re, we have to tell people we need to restructure things. It's all structured against us on the basis of money and on the basis of the reproduction of commodities. And it's not the right to life. It's the right to money. And we have to stop that immediately. And, and I got to say, for those yeah. of you who are, who are not following the chat, I, I just have to lift, lift up Seth Evans, uh, who made the observation yeah, it's almost like the, quote, originalist actually are just full of shit, making things up as they go. And I got to say, uh, Seth, I agree with you entirely. The problem is that those folks who claim to be concerned about the original intent of the founders are actually liars. Uh, they don't mean it. Uh, they're, they're using a made-up thing. Look, let me, here's a pop quiz. What Who said this? Never is it the case that the, the, the owning class gather, even for mirth and merriment, but that the topic of conversation becomes a conspiracy against the working class. Most of you are probably thinking, oh, I know, that's Karl Marx, right? It's not Karl Marx. Dr. Fraud, do you know who said that? No, I don't. Adam Smith. Really? Adam Smith. The folks that all these right wingers love to, uh, to to quote time and time again, literally said that uh, that had an understanding. Now, I don't agree with uh, the wealth of nations, but what I'm saying is, and again, I'm not trying to break my arm, patting myself on the back, but I've I, I study history, I read, I'm trying to understand, and what I recognize is that we have to create institutions and structures that actually work for us, we the people. And deeper still, we've got to recognize that we all descend from indigenous peoples who recognize what Dr. Fraud is constantly trying to bring us back to, which is love and care and nurturing. That societies actually get created in order to nurture and care for each other. And the, the, if we were really serious, what we would say is we need not a rights-based approach, but we need to recognize reciprocal relationships. Uh, and that it's not just the collective of your family or your even your like your smaller community, but that we're all connected together yes. and that we're all dependent. And the indigenous view of the forest is actually a relationship and you steward yeah. that relationship uh, and that you are, you know, I often say, Dr. Fraud, if we were doing it right, trees would have rights, but they wouldn't have human rights. They would have tree rights, have tree rights. just like beavers would have beaver rights. Right. Like, but really, it wouldn't even be just about rights. It would be about right. understanding what is our proper relationship with one another. Exactly. Also, this whole, we really ought to know that that whole originalist stuff is shit. If it were original, we could sell Clarence Thomas, you know, 
because originally they had slaves and Coney Barrett couldn't even vote, no less be a judge. So if we're going to go back to the original thing, they'd be shafted. Correct. It's just stupid. It they is stupid. And, and, and again, uh, they, they remember that, you know, the like what what we're actually I think what I am trying to do is to say, I have a vision for the world that I want to live in. And that world is peaceful. It's just. It's democratic. It's ecologically sustainable. Uh, and it is a place where people are able to offer their gifts uh, and they are applauded when they offer them. It is a socialist world. And so I don't think that we can win that world unless we have clarity that that's the world that we're fighting for. And that's Dr. Right. Fraud, I say it all the time. I'm not fighting to save this dying, decaying system. I'm fighting to create a new system. That's right. Out of the ashes of the old. And the old is busy destroying itself. Really, we are living through the fall of the American empire. And as the Soviet Union fell out of its own corruption as the first, you know, one of the two victorious empires after World War II, we're the second, and we too are disintegrating out of our own corruption. And so we have a chance to build something else. And part of that is seen in the agitation of people. Now, it's also seen in the violence of people. People are murdering one another and acting out and going crazy because it's all falling apart and we have something to hold us together. It's true. And I'm so glad, Dr. Fraud, you actually uh, talked about prior empires because um, if I had to, if I were forced to say, take and condense like everything that I've studied and learned about like uh, human history and condense it down to three words, I think I could do it. And here are those three words. All empires fall. That's right. All empires fall. Everyone does. And they all fall more, more or less. And this is a hat tip to Yale uh, historian Paul Kennedy in the rise and fall of the great powers who basically said empires fall because of imperial overreach, where the empire extends itself beyond its military and economic capacity, beyond its supply and trade routes. All empires have always fallen. This one will too. But what's frightening is every other time that a mass empire fell, it took hundreds of years usually, and the survivors of that fall would basically just drift back into the savanna or the mountains or the forests or the deserts, whatever, when the capital ultimately imploded on itself because of overreach. But this time we are witnessing for the first time in human history, a global empire. Like there's no place to go, Dr. Fraud. So either when this empire falls, it's going to take us into some sort of you know, dystopian Mad Max. Yeah, planetary collapse. Planetary collapse, an ecological collapse. Or, or we can rebuild from the bottom up like, like cracks in the sidewalk, like flowers and dandelions that are growing up. Uh, we can rebuild society even as the current one is crumbling and imploding. 
and I say this with sincerity and clarity, that what is so exciting to me is that I look around and I see so many examples of folks trying to build new societies, right? But they're doing it in small ways in their own little communities. And you critique this in the manifesto. Yes. But my, my, my pushback is to say, what if we begin to connect those small things and help them to, to be coordinated like a rhizome, uh, if you will, like a mycelium, right? That is actually going to, and if we could grow from the bottom up fast enough, we can literally, like, we, we could create a new society within the shell of the old. And that's why I am both a Marxist and an anarcho-communist who believes that it's possible that uh, what we need to do is meet people's concrete material needs uh, on the ground where we live, work, play, and pray. We need to be connecting with other people who are doing that. We need to engage in electoral politics without becoming electro-fetishists. Uh, we have to recognize where our power is. And our, our biggest power is at the, at the local community level. Yeah, well, we have to show people that together we can meet each other's needs. Not that we'll meet their needs or anybody else will meet their needs, but together we'll meet each other's needs. And that together is the most important thing, that we need each other, that interdependence is strength, not weakness. And that is a real capitalist distortion. Oh, it's so true. And, you know, Dr. Frog, one of the things that, that I have uh, 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 sort of bandied about in my imagination uh, is uh, to, to call collectively for the writing of a declaration of interdependence. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and just uh, to reframe the entire social, political, and economic experience uh, and, and embrace the fact that we do, not only do we need each other, uh, but we deserve each other. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that, that our connections are actually what make us human uh, and that it's a beautiful thing. Uh, and again, I don't think that that's, uh, I don't think that's Pollyannish. I actually think that that's reality. No, and I think that in that way, a social way of doing that would be to use the 12 step model, but not, uh, but to not emphasize any more higher power than the higher power of us working together and have other steps on what are the social what are the social conditions of existence of our addiction to power, to isolation, as well as to every other substance? Because that model, the origin of the AA was where Bill, the original, said to his doctor, connect me with another smart drunk because only together can we get healthy. Well, Dr. That's- Fraud, uh, I, this doesn't come up very often in this conversation uh, or, or on the program, uh, uh, but I have no uh, qualms about acknowledging I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've got 25 years uh, of sobriety. Uh, and this idea of a political, cultural uh, 12-step program 
where we recognize that the higher power is us collectively, I think has a lot of potential. It also, um, like almost anything else, the devil would be in the details, right? Uh, because what we don't want to do is, is get into some sort of t- totalitarianism of the of the we. But I absolutely think that there is something very powerful about the idea of that the, the uh, that we together uh, need each other. I also, it's the structure that you, first of all, it's a communist structure. Nobody gets paid. Everybody contributes, and once you are senior, you help others. That there is, I think it would have to be more than 12 steps because you need to look at the social conditions of the problem, not just the problem as if it was just you. It's not, even if you participate. And we'd need a fearless moral inventory of our own history, both personal and also political. I worked it out in a paper I wrote called 12 Steps to a Revolution because that is the most popular program Far none, political or anything. Every little town across this country has an AA, no matter how small. And by the way, uh, and I know, uh, having gone to AA meetings all, all across the country, organized and run by unpaid volunteers. Exactly, exactly. And it, it, it is a model of a communist organization. Now they're not showing that off. They want the free church and all the rest. And it doesn't have an economic and social component. In fact, they call that a cop-out on your individual responsibility, with which, of course, we totally disagree. But I think the model, which is, has something to do also with women's liberation, what created our movement, which is people talking about ourselves and what we face. And so I think part of a left turn in this country would be a structure like AA, where we talk about our mutual dependence, how we need each other to get strong as a nation, as a people, as a neighborhood, and create those connections. Because there is a kind of connectivity, a kind of assumption of humanity that people have when they're in those programs. You know, if you go into a, a drugs, you know, a cafe or something, and you're reading what looks like the um, the little red book or the black book of AA. People come over and are sweet to you because they oh, assume fellowship. It, no, it, and it's real. And I'll tell you, I also uh, so yes to all of this, and I want to lift up uh, because I've heard you talk uh, about uh, that your experience in consciousness raising, and I want to lift up my mama who was not a typical like leftist, but she, I can tell you uh, that she said, you know, all I knew was that when I read the feminine mystique by Betty Friedan, it spoke to me. And literally I talked to your aunt uh, and, you know, like, and the next thing you knew, she was in something and she had never done any political organizing. She didn't come out of any of that background. Right. But she said, the next thing I knew I was in these conversations with, with uh, you know, mostly women. There was the occasional man, but mostly women who were just having that conversation and having what I now know as an organizer is considered 
unsanctioned conversation, right? Having discussions that you're not supposed to have about power and about how the system operates. So imagine for a moment that uh, what Dr. Fraud is discussing has the the strength and power of uh, the, the political, but includes the consciousness raising uh, that uh, that erupted in this country uh, that literally shifted the culture of how we think about gender uh, and men, women's roles. Like this to me is the, the, the path forward, right? If we can figure out how to do those things together and then add the, the worker-owned cooperative, the community land trust, uh, the, the, the food co-op, I mean, again, if we take the culture shifting phenomenon that Dr. Fraud has just laid out and we add meeting people's concrete material needs uh, and we show, not tell, but show, oh, together we can actually meet our needs uh, and that not only are we meeting our needs, but there's enough to go around and that we are creating like fun uh, we're we're having more play, you know, uh, and so the idea of work doesn't become the drudgery of a job, but becomes meaningful, productive activity. And you know what, Feldo? It means that quick wits and humorous people like yourself, your work is supposed to be to entertain. Like, right. you know, there's a place that's work. There's and to teach through humor. Yeah. It's, 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 it's something that should be part of the conversation and this is the thing I'm the right wing yeah. lies to us right yes I, I said we got feldo back on because we gave him a compliment right you see he put, he put the phone <laughs> down <laughs> say more say more go on finish that thought <laughs> i just i think it's really important right that the right wing lies to us and they tell us you know that people are lazy and they don't want to work i mean that's a lie People want to work. If by work you understand meaningful, productive human activity that is making the world a better place and that will be rewarded with the respect and admiration of others. People want that. And they want to connect with other people. You can see that if you go to Mondragon, that city of cooperatives, that they they are working together and they feel empowered through their work together and also within the 12-step program. I'll, um, you know, it's, it's part of the conditions of existence of your problem. If you come with a problem that you're isolated, that you're poor, that you're dissatisfied as an American, so well, the conditions of existence of your dissatisfaction have a lot to do with the way the politics and the economics of this society are organized, and they have to be organized. To be sure, and I, I want to lift up John Hayes, who writes into the chat, it's only a lie if the job is something I'd actually want to do, which is not usually the case, to which I would say, exactly. Capitalism does not ask that question of you. The only thing is, can a capitalist make money doing it? Like, imagine for a moment now a true Green New Deal. The Green Party's proposed Green New Deal that started with, uh, first of all, it wasn't just about uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Like, that was part of it. But we also t called for a dismantling of the U.S. empire and the military-industrial complex and a Green New Deal 
jobs program that started at the local level by saying, in the community, the community decides what needs to be done. So instead of an unemployment office, you have an employment office where Dr. Fraud, you show up and you say, I'm out of work. And And my job at the employment office is to say, all right, Dr. Fraud, let us figure out what you're good at and what you like to do. I'm not guaranteeing you that you get to do whatever you want, but my job is to facilitate and to say, the community has already decided, here are the things that need to be done. So I'm going to interview you. We're going to go through a diagnostic and we're going to figure out both what you like to do and what you're good at. And then we're going to compare it to what the community needs. And we're going to find, to the best of our ability, a Venn diagram where all three of those things happen. That's what would happen in a true socialist uh, economy from the bottom up, where the, the, the needs of the community are actually saying what needs to be done, and we were helping democratically to facilitate the worker. And also what you would be doing is changing the whole idea of work. The idea of work in the United States is that there's no point in employing you unless the guy makes more money off of you than he gives you. You're getting ripped off. That's not a nice feeling to get ripped off every day. Mm-hmm. And so that a lot of people don't want to go to work to make someone else's someone else rich who bosses them around. That's pretty obvious. And so that the idea is you would work together and decide together and that nobody's ripping you off. Again, like at the end of the day, capitalism is the problem and we're not going to get to the world that we want under a political economy where private individuals own the means of production and get to make the decisions about how our society is organized. So, Feldo, uh, we're coming to the end of our hour. We also Uh, have to say and own the means of information. I mean, really, Murdoch owns the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post. They're all privately owned. Bezos owns the Washington Post and so on. It to be clear, the only reason we're having this conversation is because we're using the Internet uh, to be able to have the conversation, exactly. which is one of the reasons why I fight so hard for net neutrality. Although we're going to turn the, the, uh, the, this program back over to you. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to go deep together for a full hour. It's, uh, that it's was fantastic. Very More and often. also, your contribution is important. You know, I just want to say that I... My parents had a friend who was Hungarian who told me that he knew that Hungary would switch because of the jokes, <laughs> because he was at a public gathering. And one of the big jokes there was this Russian is saying, we have given you, Mother Russia has given you freedom. And Father Russia has done this and this. And then he says, and Youth, the youth, what do you want? And they said, we want to be orphans, right? (laughs) That he said, he recounted all these jokes that showed that people had changed. Because humor, with its mockery, captures revolutionary change. Which is why, to me, it's so important. Like, I don't believe in cancel culture at all, but I do agree with the concept of don't punch down, right? Like, like to me, jokes that are making fun of people 
who are already suffering or mm-hmm. already, you know, beneath, like by nature, that's just bullying, right? Yeah. Like my mama taught me better than that. So I'm not going to go and cancel people who do it, but I'm not going to laugh at their jokes because that no. shit ain't funny. No. But the problem is punching down is funnier. <laughs> <laughs> not always. Not That's always. What it is. It, it's funnier to uh, be cruel and punch down at the weak. That doesn't make it right. And people shouldn't do well, it. But in terms of just. I'll tell you this, though. You know, Feldo, I know, I've heard you make that quip before. But you know what, my friend? I actually went through whenever, like, I don't remember when it was. When I first, like, came up, stumbled onto this program. Actually, Minsky brought me on, I remember. Right? right. And I was like, this guy's funny. Like, uh and I went back, I saw you on the Letterman show. I, I I actually went back and saw some of your stuff. You know what, Feldo? You didn't punch down. You talk about it's funnier, but you didn't do it. Trust me, if if you saw me punching down, you'd be laughing a lot harder. <laughs> it's just- I don't think so. I think that part of the laughter is the surprise of learning something and learning something important. Yes. You know, and the kind of jokes, the jokes of my era when, you know, pre-women's liberation, the woman, the man's joke was the handy little thing. There's a handy little thing called a wife. You screw it on the bed, it does all the housework, right? And the women's joke was men are like linoleum. You lay them right once, you could walk on them for 20 years, right? (laughs) Those don't punch down, but they reveal a social situation. In a way that's that, that, that both punches, funny, by that, the way. That, that, that punches there, down, actually. Literally. Not really. It reveal its point is revealing a social situation. Oh. Okay. I gotta jump. I am so sorry. Uh, I just realized Fantastic. Uh, I had I gotta go. Bye. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye And and Dr. Harrod Fraud, who do you host? It's not just I, in your head and capitalism hits with, home with. I do Capitalism Hits Home by myself. And it's not just in your head with Liam Tate and Ikoi Hiro. Fantastic. And how do people contact you? hfraud at gmail.com. And fraud is F-R-A-A-D. Or on my website, harrietfraud.com. Fantastic. H-A-R-I-E-1-T-F-R-A-A-D.com. Thank you. I'll see you next Monday, I hope. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Great job. Thank you. Joining us in Kingston, Ontario, is the chairman of the religion department department over Queen's University, Professor Adnan Hussein. He also hosts the Mudgeless podcast, as well as Guerrilla History. Very quickly, who's on the Mudgeless podcast this week? Uh, Well, um, the uh, episode just came out. on Islam and anarchism. So that's uh, that came out uh, just on the weekend. So that's still a pretty new episode, but we've got a few others coming up. Uh, and who and who is that? That's with your weeks. PhD student, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Muhammad Abdu. And um, he, he wrote this book, Islam and Anarchism. It's a long time research that he's been doing. I've had many occasions to talk with him over the course of its development, but it was great to have a formal discussion with him uh, about what he's trying to do in this book um, now that it's been published. And so I encourage people, uh, you know, who might be interested to go check out The Mudgeless, M-A-J, 
L-I-S. Um, bring them on. If you have time, bring them here. Okay. Wow. I mean, uh, that's that's great. Uh, I always like bringing guests on here. Yeah. So. Okay. Sounds sounds like fun. And um, and, and, and go- on, on Guerrilla History, uh, we just had over the weekend um, a Twitter space discussion with seven activists. Um, Henry is the one really who put it together. Uh, but he and I engaged in discussion about with these activists really was soliciting their views on how political education and historical knowledge is crucial for their activism and what role they think it plays, um, which is what, you know, guerrilla history tries to do. So it was right. a very interesting conversation. And um, you can probably find that still on Twitter spaces. Uh, if you go to guerrilla history pod or my uh, Twitter, you can find it, but it'll also come out on Guerrilla History in, uh, you know, at least two parts. It was like a long conversation, two hours or so. Great. It was great. You're also teaching a class on the Crusades, and I, it's a tough subject to learn. Where do you start? I've, I've taken that a couple of books from the library. Oh, okay. great. Yeah. And it's, uh, and I kind of parroted early on what you said about Israel after talking to you on Thursday, it really, you can't help after, after reading a little bit about it, hearing what you said on Thursday's show and thinking about the Crusades, history, it's the same story over and over again, saving the Holy Land for, for uh, how do you pronounce it, Christendom? Yes, for Christendom. Yes, yes. And um, uh, that it, it hasn't stopped. And I just wish the Israelis, the Jews, the ultra-Orthodox conservative Jews would study history and realize that these Christian evangelicals are not your friends. Exactly. I mean... You know, in some ways, actually, uh, of course, there are many different uh, strands and streams of political, social, religious currents that come together to form Jewish nationalism in the form of Zionism in the late 19th century. But, you know, the first Zionist Congress that was actually held um, was Christians interested in colonizing Palestine in the 19th century and encouraging Jewish immigration, how they might be able to achieve the ingathering of the Jews by sponsoring now uh, sponsoring, you know, a Jewish homeland and encouraging immigration and also solve as a result the Jewish question, which, you know, let's face it, during Europe, during this time, Jews were considered a political problem because were they national citizens? If you're constructing nationalism around this kind of ethno, religious, linguistic uh, identity, uh, where do you fit two groups of people in Europe? The Roma peoples, who were somewhat semi-nomadic, they might have had territorial areas, that, but they didn't, they weren't a peasantry that were rooted in the land. And then Jews, who you know, had their own religious tradition, uh, spoke sometimes their own dialect of the dominant language or, you know, um, and of course had their own literary and religious language in uh, Hebrew, 
um, but couldn't or they were seen not to be possible to integrate them or assimilate them except through conversion. Right. And so even in secular in secular nationalist terms, um, what was their identity? You know, uh, they were presented as non-national subjects of these polities. And when you're talking about universal uh, citizenship based on nationalist identities, Europe had a real problem with whether or not Jews could be considered, uh, you know, citizens like everybody else. And that's why you had the Dreyfus Affair, where in France there was this anti-Semitic kind of hysteria uh, whipped up around this, you know, figure who was a colonel, I think, in the army or a captain in the army. And, um, you know, it wasn't even Germany that was the most anti-Semitic place in Europe during this time. I mean, you could make the case for many other countries like France or, of course, you know, in the societies which were a little bit different, where you did have a large Jewish peasantry in Eastern Europe, Ukraine, these these sorts of places. So this kind of um, crusader Christian nationalism has its roots deep in history, and it continues over time. And that's why when you were talking earlier today in your opening monologue about religious law and, you know, uh, uh, Jewish Jewish law and the whole abortion question in this case, very interesting case with parties of other religions, uh, uh, but principally, um, you know, uh, maintaining that under Jewish law, uh, this is a vi- this would be a violation of rights under Jewish law to practice, and it's the imposition of an interpretation of Christian uh, ethics or ideas into public law. And of course, you were warning about that and about the consequences of that. But you said, well, they make a big deal about Sharia law, and they whip up hysteria and fear about that. You know, what about, you know, you know, Jewish law? And I kept thinking, David, do not, you know, ask for this, you know, for consistency. They will get there. Don't you worry oh, I, I about did, it. Well, you first know? of all, yeah. it, it was prompted by, and I think I said uh, that you we had talked about what Sharia law meant. Yeah. So I, I hope I gave you credit. Uh, it, oh, yeah, sure. And I then it triggered it in my there. mind, it triggered in my mind well, there's Jewish law that, uh, that, and I thought, well, why aren't they? It, it, it why? just hasn't occurred to them. But now that this case is going to be presented in terms of Jewish religious rights having to be defended and the contradiction between Jewish religious rights under their religious law to practice their religion and this unstated, because they will claim that, well, it's, you know, it's not Christian you know, it's not the Christian basis, but of course, that's just a fig leaf, you know, hiding uh, evangelical Christian and Catholic doctrines about, you know, the beginning of life. Um, I think you will start to see more overt than we have already seen. We've already seen a lot more overt, uh, you know, anti-Semitism. I mean, we had right. an attack that killed worshipers in Pittsburgh at the Tree of Life synagogue. right. right. We talked a little bit about that. In that case, I think there was anti-Semitism and it was heightened by the refugee crisis and the idea that the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, HIA, something founded in the aftermath of World War II to help, uh, you know, those escaping the Holocaust or who were freed from the camps to be, you know, resettled elsewhere, uh, has continued its work of 
trying to help refugees globally with the upsurge in the refugee population, such a crisis up to 60, maybe even more, 60 million more now, probably um, in 2014 and so on, that they were involved with resettlement um, activities of bringing Syrian refugees. And of course, Trump during you know, his campaign and subsequently uh, created a panic around the idea that there was an invasion. There's this caravan and, you know, right. it's not just la- la- Latin Americans fleeing, you know, war-torn and economic, uh, uh, war-torn societies and economic deprivation all caused principally by U.S. policy and intervention there. It was also that, oh, this is uh, a vehicle for Syrian refugees radical Islamists to come in and infiltrate our society. So it was this idea of the Jew as the internal uh, fifth column connected with the terrible kind of Muslims on the outside and bringing the two together in their imagination was a violent and toxic mix. In this case, I think you will start to see that there will be even more overt complaint about uh, you know, we've seen it already with all, all of these talks of about, you know, uh, imported originally from Hungary about, um, you know, George Soros and, and so on, which is thinly veiled. You know, uh, you've talked about it. I think we're going to start seeing a lot more explicit anti-Semitism coming from uh, Christian identity movements and the idea that this is a Christian nation that is being undermined in its laws and in its ethics and values by these multi-religious dissident minority groups. I think now that you have that case, if it's on that basis, I I mean, I would have said this is a little bit of a dangerous way to go about it. I would much prefer put it on, you know, the more universal basis confront it you know uh i think it's a winning issue we saw that in kansas i don't think you need this kind of legal this will feed the victimization persecution complex that oh powerful forces of minorities are undermining us christians good christians being able to save you know children's and uh, children and save lives i mean i think this could be a very uh this could have a, a negative turn I, mean, I, I hope re- it doesn't, but I, yeah. this is what I see. Do you do you mind if we talk about this for a little while? Because, oh, sure. Yeah. This, so, I I agree with you, and I was fascinated. It started in Florida. There was a reform temple that decided that they were going to sue the state of Florida over uh, the violation of their religious freedoms. And mm-hmm. I thought my first instinct was go for it. Like now is the time for the Jewish community to challenge these uh, these violent, vile uh, usurpers of Christianity who are an embarrassment to Christianity and and uh, go for it. And then when I saw Hoosier Jews for choice in Indiana, <laughs> which is like, right. you know, I'm in Manhattan. So, yeah. you know. You're even, in safe, safe territory. Yes. Even the anti-Semites here are Jewish. I mean, it's it's pretty safe. <laughs> so yeah. and I thought, well, what are they thinking? Like, mm-hmm. what are they? Mm-hmm. They're thinking, all right, it, let's this is what I think they're thinking. I'd be curious 
to know what you think they're thinking. I think the Hoosier Jews for Choice are saying, let's have this now Mm -hmm. before it's too late. Let's get it out in the open and fight this now uh, for everybody, for women, for other religions, before it's too late. And to remind the 20% of American Jews who... Uh, conveniently look the other way when it comes to who the Republican Party really is. What, so you're you, you're thinking you were saying uh, you're they're asking for a fight and they're going to get it. Uh, well, I think I mean I think it's very courageous. It's solidaristic, and of course, you know, it's incumbent upon other progressive religious groups, denominations, both within the. Christian, you know, community of 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 uh, denominations and others, uh, Hindus, Muslims, uh, and so on, uh, to uh, join this effort and uh, fight for religious freedom. Uh, but I think it is going to. Uh, that's the way the dialectic here is going to work. It seems to me. I mean, it is going to uh, stimulate and provoke on the basis of religious identity, because that's how it's being framed. And of course, that is what was fundamental. It's not like the Jewish community has invented that this is coming out of religious doctrine. Obviously, that's already there, but that's the majoritarian view. They can hide behind this as public policies, this is what we believe, etc. Because just like Sunday is a holiday, just like, you know, Christmas is a holiday, a Good Friday is a holiday, even though this is a secular country, because you can have secular Christian culture embedded in all of these institutions and hide behind that, even though this is a very radical theological position that's being taken. So what it's going to require, if it's not to turn into something that engenders, I think, re religious hostility, is that you're going to have to have progressive Christians move very quickly to support and show solidarity and say that Christianity is a contested you know, terrain. It's not a monolith. There are differences. There are people of good faith who have lots of different views. I myself would much rather anchor this sort of discussion on, you know, public policy right. grounds, rights, um, and, um, you know, just put it in terms of, uh, of, of women's, you know, uh, you know, gender, gender rights. Um, it seems a more universal basis. But if this is going to go forward, it's going to require solidarity right away because I right. think it is going to solicit and provoke yeah. provoke that. Because what I was saying is that I think fundamentally this Christian nationalism, ha you know, has roots of anti-Semitism, you know, in it. Um, they'll be in favor of Zionism. Let's send them all somewhere right. else. And maybe right. it even fits into a theological and apocalyptic scenario. But the main point is, is that they will want to purify this society of at least the political influences. They may tolerate, they always tolerated, even in the early Middle Ages, they tolerated Jews in Christian society because they were supposed to have a particular and unique place that Augustine of Hippo, very famous church father, you know, rationalized as the position of Jews in Christian society is that they could be there, they shouldn't be harmed, but they should be subordinate and subservient and obviously not politically significant and influential in the main decision-making, in the main kind of 
corridors of power. And that is, I think, how these people will view it. So they're already fabricating the idea. You see it with, um, you know, Tucker Carlson and others, very thinly veiled sense that it is liberal, communistic, socialistic Jews in charge of corporations and powerful institutions and Hollywood, our public, our media, our culture has all been taken away and is in the control in the hands of some minority group, whether they're explicit about it being a religious minority. Um, they make this identification and association between you know, what they call, uh, what is it? The, 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 um, cultural Marxism, you know, this right. other invented crazy sort of concept they have. All of the people they cite into it, uh, you know, as, as, uh, forerunners of it are Jewish intellectuals, you know, basically. And so this is the kind of set of associations that they have. That's already there. And I think we'll see that it'll become more and more apparent, unfortunately. Right. It'll be interesting to see when Tucker Carlson finally takes the gloves off and just says what he's thinking about the Jews. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I see us going closer and closer to uh, a lot of, you know, what it's shown me is that, well, there's two ways to look at it. It was always there and it was subterranean. Uh, but now conditions uh, are such that you can recruit more people to it. You can talk about these ideas openly that were anathema and suppressed earlier on in polite society and public discourse. So one could say it's just a uh, survival and now it's making itself apparent. The other way to think of it is, is that there are recurring kinds of patterns and structures where this has been created in our cultural discourse, it may be suppressed, it may no longer be what most people are thinking, but when you have circumstances um, that undermine the efficacy of whatever had been put in place, which is a sort of liberal or multicultural, you know, neoliberal discourse, when that starts fraying, there are new conditions that stimulate and people have this as a resource and a reservoir culturally to pull it out to use it to make sense, uh, to organize around, to give meaning to the fragmentation that they're uh, experiencing in the dissolution of the structures that held sway for the last 30 or 40 years. So I don't know which it is. I mean, is it that it just is a survival and now it can rear its ugly face and people were thinking this stuff all the time? Or is it that there are recurring kinds of moments that revive this in new ways and make it relevant uh, and that nothing in our culture is completely gone because it's available in, in our past to resuscitate it, to revive it, to reappropriate, renew it, to change it, to fit the new circumstances, because it won't be exactly the same. They'll have some other things to update right. it. It's Soros now rather than the, you know, the, um, uh, the, uh, who are, I'm forgetting the Jewish bankers of, of the 19th oh, the century. Rothschilds. Yes, the Rothschilds, right? So there will be updates to it. It'll be relevant to this time, but its structures are there and available to be redeployed. Uh, that's right. something I, have to, I would like to think a little bit more about. Yeah. But my, that's sort of academic. We're facing it. It's, it's happening. My mother, who lived through the Depression, World War II, and my childbirth, 
said that this stuff is never going to go away. But Trump tapped into it and gave permission. So mm -hmm. people felt free to take their gloves off, you know, in parking lots and just say things that they were thinking. How much of this can be traced to the leadership in this country that that takes the that is stopped with the dog whistles and, and is pretty much saying what people have been thinking uh, for centuries? And isn't there some value to a, a the governing class keeping a lid on making sure people don't say these things uh, out loud? Isn't there some value to that kind of dishonesty, to pretending you're not thinking this? Well, see, this is why I'm, I'm of two minds about whether as many people who are expressing this or are feeling kind of receptive as audiences to uh, public articulations in ways that we hadn't seen, you know, recently, whether... Um, they always thought that or whether it becomes more acceptable and then they get attracted to it right. as a way of thinking about what's going on because they don't have credible other like, you know, there's so much, um, uh, you know, all the major authorities and institutions so much like what people were so worried about in the 60s that the system had been you know, brought into disrepute, was crumbling, and as a result, chaos. You know, this is what right. the establishment really sort of thought, is that the cultural changes that were taking place were, um, you know, just uh, crumbling, and all the structures of authority were now open to criticism, discredited. And I think we're, you know, at that, after 30, 40 years of neoliberalism, we never got our peace dividend. We didn't get the investments in society. A huge cataclysmic issues were just externalities of corporate capitalism. So nobody cared about the environment. You know, we were being told by scientists and so on for decades and decades that this was an unsustainable approach. Um, all of, you know, that ended up privileging, you know, a smaller and smaller class of people and many, many others felt uh, disenfranchised. They felt that they were being lied to by the media or ignored. Um, so I wonder if it's not that all these people were thinking those things. It's that they have newly, you know, found these um, attractive as explanations, as ways of coping and dealing with disorientations and terrible conditions that are increasingly worsening when they have no faith that the structures of authority of the establishment will be providing solutions. And in fact, actually, I think the thing is, is that the establishment parties don't actually even try to provide solutions. Right. They're not even seen to be attempting to do so. So uh, that's kind of, I do think that they have a responsibility. I think uh, this is what Obama was, was sort of a restoration of, you know, trying to reestablish after George Bush and the failures of the Iraq war, the devastations of the global war on terrorism, the, horrific collapse of the financial system because of all of these 
you know, mortgage, the mortgage crisis, et cetera, like capitalism was under, you know, uh, you know, was was no longer being seen as terribly legitimate. The military uh, or at least the decision makers for military and foreign policy had made such terrible blunders that cost the country, it, you know, been discredited, taken us to war on lies, et cetera. That you needed somebody like Obama that he, you know, he was somebody who was going to embody those conventions, those norms. He was going to seem that he was competent, you know, somebody who could manage the U.S. empire, um, but it didn't help people. Right. So that was discredited because that was supposed to be the restoration, you know, that we needed after all of these crises of the 2000s. We didn't get the restoration, but we got declared, you know, they declared just like George Bush uh, going onto that aircraft carrier and saying mission accomplished. They said the same, you know, in their own way that that the economy has recovered. This has been a great success. And yet, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't for most people. So I think that's been the problem. Um, And um yeah, I mean, we could talk a lot well, about well, it. I don't want to take more time. I did want to mention one thing because it hadn't come up. Um, I'd heard about it, but it didn't come up, I think, on last Monday's show, which I missed, or on Thursday, which is, you know, um, you know, the peace negotiations that were uh, undermined in April um, with between Iran. Ukraine and Russia. Oh, Ukraine. Right? Yeah, there, there, there was a recent report in Foreign Affairs uh, it was sort of let slip by uh, Fiona Hill and I think it was like Andrea Stent. Some uh, I forget the co-author, but, you know, these are very establishment figures. Um, Fiona Hill is from you know, the British impeachment. And, and yeah, I think you know who she is. Yeah, she's she's like a big foreign policy guru and is especially uh, important in public policy discourses on, you know, Russia and so on wrote this uh, article where they let slip that, you know, that they had um, basically many senior U.S. officials that they spoke with in April 2022, Russian and Ukrainian negotiators appeared to have tentatively agreed on the outlines of a negotiated interim settlement. Russia would withdraw to its positions on February 23rd when it controlled part of the Donbass region, I think what they mean, and and all of Crimea, I think what they mean is that there were those breakaway republics, because right. in fact, actually, there weren't really, you know, substantial Russian troops in Ukraine at that position, at that point of time. Uh, and in exchange, Ukraine would promise not to seek NATO membership and instead receive security guarantees from a number of countries. Um The article says, but as Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov stated in a July interview with his country's state media, this compromise is no longer an option. What Fiona Hill did not say in this article, though she let slip that they were close to a negotiated agreement on these outlines, was that Boris Johnson made a sudden unannounced trip on April 9th, met with Zelensky in Kiev, and told him that... um, you cannot uh, conclude this piece that uh, Putin was a war criminal and should be pressured, not negotiated with. And that even if Ukraine was ready to sign some agreements on guarantees with with Putin, they themselves are not, i.e. Britain and the West are not ready to do that. Th- this story, and this, is, this was reported in the Ukrainska Pravda. OK, this is a anti-Russian, pro-Ukraine, Western Ukraine nationalist source that 
admitted at the time. This is from like April where they they reported on this. Right. I saw the story and I thought and because it wasn't blown up, nobody said to me, hey, look at this. I went, oh, OK, it's it's you need people saying, hey, look at this, you know. Well, I think I was saying, I mean, because I was interested in the fact that, uh, you know, these negotiations were taking place in Turkey and thinking about the role, uh, you know, Erdogan was taking and trying to be a sort of broker and the fact that he's, uh, you know, leader of a NATO country, but at the same time seems to have positive relations with Russia on this issue, but, you know, confronted them in Syria. They were at loggerheads. So it was just a very interesting thing to see how Erdogan was trying to play a kind of diplomatic role here. Um, but it begs the question how much power Boris Johnson actually has. In terms well, well, I mean, what is he other than, do you think, a messenger boy of, I mean, look, the, Fiona Hill herself is saying that, like, you know, that U.S. officials also knew that these these negotiations were coming to a tentative agreement. But he's not the EU by any stretch of the imagination. He, he's not the EU, but he is definitely NATO and the right. West. And he went in there and he yeah. basically said, like, we're not going, and he, you know, the, at the time, the Guardian only reported that, he made this trip as a show of solidarity and that he was going to announce some extra aid packages and all of that. But nothing about the fact that there was potentially a peace deal that, you know, the next step was going to be Zelensky and Putin themselves having face to face negotiations to conclude what, you know, had basically been put together on the table by Ukrainian and Russian negotiators right. in uh, Dolmabahce Palace in, in Turkey. And um you know, the fact that this is not has not been news that, um, of course, the situation is so much worse now. It's only gotten worse. It's only going to be much harder now to try and negotiate a settlement, regardless of what's happening now. If the counteroffensive of, is, is, you know, working for the Ukrainians to some extent, it just means we're just going to have this war simmering for a much longer period of time. And I thought it was quite amazing that this got confirmed in the foreign affairs. I was saying at the, at the time, and you could see in May, that there were all these like uh, reports dashing, you know, any possibility at that point um, that there could be any 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 peace deal. Um, but um, you know what, what what ended up happening, you know, later in the same month is that, you know, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, you know, announced on the 25th that uh, Washington's goal was to use, you know, proxy war in Ukraine to weaken Russia. Mm -hmm. And um, there has been no real public discourse and dialogue in this country, in Britain, elsewhere, except at the margins about how we could push for a negotiated settlement that works for both parties and put an right. end to this horrible war. I Yes. You haven't fallen prey. You're much smarter than I am. I woke up yesterday and I was reading about the winds, uh, the, the feint that Zelensky and his generals supposedly, they tricked Russia into focusing on the south and then they went uh, east. Uh, and then my mind started thinking, well, what if this leads to the collapse of Putin? You know, my fantasy was, well, the world would be better off without Putin. And would Biden then be George Bush 
1991, right after the end of the first Gulf War, where there was a new unipolar world order, which uh, he immediately squandered within a year. Well, but he can't because it's not Russia now. It's China. Right. You know, that's where the pole, you know, um, uh, that's where the geopolitical rivalry really is going to be, which is why, you know, neo-realists um, are aghast at, uh, you know, these what's policies. A neo, what's a neo-realist? Well, it's like these John Mearsheimer uh, folks, the people who have this um, perspective on states and nationalism, um, that the, the world system is an anarchic system and states pursue their interests and there are certain kinds of principles that you can adduce to how they're going to relate to one another. Uh, it affects everything from, you know, disarmament to economic policies and so on. But fundamentally what it is, is a geopolitical theory that states a nationalism is the bedrock of, um, you know, states. And what that means is that they will pursue their national interests as they see it, their security interests, their economic interests, their influence, and so on. And it's a balance of power uh, that you have to pay attention to. And there's no real room for ideology. Ideology is a fiction uh, that's more for domestic uh, um, consumption, but states act in certain ways to pursue I their see. interests. That's the irreducible fact. Um, so they are very aghast at this, you know, pushing of Russia, which is a weaker um, kind of pole, you know, a weaker power, a great power, but, you know, kind of on the lesser scale of these great powers, pushing them into an alliance with China when what we're supposed to be doing if we're pursuing U.S. national interest in this realist sort of theory is trying to divide them so you can, you know, pick them off or bring Russia in or do something like that. So even these like hardcore neorealists are, are are quite disturbed by the fact that we're taking our eye off supposedly the real confrontation with China. So that's why I'm just right. I'm saying even those folks don't think um, that if you defeat Russia, you, you now now you've got a unipolar uh, world. I mean, right. you've got China to deal with. I wanted to very quickly. I don't think Professor Marianne. Uh, is doing the show today. I haven't heard back from her. So I just want to, I wanted to ask you before you leave about the queen and you are a student of religion and the intersection between the British royalty, the, she's all, he, Charles has now sworn allegiance to the Anglican church. I do think they changed the law where we're, a future king can marry somebody who's not Anglican. How important is it for the king to be the leader of the state church? Is is that still the rule in, in Great Britain? And what does that mean? Uh, yes. I mean, I think constitutionally, um, the monarch is defender of the faith. And what that means is protector, basically, of the um, official Church of England. I mean, it's a national church. It is the, you know, official religion of the state. Now, they've made accommodations to allow for, 
uh, other religious institutions to exist. And, you know, they've tried to become a little bit more multi, uh, you know, cultural and pluralistic in <clears throat> policies. But fundamentally, uh, only the Church of England receives certain privileges, financial, you know, uh, support uh, and so on. And it is the official religion. And if you think of it, I mean, the role of the monarch uh, and um, the Church of England is always going to be very important from a historical perspective, because the only reason really fundamentally it exists, even though it's considered a Protestant denomination, it's really sort of Catholic Catholicism sort of light. I mean, you know, it's a breakaway because Henry VIII, of course, needed to have his sovereign decisions about how to perpetuate his lineage, establish his heir. This is what a monarch has to do, you know, uh, you know, defend the realm, produce an heir, you know, and protect the church. These are like the key functions for for the monarch. Um, but when the church church rules were interfering with the ability for him to achieve that policy, I mean, he basically nationalized the Catholic Church, expropriated all of church uh, lands to the Church of England, and um, he became the head of uh, of the church, um, not the ecclesiastical head. You know, you have the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is essentially the chief uh, cleric, um, sometimes uh, rivaled by the Archbishop of, of, of York, but basically that's the structure ecclesiastically, but he is head of the church, maybe in some ways a little bit like how the Byzantine emperor was sort of head, had a kind of position within the church, even though there was a patriarch in Constantinople who was technically head of the ecclesiastical structure. But there is a constitutional kind of crucial role for the monarch. So it's absolutely vital that they be Anglican. And the pageantry, are you fascinated by any of it? And were, were they pick and choose? Because... It, it well, seems... I, I have a soft spot for um, historical dramas, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, period piece stuff. I just I, I actually really enjoy those, uh, you know, all these Jane Eyre novels that mm -hmm. get turned into movies or miniseries and stuff. I'll watch those, the medieval ones. But I think of the modern pomp and pageantry of the British monarchy as a pale somewhat meaningless reflection of the great medieval kind of rituals and ceremonies that were really rooted in the society. Right. These are just sort of Disney type Disney, uh, exactly. functions to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I study, you know, I mean, and teach texts where, you know, these rituals were actually kind of important and sort of contested. They were sort of open. They could go awry. And if they went awry, you know, maybe people would use it as an opportunity to raise a rebellion or say you're not legitimate and so on. Now they're just sort of per ceremonial performances. They're not real rituals. Would you say like if, the, if a ritual went wrong during the performing of it? Well, I don't mean just that technically you did something wrong in the script, but like, you know, if the community didn't regard like, so for example, like, you know, everyone always thinks this is the height of the irrationality of medieval law and judicial process, the ordeal, trial by battle. Okay. So each of them, they take their oaths, they're, you know, sacralized for this. God is going to render 
judgment, right? The victor in the battle, you know, or the hot iron or the floating water, right? So you're accused of something, you could take the ordeal of the hot iron, you know, blazing hot, you have to hold it for a certain period of time. And then, you know, afterwards, in three days, if it's healing, you're innocent. If it's not healing, you know, you're, you're guilty, right? Totally irrational, seems totally irrational. However, the ritualistic element of it was basically you give time to figure out what is the community consensus? Who stands where, you know, on this? And this would be then kind of decided because after three days, you really can't tell if it's healing or not healing. Hmm. It's going to be a judgment about the politics of the situation, who has the most communal support. And then you go with that and you make your judgment on what's going to be efficacious for the community. So it's actually got a kind of displaced sort of logic, and that could be contested. You know, maybe you declare, oh, yes, it is healed, but they don't trust your judgment, and it just, you know, becomes a a, a contest. Whereas what we're talking about now with the British monarchy and these kinds of rituals, they're pure ceremonies. They're not rituals. That is, ritual is something that changes the condition. From some through the ritual process, you start in one condition, you go through the ritual process, and there's an outcome. And you might not know exactly whether, you know, what the outcome will be. Um, So that's the difference, I think. Before you go, uh, unbelievable, you're unbelievable. Uh, Do you have a do you have a soft spot for Charles in that here in America, we were ta- we started this segment talking about how bad things can get with anti-Semitism and other things. That is, is it foolish to think with Charles at the top, there's somebody reminding the British people, this is who we are. This is what we don't behave this way. And serves as a reminder, because as you said on Thursday's show, that he has fought against Islamophobia and mm-hmm. that that he is and a, for the environment. I mean, and, he's very pro environment. Right. That that he is a calming. He tamps down the vile. Is is there any value to that? Possibly. Um, if it rests on that, we're in big trouble. <laughs> You know, right. I mean, maybe it'll help a little bit, but if we're sort of relying on, um, you know, an unelected, uh, you know, 73 year old uh, who's lived a life of complete privilege, divorced from the real concerns of uh, his 60 million subjects, uh, we're in trouble. But he could right. exercise a kind of, you know, moral authority, an example of sort of civil sort of society on some level. It's just that, of course, it also comes with the hierarchy, the condescension, (laughs) the history of privilege based on empire, colonialism. So, you know, he's not the best sort of example for it. But, you know, people who are suffering racism and deprivation, uh, you know, might take it. Right. (laughs) If he's in favor of like, you know, more pluralistic society and and can actually speak to that, you know, they might appreciate it. Right. The and boss- I've heard that he has, like, he did, you know, uh, talk a little bit um, in one of these recent uh, kind of public uh, engagement and speeches, talk about the confronting some of the history of the 
of the monarchy. Yeah, when he, he when he spoke at the at the Commonwealth, he, right. he said it has to be. Uh, this is why uh, people are pissed off at him. Did you see this? Where he's waving. Oh Get yes, that, move yes, that, move right. That, move that. Move that. Move that. Servants have to clear his desk. Yeah, I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, no, it's, I mean, he's look, I mean, what do you want? You got a monarch. They're going to be like that. I mean, yeah. you either have to be a kind of staunch Republican, which apparently is becoming very difficult to express publicly now. Yes. I, mean, I read an interesting article in The Guardian that used to be kind of common, maybe 15, 20 percent, even in polite society, even in establishment circles. You might even have like conservative anti-monarchism because they just thought that there are better ways or you know, something like this, but there has been such a, just like with this Ukraine, you can't talk about like right. negotiation and peace. There's some kind of consensus that you're not in polite society if you question the monarchy in Britain these days, it seems. Yeah. A lot of people are complaining that there's a a real, not a censorship, although there is, because of course there have been like arrests of people uh, for right. having signs that are anti-monarchical or saying who elected him. Somebody came out of an Oxford church and said, uh, you know, after his speech on Friday, I think it was, uh, well, who elected him? And the police uh, arrested, arrested him. Right. So. It's even Here's a little girl. Did you ever see this? Lane sent this to me. This was last year with the Queen, two years ago. She muttered something underneath her breath. Look, look, look at what the, the royal guard does to her. Smacks her right in the face. Did you see that? Here, here's real close. And she mutters something underneath to the queen it was rude and they just smacked the hell out of her look at that boom oh my yeah you don't want to mess with with, with the queen uh, Whoa. yeah dan what what should we do quiz master well everything uh professor hussein said the last 20 minutes that's what i would have said if i was afraid <laughs> of facing feldman and bick in a quiz uh, should we do uh, should we do a quiz right now or should we let Professor Bick talk and then do a quiz or I, but Professor Hussein has to go. Why don't we do a quick quiz to humiliate the two of them? Because I don't think we have. Uh, would you mind participating, Professor Bick and Professor Hussein in a ritualistic humiliation? I've been looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> it will be transformative. It'll be like clergy and clerics and Excellent. monarchs. Yeah, All right. It'll be different after this. This is, this, let me uh, put some money in the kitty. There we go. Okay. Today we have six questions and today's quiz is on space on television. Ooh. I, I know some, I know somebody who I think I think David is in his wheelhouse here. No, no, I think Professor Bick is. Could Whoa. be. So uh, we will go with uh, Professor Bick first, then Hussein, then David. We'll yes. the order. So question number one for P Professor Jonathan Bick. There is plenty of money in the kitty. Uh, the first question is: What was the surname? That is the plenty. Yes. What was the surname of the family in the 1960s television show Lost in Space? Was it Robinson, 
Conroy, Williams, or Jet's son? <laughs> it was Robinson. Professor Hussein. A Danger Will Robinson. Yes. Yes, Danger Will Robinson. The correct answer is Robinson. So I'm winning five to zero. Good job. Professor Hussein is first on question number two. What did the mischievous but lovable television alien named Alf like to eat most? Was it mice, rabbits, birds, or kitty cats? I'm going to say mice. Um, I remember the show, but... You remember Alf? I remember Alf. Jerry Stahl wrote on Alf Hmm. while shooting heroin. Uh, The McDonald's Happy Meals used to have a disposable record that had Alf singing uh, the uh, Big Mac song on it. Hmm. Uh, Could you give the uh, the answers again, uh, Dan? Sure. It is mice, rabbits, birds, or kitty cats. And David is next. Oh, I, I'm going to disagree just because I think it would be funnier if he ate rabbits. Kitty cats would be too mean. But rabbits would be, but rabbits are cute, but people eat rabbits. I'm going to go with rabbits. For, I think that would have been funniest. I remember consciously avoiding watching this program. Uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to guess cats because it's really disturbing. The correct answer is cats. <clears throat> Alpha is from a planet called Melmac. So Professor Alpha's Bick got that right. Called... Pro- did Professor Hussein get that yep. wrong? I did, yeah. Okay, so yep, Professor Bick you're, is in the lead. Only, you're winning by eight points now, right, David? Well, and, and all to be fair, I'm only winning by six now. Let's be, <laughs> <laughs> be want to be during honest. the show, Alfred always like he'd he'd be picking up a cat by the scruff of his neck and they'd show him coming towards his mouth and they'd go oh, away. But goodness. Uh, I would love to see all these brilliant minds like Professor Bick, Professor Hussein, like just see them when they were eight, eating a bowl of cereal in front of just some garbage television. I did a lot of it. I have to say, I know all of the reruns (laughs) from the 50s and 60s shows because I watched them all. Not only did I watch garbage television, but I ate garbage cereal, David. Uh, I <laughs> remember eating Lucky Charms while watching Bonanza. Mm. <laughs> uh, question number three. David is first this time. In Star Trek, oh what character's name is also the name of a subatomic particle? Is it Quark, Nog, Uhura, or Nubdick? Ooh, uh, it's not fair. Give me, what's the first one? Quark, Nog, Uhara, I'll go with Quark. or Nubdick. I'll go with Quark. Uh, Professor Bick? Yes, it's Quark. He ran a bar. Yes, Quark the Ferengi. 
Whoa, that is correct. I always liked Ferengi because uh, that um, is the uh, Persian word for uh, the Franks uh, and also for foreigner. So Ferengi. Hmm. So I, I wonder th- if they took it from that. But, th- but this is not the original Star Trek. No. Quarks weren't is- discovered yet by then, right? Right. It was, yeah. uh, that was from Deep Space Nine, which was from the 90s. Okay. So it is uh, Professor Bick is still in the lead, unfortunately. So we have six questions, and this is question number four, and Professor Bick is up first. What was famous movie star Robin Williams' catchphrase in his alien role in television's Mork and Mindy? Was it Deplane, Deplane? <laughs> nanu, Nanu? Resistance is futile? Or live long in prolapse? <laughs> <laughs> it was Nanu, Nanu. Professor Hussein? Yeah, definitely Nanu, Nanu. I'm gonna, yes, Nanu, Nanu. Very good. That is correct. So Professor Bick is still in the lead. Question number five, uh, Professor Hussein is first. Who played Buck Rogers? Hmm. Was it Richard Hatch, Martin Landau, Gil Gerard, or B. Arthur? (laughs) (laughs) So before Martin Landau was who? Richard Hatch. Richard Hatch. And it was Gil somebody? Richard Hatch, Martin Landau, Gil Gerard, or B. Arthur? Okay. Uh, I'll go with the first. Uh, Richard Hatch. Yeah. Is Professor Hussein's answer. David? Well, hang on. Martin Landau was like space zero, like with Barbara Bain, something, something. So that, that wasn't... Space 1999. Space 1999. What's the other choice? Richard Hatch. Martin Landau. Richard Hatch is Survivor, right? One season, one of Survivor, I think. What's what's the other choice? Martin Landau, Gil Gerard, and B. Arthur. Gil Gerard played... Uh, goalie for the Rangers. Uh, I'm going to go with Gil Gerard. It is Gil Gerard. Hmm. The correct answer is Gil Gerard. Oh. Richard Hatch played uh, Starbuck on Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> yep, yeah, I have the follow up. Richard Hatch was, played uh, Battlestar Galactica. Martin TV. Landau was. Space 1999 and B. Arthur starred in Golden Girls. Sorry. <laughs> I always confuse the two. I would have liked to have seen B. Arthur in, uh, in uh, what was it? Uh, Buck Rogers. Yeah. Right. Do you know Bill Macy from Maud? Was that the guy with the mustache or yeah. her husband? William Macy. He almost got the show canceled because he had a habit of whipping his thing out in public. 
just a little piece of it's an Adrian Barbeau's autobiography, which I've on only, the on the set or uh, on the street <laughs> everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> Back then, it was considered you know it was he wanted to prove he wasn't carrying a weapon. It's like the handshake. He just, go ahead. What's it? last question, Professor Bick? Question number six, da David. You are first. What is the score? Uh, Professor Bick is leading, I believe, by one. And Professor Hussein and I are trailing. Uh, David, you are first. Bob Denver, television's Gilligan, starred in a 1970s children's series about NASA maintenance workers. Can you name it? We have The Moon and Stars, Far Out Space Nuts, Galaxy Brothers, or Ginger Hubba Hubba? Yeah, give me those choices again, sir. Sure. The Moon and Stars. This is a children's Far show. Far Out Space Nuts. Bob Denver, Television's Gilligan, starred in a 1970s children's series about NASA maintenance workers. So this was on a Saturday. I don't know. Go ahead. The Moon and Stars. No. Far Out Far out space nuts. Yes. Galaxy Brothers hmm. or Ginger Hubba Hubba. It's either Far Out Space Nuts or Galaxy Brothers. Far Out Space Nuts sounds like something from the 70s. I'll say Far Out Space Nuts. It sounds like the answer I should have put last. Who's next? Professor Bick. Uh, what was the first answer? The Moon and Stars. I'll go with Far Out Space Nuts. I have no idea. Professor Hussein? Uh, just to be different, I'll go Galaxy Brothers. The correct answer is Far Out Space Nuts. It only lasted one season. Well... It was close, but once again, I won. <laughs> I won. You, you pulled it out in the end. I David. pulled it out, just like Bill Macy from Maud. I pulled it out in the <laughs> end. Uh, I, you won, Professor Bick. You're happy now? You humiliated me. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. Great job, as always. It's an honor. And everybody should listen to the Mudgeless podcast, as well as... Gorilla History. How do people follow you on Twitter? Uh, at Adnan A. Hussein, H-U-S-A-I-N. And do drop by the course if you want to. We're going to start this Saturday, 9.30 to 11 a.m. During the Office Hours block, uh, the Crusading Society. I will actually uh, circulate a link because I'm going to do it on my own Zoom. So I can have a recording of it, but it'll be scheduled on the office hours block. Look Great. for it on my Twitter uh, in the office hours uh, chat um, and uh, do stop by. Fantastic. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to uh, I will be there. Thank you. Uh, I see that Professor Marianne Cummings has shown up. So we're but we're just running a little behind. I didn't wasn't sure if she was going to be with us. So we're running a little late, Professor Marianne. Is that OK? OK, Dan, Frank sure. thank you, Dan Frankenberger.
Great job, as always. See you soon. See you soon. Professor Jonathan Bick joins us. What is on your mind, sir? Hello, David. Is it going to be um, a little awkward since you beat me? But go ahead. Well, you know, I was kind of my category. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, but, you know. Those small bribes that I send Dan, I seem to be working. Yeah. Um, I, I, so I, I, I bribe them and I see the answers beforehand. I, I just can't remember <laughs> them. Uh, so is, is Al Collins uh, still driving that? Oh, let's uh, check in. This is the latest. Yeah. If you're just following us, Queen Elizabeth. Why, has, it's still uh, going on. Yeah, still speeding down the, the 405. She does not want to get buried. She is rolling down. She must be bored stiff, David. <laughs> she's on a board and she's stiff and she's holding a gun to her head as Al Callings drives the car, and there, there, there's the California state troopers <laughs> following her close behind. We'll, we'll. Uh, wow, this, the California state troopers in Scotland. Yes, they're everywhere. Oh, they yeah. do get around. Yeah, well, it's Interpol, they, California. I don't want to get into it, but they're everywhere. Oh yeah, it's uh, probably state secret. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I have some good news and I have some bad news. And the good news is that uh, inflation seems to be moderating, mm -hmm. seems to be leveling off, perhaps. I mean, we only got a couple of months uh, of this uh, date on this, but uh, it looks like it has stopped going up. Uh, we will know tomorrow they're going to release uh, the CPI, the Consumer Price Index uh, readings for last month, for August, tomorrow morning. But um, so uh, the consumer price index in July was zero, meaning that compared to the month before, it did not increase. The, con the personal consumption expenditure deflator, another often used measure of inflation, uh, fell by 0.1% in July. And if you look at the core CPI and the core PCE deflator, um, they rose by a very modest amount. And gasoline, uh, the CPI gasoline index plunged by 7.7% uh, in July. And uh, the most economists think that that, deli that decline is going to continue in August data. Uh, the year-over-year -year number, so if you look um, from July of 2021 to June of 2022, is 8.5%, which is down from 9.1% in the previous month. So inflation seems to be leveling off here. So that's and good news. That is good news, absolutely. Except for gas uh, prices coming down. Yeah. So there, there seems to be an easing of backlog of uh, imported goods. And the, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's Global Supply Chain Pressure Index has fallen sharply from its peaks last fall to just above where it was before the pandemic. While shipping costs are still well above their pre 
pandemic level. They are down almost 50% from last fall's peak and are likely to keep falling. Uh, the Baltic Dry Goods Index, which measures the cost of shipping goods worldwide, for example, is now below its average level for 2019. Hmm. It's called the Baltic? Uh, the Baltic Dry Goods Index. Yeah, this is a widely followed uh, measure of uh, the cost of shipping goods globally. And the New York uh, Fed Inflation Survey, uh, which saw a marked decline in the public's expectations for increases in consumer prices going forward uh, on a one and three year time horizon, uh, is in, uh, in line with the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, which is also down. Uh, so not only is inflation leveling off, but consumers, their expectations are that inflation is going to be less than they had anticipated uh, previously. This is it's all the, good news. All good news. Yeah. Except for uh, gas prices going down. And the the bad news, however, uh, is that the Federal Reserve doesn't seem to care about those things when it comes to raising interest rates. And they seem intent on uh, continuing their rapid increase in short-term interest rates. So the, uh, the minutes from the Federal Reserve's July meeting indicate that the U.S. Central Bank uh, has no plans to deviate from aggressive interest rate hikes as they attempt to tamp down high inflation, a policy response that one economist characterized as a commitment to, quote, unleashing mass unemployment. That's causing a recession. That's what and, he, but he has pretty much said, pal, that is his plan to bring down the inflation of wages. Right. Even though wages are well below the inflation rate, the, the increase in, infl in wages is below the infl inflation rate. So the actual uh, earnings of workers are buying less every month. Uh, so there are a number of economists that disagree with this. Um, Adam Hirsch from the... Uh, Economic Policy Institute says, we have a supply-side problem, but rather than trying to restore or raise supply-side capacity, the Fed is aiming to push demand down to the level where supply is currently constrained by pandemic, war, and climate crisis. Uh, so there are other things that we could do besides raising interest rates and causing mass unemployment. Uh, that's the option that puts the onus on the backs of the working class and people, you know, people who work for a living. Uh, we could do other things like we could raise taxes on wealthy people. That would likely slow down uh, inflation. And um, 
So the, the Fed actually conceded in their meeting that supply bottlenecks were continuing to contribute to uh, price pressures uh, while that was still happening. Uh, they said that they're going to stay the course and um, aimed at su- suppressing economic demand, an approach they acknowledge would likely cause higher unemployment. The Fed's next policy meeting is in September, which is in 10 days, when another large rate hike is expected, even amid evidence of moderating prices as well as slowing economic and wage growth. So they seem intent on going ahead. And a, uh, a recent uh, quote from the Federal Reserve vice chair uh, said, while the moderation in monthly inflation is welcome, it will be necessary to see several months of low monthly inflation readings to be confident that inflation is moving back down to 2%. Uh, so the Federal Reserve has shifted from very accommodative position to one where they are tightening and they don't even seem to want to pause to wait to see if, if inflation is going to continue to go down. And this is very concerning because it could cause uh, an economic crisis. Um, the, the dollar is strengthening to such a degree that this is causing problems for um, uh, economies in developing nations. And uh, because it, if the dollar strengthens, I never understand. If the dollar is weak, that's good for our exports. So developing nations can compete with us. But if the dollar is strong, what does that mean? Well, it, it, they tend to be in a lot of debt, uh, those countries. So, when well, so the, the dollar is more expensive. The dollar is more expensive. So they have to. Uh, spend more of their currency to buy dollars to pay off the debt. Right. So that's one of the problems. And um, they'll probably have to resort to raising interest rates there, which is going to slow their economy even more in an attempt to keep their currency from falling even more. Um, Yeah. So this this could have all sorts of uh, implications worldwide. Uh, and in an op-ed in The Guardian, um, Isabella Weber of the University of Massachusetts Amherst and Mark Paul of Rutgers University said that the current inflation situation hasn't been all about goods in the economy getting more expensive at the same rate. Specific goods, food, fuel, cars, and housing have been experiencing massive price shocks raising the general inflation level substantially. And they, they argue that controlling these changes would require aggregate demand to shrink to unbearable levels for average Americans, essentially making people too poor to buy goods. And thus, this would alleviate the bottlenecks. That's the avenue that the Fed is currently pursuing instead of addressing the bottlenecks themselves you know, the, the supply chain issues and so forth. Rate hikes are not only ill-suited to bring down these essential prices, but risk a recession throwing millions out of work. So they argue for um, 
targeted price stabilization measures, including price controls to limit price increases in systemically significant goods and services such as gas, housing, food, and electricity. And they argue because, you know, the uh, neoclassical economists will say, oh, price controls don't work. They cause all, all sorts of problems. Well, they say that uh, price controls have a rather successful history in the U.S. when they're used correctly. And while they're not a magic bullet, they are a powerful tool to tame inflation and protect low and middle income Americans. The problem is that the Federal Reserve does not seem to be preoccupied with the situation of low and middle income Americans. They're more concerned about the banks and well-to-do Americans. Uh, and Joseph Stiglitz and Dean Baker, they argue that, you know, given all of this uh, data that we're seeing, that at least the Federal Reserve should pause. Uh, but they don't expect that to happen. So the, the main argument is between um, whether it's going to be a, another three quarters of a percentage increase or a half percentage increase. Okay. So that, yeah. So that's the good and bad news. All right. So buy gold. <laughs> and this is this is a one-time offer that Professor Bick and I are making. Mm -hmm. These are uh, commemorative coins of the David Feldman show that are mostly gold. Uh, they, they're electroplated in gold. <laughs> and we're only making as many as you're willing to buy. So that's not a lot. And... Uh, <laughs> so, right. And I, I, they have a small amount of zinc. It, you know, it varies between 90 and 98% zinc. And zinc is good for you. It prevents. Yeah, it uh, may flu. even keep away the common cold. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. The economy, we are told, there was a piece in the New York Times yesterday where I thought they had to be kidding me, where poverty in America has. Uh, for children has gone down something like 20% since Bill Clinton uh, signed his welfare reform bill. Did you see this story? I haven't seen that one. That thanks to uh, SNAP and CHIPS, th that American children have never had it better. Like, it hasn't been this good for American children since 1993. And as I'm reading it, and it is the New York Times, which I may not be too happy with their opinion page or their editorial page. They still are, you know, the paper of record. I thought they're not measuring anything. You can you can there are what is it? There are lies. Damn. There are statistics, lies and damn lies or what? What is that? There are lies, damn lies and statistics. You. If the New York Times is telling me that American children have never had it better, nothing means anything anymore. There is yeah. no way that they've reduced poverty since Bill Clinton reformed welfare. I know that poverty went down when they were uh, 
paying the uh, the child credit, uh, right? Child tax credit, significant increase in the child tax credit. And, and think about that. What are we talking about? Is that three hundred or six hundred a month? A child tax credit. I I believe it was three hundred per month uh, per child. Okay, three hundred dollars a month. If that's the difference between living in poverty and not living in poverty, we need to reconnoiter our yardsticks because $300, I mean, I'm not trying to discount the importance of $300 a month, but that should not be the difference between a child living in poverty and not living in poverty. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a relatively small amount, and uh, it, it made a tremendous difference. Uh, I mean, it took an enormous pressure off of parents and uh, provided a, a, a better quality of life for the parents and the children. So, I, you know, why wouldn't you do it? Um, Absolutely, and there is... Some talk that Biden, as a Hail Mary, will be able to uh, bring it back before the midterms. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be something? What are you reading? What am I reading? Uh, I'm reading a lot of news, <laughs> a lot of economics, uh, and um, uh, some short stories, too. Good. For, for fun. Great. Professor Jonathan Bick, you beat me tonight. And uh, I have to say, it kind of chilled the conversation. <laughs> it just kind of made it. Next time I'll lose on purpose. I just felt like uh, I was kind of rooting against you during this. <laughs> hey, there are a lot of people who live in New England. I I've been counting them. We have to do another... Get together. Oh, let, let's do it soon, David, before the weather gets cold. Yeah. And I go, almost got together with the Hershenfelds. They canceled. I am becoming, since my mother passed away, I've become a much more social animal. Hmm. I, I no That's... longer am going to Jersey and, you know, holding the pillow over her head. And just, no, but uh, I've, I've been, it's quite remarkable how many how social i am uh so yes That's i look forward healthy. to you i look forward to you stealing my fries yes i i look forward to it as well thank you thank you thank you professor jonathan bick now we go to aurora illinois where parks commissioner professor marianne cummings is standing by she is also a particle physicist lot to talk about what would you like to discuss? Oh, I don't know. You were you were asking people what they read. I I got this great book. Ever hear of this? I started reading it in the plane a few months ago, and then I just kind of displaced it. It's a real a true story. The greatest beer run ever, and it was about a guy who was in the Merchant Marines that decided because a lot of guys in his town went off to Vietnam War and were actually Vietnam to the Vietnam War and were actually fighting it that. He, you know, he'd bring them personally deliver, like as into the front lines, like beer from their hometown and did it. 
Hmm. <laughs> it's like it's something that you couldn't do, but I guess his merchant marine card got him a lot of passes and things were a little well, you know, uh Things were a little looser back then because we have all this fantastic war fitted footage of how horrible and ugly war is from the Vietnam War to the right. point where I was constantly being chided as a kid that the problem with my generation was that we didn't have a good war. Yeah. And I think even when I was a kid, I had the presence of mind to say, yeah, well, you were your wars weren't on the television. <laughs> it's right. more. So anyway, great, great book. I mean, if does you they really talk about the heroine? Something like I, I read somewhere like half the soldiers. I, can this be true? Half the guys in Vietnam were doing heroin. Uh, I mean, all of the guys on official army bases uh, were doing barbiturates and amphetamines. That's how Elvis got addicted when he was doing duty. Really? You know. You had frontline duty guarding, and these things, these these shifts could go on for like hours, like twenty hours, twenty four hours, because they wanted their guys ready to be able to be alert, even if they hadn't slept. And one of the reasons, one of the ways they did it was that they just passed out uh, amphetamines. Peter were- Gralnick, in his definitive biography of Elvis, kind of went into this quite a bit. How did Elvis get hooked on all these drugs? But when he was officially anti-drug, and, right. and he called all those other things my medicine. Right. And uh, he said that was like typical because people would come back uh, and particularly musicians and performers discovered that, wow, you do one of these and you can do three sets a night. Right. Colonel Which Nick. Sadly, I think it was Colonel Nick in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching the Tom Hanks Elvis movie. Am I supposed to love this? I, I love Tom Hanks. I mean, it's like. Happy. Well, he was kind of chewing up the rug a little bit, I, I think, so to speak. I, I, couldn't I, mean, get, Tom- <laughs> I couldn't get through it. I was like, was he playing Geppetto with that accent? I, well, I, you know, I, I think so. A friend of mine and I who is a Elvis devotee and he's got some fantastic stories I'll tell you about later. But uh, we went and saw the movie. And it was good, you know, another Brit playing Elvis. But we went back to his house and he played a miniseries that was on the TV about 10 years ago or so. And it starred another Brit. I think Jonathan Reese Meyer played Elvis. And that one, I could, okay, this one is a way better presentation of basically this, you know, roughly the same story. Uh, the, the, the miniseries that we watched, but focused a little more on the early years, but, uh, Randy Quaid played uh, played Colonel Parker. That's amazing. That's brilliant casting. That was, and I think that was closer to. I mean, it. He was. It was dark, and it was banal. He was dark, and he was banal at the same time. I mean, he was kind of a huckster dude, which a huge right. gambling problem, and he literally did sign Elvis's life away. You know. With these damn Vegas contracts, he was responsible for Vegas not for uh, Elvis not being in the remake of A Star Is Born, which I think would be a way better movie if it had been Elvis rather than who was it, Chris Chris Christopherson. Yeah, Yeah. but by then, no, Elvis is a great actor. I mean, I've I've watched some of these cheesy movies because my friend Elvis devotee like insists on watching all of them, and um, you know, even in these horribly bad movies. Elvis is still great. 
I mean, I have to say, and he made some really good movies early on. I mean, like King King Creole's fantastic movie. I like Jailhouse Rock. I mean, even like GI Blues isn't that bad. But uh, you know, the uh, the other thing that never happened was uh, Elvis was a friend of Natalie Woods back in the day. I mean, he did go to Hollywood and he was in these workshops and he met all these people when they were early on in their careers. And uh, Natalie Natalie Wood wanted Elvis to be in West Side Story, hmm. which would have been uh, outstanding because he would have done not only a fantastic job acting, but his voice singing Leonard Bernstein's songs. And he, and he had the range for it. I mean, he had an operatic range and a, and a capacity that was fantastic. So, oh, well, sad sads I, I think the interesting thing about the elvis movie was they did end on the last song that ever that elvis ever produced ever sang in front of an audience and that was broadcast on, on cbs i i saw it uh, that, that was sad you know <laughs> elvis was kind of not even barely moving on stage and he had to sit down and perform but he could play the piano and he sat and it was um Oh, what was that song? It was a. Um, I always thought that Roy Orbison had done it, it because it was a kind of uh, song he would have done. But the point was, is that the movie ends with the actor, you know, at the piano, and then it just moves almost seamlessly into the real Elvis footage of him performing that song, and his voice was still fantastic, mm. even though his body was complete, obviously in complete decay around him. It, you know. Set. So it's a worthwhile movie to see. But, you know, um, I think that we're not done watching Elvis movies, though. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the definitive Elvis movie is yet to be made. Right. But the one with Jonathan Reese Myers, the miniseries, that, that came pretty close to his early life. Have you ever been to Graceland? No, I haven't. I, uh, I heard it's... Uh, it, I, I heard it's actually quite an amazing experience. I mean, you'd think it'd be like, you know, kind of cheesy and schlocky, but it isn't. It's really like a, it's, somebody's described it. It's almost like hollowed ground. I mean, when people go there, there's such a deference because, you know, he was much loved. So the friend that I just told you about, um, he was doing Elvis impersonations. Uh, he's back when people weren't doing Elvis impersonations. And from the time he was a little kid, the 10 years old discovered Elvis in his aunt's, you know, Elvis records in his aunt's apartment. Uh, he was just an Elvis devotee. So when he heard that after the 1968 special, Elvis was going to go on tour for the first time in years, actual real live performances. He had this great idea and he got together with his, his, uh, his sister and his sister was going to pose as an operator. And he was going to, and since he had read everything he could have gotten his hands on, um, on Elvis. So he knew all the early venues he played. He knew who knew who his managers were, what his history was. Plus he did pose as a uh, Chicago tribune reporter and called the venues that was because the one thing that, uh, he wasn't playing Chicago. He was playing six venues. He didn't play Chicago. And so he just posed as a, as, as a reporter and these guys gave him all the information. So, uh, one day he decides, okay, we're going to do it. I'm going to score some tickets to, and you couldn't, you couldn't get tickets to save your life to these concepts, but he decided he was going to do it. 
So he has his sister pose as an operator, you know, and call the manager of the venue in St. Louis and and says, you know, it's Mr. Elvis Presley is on the line. And uh, like the operators was, is, excuse me, who is this? Is is, is is Mr. Elvis Presley really on the line? And Buddy said, hello, darling, I, I, I need to see the manager. And everybody's like freaking out. So they do get the manager on the line and he's talking to Elvis. He's talking who he thinks is Elvis. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember performing down here about 14 years ago. Hey, hey you ever managed to get some air conditioning? Oh, yes, Elvis, it's nothing like when you went to, when you performed here in 1956 and blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God. So he got six. He says, I know my, you know, I've got an arm and buddy and by gosh, you know, I know you're sold out. But, you know, he, he's a good friend of mine and I kind of promised him and. Mr. Presley, if I have to yank chairs out of my office and put them in the auditorium, you're going to have six additional seats. Wow. And so he goes there and with some friends and uh, he couldn't believe it. He thought he was going to get arrested, but they got six seats in the sixth row and he did it five wow. more times and got wow. away with it every time. Uh, I've got a recording of him someplace because he did go to Graceland and he was just in line. And there was a there's a show uh, run by George Klein, who is uh, it's a Sirius XM radio show on the Elvis channel. And George Klein was a childhood friend of Elvis. And so they were interviewing people. And Buddy told him that he said, oh, yeah, you know, I I, I actually saw Elvis in concert. And he gave him a little brief about how he impersonated Elvis to get tickets. And George Klein said, you mind coming over afterwards and record to my show tonight? Because I, I, I want to hear this in detail. So I I was able to record, you know, at least most of the uh, XM radio uh, interview with George Klein and Buddy. So well, amazing. Story. Now, Buddy used yeah. to be, it was also a comedian, right? He's a, He was a comedian. He, um, and he was an impersonator. He, he for years he did Hollywood impersonations at the at, at the casino before the new owners decided to get rid of all the impersonators. Anything that was basically fun about that casino downtown Aurora and just turn it into a regular casino. But yeah, he's uh, he was uh, in Boulder, Colorado. He was Buddy Boulder. He was local. But um, Robin Williams came to the venue one night, and so Robin Williams and he wasn't. He wasn't, it was before he was really well known. They were just started with Mork and Mindy. So people were just beginning to Which get to Which took place in Aspen or Boulder? I think it took place in color. I do not know. But uh, he, so he was performing there. And of course, I mean, I've heard Robin Williams earlier. I mean, it sounds like Firesign Theater on, uh, on Coke. I mean, right. it was like. Just the stream of consciousness kind of thing was just it's amazing. And all one guy instead of four mm -hmm. of them. So uh, so he gets on and he does his spiel. And none of the comedians wanted to go on after that. And um, but Buddy said, well, I'll go on after that. And he did. And he won the crowd back and he was able to have some drinks with Robin Williams afterwards. And he was able to uh, when Robin Williams died, especially when we found out the way he died. I mean, I didn't remember saying, oh, Robin Williams died. Well, you know, probably living the party life. But when I found out he had committed suicide, I actually got really super depressed. I don't know why. Yeah. I didn't know him personally. But but anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's uh, 
And I think I might have told about him actually talking to uh, Bill Bill Cosby when he came to town, you know, before the tribulations of Bill Cosby. And uh, Bill Cosby was a jerk even before all this came out. And people said, well, buddy, you can meet him because he was another childhood idol, you know, as a comedian. So Buddy had the great idea because he was personating Stan Laurel of Laurel and Hardy that night to go to his, introduce himself as Stan Laurel and stay in the Stan Laurel character. And people told me that Cosby just flipped out going, Stan, Stan, Stan Laurel, I don't believe this. I'm sorry, Mr. Cosby, you know, I would love to see you, but I've been dead for 40 years. Anyway, so he's going on the whole shtick and he talks to him. So Buddy is that kind of character that's like that. And he has all these stories. It'd be kind of fun to get him on the show one of these days. But um, yeah, yeah. anyway, so um, So, uh, we've been been talking about, has everybody been grieving the queen? I guess she's on. uh, Here's what, here's what. She's on a road. Well, let's see. She's let's see where she is now. She's trying to make a getaway. This is happening right now. That's Queen Elizabeth uh, going down the 405, being chased by uh, California state troopers. She has escaped. Uh, I've been doing that all day. So, you know, I listened at office hours and Ricky and Lane soured me on the royal family mm-hmm. you know well, i haven't I, you know i i was never colonized by them they're just <laughs> a goofy looking there's something you see on the tv they were they're a constant and mm-hmm. uh, so on today's show i kind of said we should get rid of them it is anti-democratic and ben burgess said something brilliant which mm. is If you want to get rid, if you're will, if you think we need to tear down statues honoring Confederate generals, you need to tear down the monarchy. And you really can't argue with that. So. But, well, you know, it's um, so what are you? That's a complicated question, because if you're going to tear down, you know, people who were you know, racist and genocidist, then you'd have to blow up Mount Rushmore, too. And I, I have to confess, I'm not ready for that yet. I, I get, I'd be kind of sad if we had to blow up Mount Rushmore, even though I understand, you know, that uh, that was a sacred mountain <laughs> that right. we defaced. And there's spirits. one in Georgia, right, for the Confederate. There's a mountain. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen that one. So are you, you know, I would just more education about these things. Uh, are you yeah, sympathetic to native tribes? I'm reading the the, the chat. Stone Give it back Mountain, to those guys. Yeah. Well, you know, that whole land should be given back to them, really. I mean, by treaty. If we fixed a couple of Supreme Court uh, rulings from the 1830s and, and 40s, then we, you know, we might have a few more sovereign nations out there. But I don't know. The Queen... So you and I have both watched The Crown, which over know, and over again. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm watching it again. You know, I don't know why, but I you love know, it. to be fair to the Queen, I mean, it appears that she was actually a moderating influence on the Thatcher regime. That's the, how. That's how the Crown portrays. Yeah, that's her. how the Crown, the, like anti-apartheid, and 
But um, I do remember at the time a reading that the Queen was not happy with uh, Ms. Mrs. Thatcher and the, the divisiveness and, and, you know, the extremity that she was trying to introduce. So I don't know. I, I mean, is if you got rid of the monarchy, would you get rid of the bad politics? I mean, you're, you're left with Liz Truss, you know, it's right. which is amazing. I mean, seriously, I wanted to talk to Lane about that because I didn't think it was possible as bad as the UK could get. I literally didn't think it was possible in their system to have somebody with Sarah Palin level of ignorance in a high office. And that is Liz Trust. I I, I don't know how that happened, Uh, but, you know, that's just kind of they've been they've been emulating our politics, I guess, for three decades. And, And now this is what we get. So, you know. We've it's got the same line in Europe. And we're going to go to war because, you know, Europe needs another war to settle things out. This is, uh, this is like, you know, pretty bad. So you're you're not uh, a republic, Ken. You're, you're not for eliminating the monarchy. Yeah, you know, I would before you do that, you'd have to sort of see to it like, you know, first of all, there's not a whole lot of she does have in principle considerable amount of powers but she she can't use them oh she's dead <laughs> just take it away she's dead but she so. has some influence i think that um i asked elaine i said don't i said don't you think that there might be some some good in the population which is experiencing you know uh inflation shocks and real uh you know privation shocks, you know, like they haven't seen since after World War II, that a presence like the monarchy might be a sense of comfort to some people because, you know, let's face it, we derive comfort from our community, our families, our communities, the fact that we reside in a state in a certain country, you know, you you feel better if you're going overseas landing back in the United States, even though this place kind of sucks, but there's still something, something about our psyche that has an idea of home and rootedness and, uh, you know, just belonging citizenship, as opposed to the uber globalists, which, you know, everyone, it's, it's all a globe full of individuals that make it on their own merits and efforts. And, you know, of course, until they're tossed aside by the people who really own the planet. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, I'd I'd like to have a more extensive conversation with Lane about that, but um, he was interesting. I mean, King Charles, he's, is he going to, you know, influence the country in a good direction? He's, he's vegetarian, at least he's always been for the climate, um, you know, for, for uh, environmental issues, you know, you have some influence when you're the king, I suppose. Well, but nobody wants to know what he's thinking. That's what we've been told. That's it. He was raised to be silent. He's- well, they're raised to be publicly silent. You know, <laughs> as in, we shall not speak of this again. Right. <laughs> and... But it was known, you know, what we wish to have done, that this business get taken care of. 
it's all kind of, you know, on. And he is out of the public sphere. He is probably the smartest king they've had ever. Most of them. No, I don't think he's I don't think he's smarter than Elizabeth the first. Oh, well, I said king first. But okay, but he's Um, he's the the eighth was actually pretty smart guy, extremely learned person. Was he? You know. I would assume, though, modern kings, I'm going to assume George, the Georges and Queen Victoria weren't rocket scientists. No. And Queen Victoria, I mean, she actually did have much more influence over the government than the current monarchs do. And, uh, you know, I've listened and read a lot of British apologists for the English final solution of the Irish that, uh, you know, never, I mean, I guess it's, 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 it's back in the midst of time now. So it shouldn't be, I shouldn't feel so badly about it, but I do. I mean, you know, it's like the Irish still aren't really considered human by a good portion of Anglo-Saxon lands. So, you know, even though we managed to talk our way into high places. What are you seeing with the midterms? Um, I don't know. I mean, barring any, I, I think that the thing for the Democrats going in is the, you know, the overthrowing of Roe v. Wade, which is probably why the Democrats don't want to do anything about it. It's way too valuable electorally for them as a problem unsolved than a problem solved. Well, they did but vote. They did vote. People. Nancy voted in the House and then it got rejected. They tried to codify it in the Senate. It got voted down, right? Yeah, well, you know, uh, if they wanted to really get something done, they'd get it done. But you know, Joe Manchin and, you know, the, they don't want to overthrow. They won't want to get rid of the filibuster. It works too well in their favor. Right. And, there's, and they even refused to get a dark fun, uh, money vote up to a vote in the House. And that was... Yeah, that that basically kind of reveals, you know, their commitment to free and open elections and democracy. So, you know, it's all about a power struggle. And it's as usual. I mean, you know, a lot of these things can get done. They would like people to believe that things are, I don't know, there are forces of nature that they can't oppose, like, you know, the coming uh, austerity period of austerity, because the the uh, the Federal Reserve is hell bent on raising interest rates another three quarters of a point. Even though um, many economists say that, look, the inflation of the 70s, of the late 60s and 70s is not the inflation we're experiencing now. Very different causes, very different. And part of it, which hasn't been mentioned, is just, you know, concentration of wealth and people being able to speculate, you know, just like a uh, uh, Goldman Sachs probably was personally responsible for the deaths of three to four million people of starvation because they started to get in. They decided to get in the grains market and jack the price of grain up by, you know, by three or four times. Started a lot of these Arab springs as, as a result of that. But, you know, um, you got you know, you've got these bottlenecks that are not forces of nature. They are complete artifices of policy. So I'm thinking that, um, you know, things are great, right? Except that the, um, 
<clears throat> the labor participation rate is still below the rate it was before COVID. And it wasn't really great before COVID. It was down significantly from the height in the in the Bill So Clinton unemployment years. is uh, going down because people have stopped looking for work. They've just Well, when quit. you just take a whole bunch of people out right. of the labor force. Yeah, you know, uh, you can it's basically you can um uh, you make the number better by increasing the, you know, either the denominator or the numerator. And you just figure, well, the number of people working based on the number of people who could work, which is in the denominator. And if you make the denominator, you know, it, it, it's, you'd have an employment rate that's incredible. Uh, one minus that and an unemployment, an unemployment rate that's very small. But again, you know, I, I keep going harping back to that because the labor participation rate is a kind of a simple definition. The unemployment rate has about six levels of definition from U1 to U6. And you use, depending on what you want to do with it, you, you know, you choose one. But literally, the labor participation rate is anybody over 15 who is not institutionalized. So we're talking about not incarcerated people, not people serving in the military, not people in mental institutions and things like that. The uninstitutionalized population over 15. And, you know, how many of these, how many of these people are actively either seeking or working? And that's um, down to 62.4%. Hmm. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Somebody pointed out people who simply died in the pandemic. God, I, th oh, I wished I had saved it. I saw an amazing, I saw an amazing uh, headline like two or three days ago by Bloomberg, you know, pointing out that, you know, like, all these Americans dying and having though the part of the news that that came out last week was that China has surpassed the United States in in life expectancy, both for men and for women. <laughs> China, right. well, they had their boats and roads initiative. They they lifted hundreds of millions out of poverty, you know, as a matter of policy. And the Bloomberg article says something like, hey, you know, this is going to save us a boatload of money with all these Americans dying. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll, that'll long term prospect for the American debt is good. I'm like, oh, you bastards. Oh, my God. You know, I'm just ready to bring knitting needles and, you know, to a town square guillotine at this point. <laughs> hey, when do you run for reelection? When do I run? Uh, in about three years. Um, you know, I was considering a uh, run as a write-in candidate uh, just to make life miserable for the incumbent Democrat and force them if I'm a really threat of real threat to, you know, like sit down and negotiate. But um, there is a little bit of a problem that hadn't been worked out by our lawyers and that if you, Illinois has some pretty strict, what I'm they gonna call turn my, Hang on, I'm going to turn my air conditioner on. I'm listening. I just, it's just okay. so hot in here. Hang on. So, so to everybody here, it's just in, in Illinois, if you run as a Democrat or are working in a Democratic campaign in an official capacity, they make it very hard for you to run as third party or independent or even write in. You know, it's called other states call it sore loser laws. So mm -hmm. you're not. And I officially made myself uh, at least Democratic adjacent because I. You know, I had notarized in my name all of these signatures that I collected for Rachel Ventura and other Democratic candidates. 
And when you do that, you kind of, you know, it for write-in, it's not quite clear, but um, that hasn't been, it hasn't been sorted out with. But definitely you cannot have your name on the ballot. As, and if you have worked in any capacity for a political party in an election cycle, you can't have your name on the ballot as anything else. So, Great, great. So anyway, that's, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't run for a while. Um, I've got, um, we, we've got people that you know that may be considering running in the municipal elections next year, you know, for all, like aldermen at large and in the city of Aurora. So um, we're pretty sure that Rachel and more importantly, a whole slate of progressives in Will County, which is to the south of Kane County where I'm at, are going to be elected this fall. And, and Rachel getting into the Illinois State Senate is going to make about 13 hardcore progressives in the state Senate. And that was targeted. And this is all mostly outside of our revolution, which I, I mean, we're my progressives in King County are still officially associated with these guys. But, you know, unfortunately, that's where a lot of careerists have parked themselves. So this is just, you know, us, you know, activists having just worked on individual elections and gotten people like uh, elected, won their primaries. So and that's where the only, you know, I don't. I really, I have so little enthusiasm for like the federal elections this fall, you know, the House or the Senate. I mean, I just, I, I don't have any. I, I just, I'll, I'll vote for the local Green Party candidates, uh, you know, that, that are running. But but it's really, I'm, I'm really encouraged by the fact that there are serious people still fighting the Madigan machine, Mike Madigan the previous speaker of the house who just ran the Illinois state democratic party with an iron fist and ran it and ran it in a very corrupt manner. Uh, he's out, but his minions are still there and uh, they've been getting beaten, you know, when they've been outspending their opponents 10 to one, they've been, so this is, you know, I say, don't be true. If, 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 you know, working for a humdrum Democratic candidate, you know, for public office who isn't with Bernie's agenda is kind of getting you down. Just spend your energy on somebody who does have your agenda. Right. You know, it, just, it, we, it, it has to be you just have to keep pushing wherever you can make a difference. So anyway, great. I can't wait. Mike Steinell is in the house. So. Mike Steinell, the author of Thank You. Professor Marianne Cummings, sorry to keep you waiting. I, I didn't hear back from you, and I wasn't sure if uh, we had you tonight. Uh, what do you mean you didn't hear back from me? No, I'm talking I'm, about Professor Marianne Cummings. Oh, 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 okay, okay. Oh, sorry, I was out and about today, was putting out fires. Oh, I was setting them. So, hey, we're, uh, it was you. It's, you know what? Running and jumping and flitting a boot. <laughs> I saw a play once about about the IRA and this guy, this one line just sticks with me. This guy says, yeah, he was running and jumping and flitting a boot. <laughs> I just love that. Joining us from Denton, Texas is Professor Mike Steinel. He is the author of the new book, Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. It's a time travel novel. 
And it has the Feldman guarantee. Buy the book. If it doesn't make you happy, let me know and I will reimburse you. That gets the Feldman guarantee. You have some live shows coming up. Yeah, that's right. We have uh, Benton Arts and Jazz, uh, October 8th. Yeah. And, you know, people can listen. That'll be streamed. The audio will be streamed on that. I'll make sure people know about that. That's always a good show. Um, It's uh, basically three days. It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday in a uh, in Quake, what we call Quaker Park, uh, which was actually it's a very sad story. It was a it was a shanty town populated by African Americans, and at one point they just the city just came in and moved everybody out, right? You know, and made it a park because it was a it was down there was a creek that runs through it. It's it's kind of a, it was a scenic location, but it's, it has a sad and uh, you know painful history. But yeah, we got that show coming up, and uh, and and also the Thursday before that, we're going to play at the wine bar again. That'll be fun, Steve's wine bar. And should, should we try another live shot, or is that well? Uh, that'll be on Thursday. That, the show's on Thursday. I, I don't think that worked out too good. It, it well. In, in a in a weird way, how are things? <laughs> how, how are things in Texas? Oh, it was beautiful today. I did yard work for almost four hours. We needed it because I'd been up in Kansas and everything had overgrown. But uh, and you enjoy it, that? If the weather's nice, I don't enjoy it when it's one hundred and five. You know. And how do but, you know you're done? Well, you don't. You you, you it's good enough. I'm I'm kind of a good enough guy. You know. And uh, and do you have a sense of accomplishment after you've done the yard? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Pulling weeds. I have begonias that I'm going to, I don't, they'll die, but I'm not going to pull them up. What I'll do is just cut them off at the ground and they'll, they'll winter over. We, I had, my begonias came back, but it's been so hot. Nothing's, you know, when it's, when it's this hot, very few things will a lot of things will die unless you water a lot. And some things will uh, just kind of stagnate. They just don't like, like the, this is the time when people who have vegetable gardens will get that they have vegetables and have tomatoes in the fall because the weather is just a little bit, it gets, it's just too, too dang hot to uh, let stuff grow. Hey, David, I want to, I want to, you know, compliment you on on the news you've been doing. You're you're uh, go on. Please continue. You're, this you're is no, much more interesting than your begonias. You buried think, the lead. I think it's it's been so good. I think you, you deserve an award, yes. and I've made a special award for oh, you. Oh, thank you! Wow. But before I get this, last Thursday I was driving back. I guess it was recorded Thursday, but I was driving back on Saturday and I listened to the whole show. It's great. It's like it's a six hour drive and you got a six hour, seven hour show. And, and the um, the the segment that you did with Lane started with Lane and then you brought in uh, Ted from Ireland mm-hmm. and uh, and then Ricky, the the uh, stuff on the, you know, uh, the monarchy. 
that was that, that was great radio. It was. It was. It was great radio, and it was. Um, it wasn't confrontational. It was, but it had enough rub. You, I talked about this yes. a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. About participatory yeah. discrepancies. Right. Right. It had just enough rub, you know that that it was interesting, and and you, you were sparring, and I let you always take the uh, kind of uh, the uh, the role of the the silly devil's advocate, you know, the, well, yeah, you take the role of the, of, of kind of a conservative in a lot of your discussions more and more, I think, you know, well, this, uh, this show has gotten so far to the left. Somebody has to give, (laughs) I, I can't make it an echo chamber. They did convince me. I, I find that office hours in the audience is, it's like a, it's like a marriage where you, you resist and then you just do what the wife you, t- you talk it out you yeah, know eventually yeah. the wife wins so like yeah. i i fought them on the monarchy and then i thought about it over the weekend and i thought you know what my wife is right get rid of the monarchy they i eventually come they they wear me down after. there were some pretty good opinion pieces in the in the sunday times about that you know it's time maybe to rethink it it's be, it'll be interesting as a male, as a king. I was thinking about this today. A lot of people, you know, were more uh, maybe agreeable with, with a queen, you know, for whatever reason. It well, just seemed like oh, that's less threatening or something, right, you know. Right. That, and but. she was able to keep her mouth shut. I mean, that was her job is just to show right, up. Right. And she wasn't educated the way Charles is. Charles is probably the best educated king England's had since I don't know when. Will he be able? Will he be able to keep his mouth shut, which is his job? Well, if you watch the Crown, remember he 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 goes to he's sent off to school and he does a speech in Gaelic. Yes, it's very that it's very upsetting to uh, his father. More than him. Well, he goes the, to Wales. He goes to Wales, yeah. And delivers a speech for his investiture as Prince of Wales. And he does it in Welsh. And he does it in Welsh. It. Yeah. And he says some things that recognize the suffering of the Welsh. And yeah. because the Queen didn't speak Welsh, it went over her head. And then she found out and... She told him, nobody cares what you think. That's not your job. Yeah. Can you imagine having a job where nobody cares? See, I would love that. See, I was born (laughs) to be prince and king. Just show up, cut a couple of ribbons. And you can drink on that job. Like, you don't have to worry. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they were always drinking. Yeah. They, they were day drinking. Yeah. Somebody comes in, you want, well, you want some whiskey? Hey, David, you know, one of the things I think why we get along so well and why I like you so much is that we have similarities. Yeah. And I think our biggest similarity is that we both lack any sort of killer business instinct. Exactly. (laughs) At all. I mean, you give your podcast away for free. You don't advertise. But I've stopped. We have to talk about getting dinged uh, on the music. 
that's that's because Turtle is is on is is. On. I put the new album. I I did it on my own label, but I I did pro distribution with um, CD Baby, and they put it. It's it's by the way, it is as of last Thursday. Everything's out. The book in print is out. You can get it many different places. The um, the audio book is on Audible and iTunes and Apple Music, I believe. And uh, and uh, the, the CD is on all streaming service. You know, just a, there's 50 different streaming services. So th- there is probably some sort of uh, algorithm that kicked that out. And it came from CD Baby. Did they mention a title? No. And I saw it, but I got dinged like for everything. And I thought, is it just turtle for what do you mean for everything? Like every episode got dinged by CD baby. Did you go back and uh, look at which ones you played turtle? Uh, well, well, let's see. I played one of your songs today. Let's see if I get dinged. I don't think any of those that I did for your show, they're not they're not distributed by anybody. So it's just I've, they're on they're on YouTube, they're on YouTube, but that doesn't okay that that shouldn't be that I don't think I think it was Turtle, okay, and you played it many many times, I love so it. they may have gone back. Yeah, yeah. My but about be- your award, it's time for I, yes, I need to give you the award. Um, okay. First of all, I noticed today that you said. Uh, let me see. State-sanctioned ethicists. You said it like two or three times, and, with, and that's a hard thing to say, you State know. And I know your history with Chipotle. <laughs> Chipotle. Chipotle. <laughs> you say Chipotle. How is it pronounced? <laughs> remember when? Uh, <laughs> uh, remember when? Uh, Ross told you it's he had you say each syllable. Yeah. Chipotle. 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 <laughs> do you know what? If I was there live, I'd do like that Milton Berle thing where he's yeah. teaching him how to sing and grab your cheeks. Right. <laughs> what was that? He was it, and then he go, got to loosen it up. You know, yeah. he slap him on the yeah. cheek. That was was that Milton and, and who else? I don't know. Was it was it uh, Bob Hope and and Milton Berle? Anyway, I can't remember what. Anyway, here's the the. the uh, <clears throat> You know the Edward R. Murrow um, Award for Excellence in Broadcasting? Yes, you know, of course. Given by public broadcasting. Yes. I've got something almost as good. It looks good. It's the, it's the I'll read it, the Eddie R. Moron <laughs> Award <laughs> for Excellence in Broadcasting is awarded this day, September 11th, 2022. I guess I'm a day off, aren't I? Yeah. Yeah. I I thought of this last night. Anyway, no, actually, I just thought of this 10 minutes ago. (laughs) You don't know what day it is. To David, to David Feldman Esquire. Oh, thank you. What's your middle name? Do you have a middle name? Yes. What is it? Gregory. David Gregory. That's a, that's a good, that's a named after the first Jewish Pope, Pope Gregory. (laughs) I don't think he was, he wasn't Jewish, was he? No, I don't. Think so, but uh, 
No, I was I'm named after Greg Meislin, the doctor who delivered me. Oh, My mother, okay. Yeah. I was apparently a difficult birth. Really? Yeah. Are you the oldest? No. Are you the first? First no. to pop out? I was the last. You were the last. That was it. Were you a big, a big lad? I came, I came out punching, apparently. <laughs> it was, I did not, I did not, I didn't want to come out, basically. <laughs> oh. I, yeah. It was a long birth. Yeah. I, a long birth. Yeah. yeah I've been try, trying to get back my whole, <laughs> I was a bit of a mama's boy. So, how's Nadine? Yeah, I know. She's good. She's down there watching NCIS and some right now. Beverly's at choir practice, so I'm kind of monitoring in case she needs something. But right. she's good. We're we're like on countdown. Tomorrow's the 13th of September, and in a month, the 13th of October, she will be 100 years old. Amazing. So, yeah, she's doing pretty good. Having a good day today. Good. Um, go ahead. No, that's great. That, that that's uh and the I, secret you know i was i was going through the archives i think this is like two years ago uh, two years ago this day or around this time is when i did the harvey i mean i, mean, I did the howie uh klein theme song that's why i sent and he loved you. it and i haven't played it but i just i emailed it to you tonight you know why and i think I, it's the one i fixed i think it's the one i fixed but i really like this song and the harmony this is kind of modern jazz harmony and it's kind of out and it has uh i remember when i did it i thought this is one of the better ones but, he loved uh, and you used to play it every time he came on by the way he's been great yeah it's great to hear he's, him again he's back well what happened think, here what, what happened i lost you oh i'm putting him i'm a little out of it right now you went to a different screen. You, you. Um, yeah, I'm trying to find. You left your body there for a I second. I know. I had an out of. Would that be good to do? Wouldn't we like to leave your body? I'd like to leave my body behind <laughs> and uh, get a new one. What would you do with the old one? Get it traded you in. Know, I just I, I and I don't look. I don't look back, David. I just keep moving. Keep falling forward. You know. You just keep falling forward you don't get hurt by the way I've, I've been watching a lot of tv i got i got the uh i got the broncos and the uh still 13 17 broncos are down by four now that's this, a big story because russell wilson was left the left the um seahawks and kind of you know um took took the money and went with the broncos and uh of course, the NFL, what do they do? The first game out of this is the first game of the season and they match match. It's perfect. I mean, they're so good. They have the NFL, David, has what we don't have. They have a killer business instinct. We do not. You and I do not. Yes. But they I, share the they share the TV revenues. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they're getting ready to score. Oh, is he going to run it in? No, 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 no. Anyway, they, they've had a couple of things like this where quarterbacks have left one team to go to another under like, you know, kind of nasty circumstances. So what do they do? They, they pair that right out of the shoot. Uh, the NFL is paired. They uh, did the same with uh, this guy who was with the Cleveland Browns. Um, and they, they, uh, he went to the Ravens 
what's his name? <laughs> Baker Mayfield. He's kind of a toot, Baker Mayfield. And uh, he, um, you know, he, but he lost yesterday. But I was, I'm kind of pulling for Russell Wilson's. Yeah, how much football can up. you watch on a Sunday? I can watch it all day long. But I don't just watch it. I, I'm, I'm practicing trumpet or I'm reading the paper. I mean, it's, it's a multitasking thing. I'm maybe doing a game on my, you know, I'm doing a crossword. I could do a crossword and watch sports. I love doing that. Do you do Wordle? Yeah, I just started that. Me too. I, I, the first time I played it, I didn't know what the uh, brown letters meant. Yeah, I keep, I, I'm colorblind, so I have to keep checking. Yeah, but I, I'm addicted to Wordle in the New York Times. And I thought they were just, oh, the A is a different color than the green thing. You right. know, I didn't realize that letter is somewhere, but it's not there. Right. <clears throat> it's what? a pretty good, like, uh, logic sort of thing, you know. If you have a good visual, I don't have a great visual. My well, do you wife, look at the keyboard? Because you can look at the yeah, keyboard. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I look at, yeah, you know. And then you, you figure, well, it's got, today it was, did you do it today? I did it last night, like at one in the morning. Let me see. Well, oh, it was uh, booze or it was booze. A- it was booze. Yeah. Yeah. And I had the I had the E and the O and the B. And I thought, can't be. They're going to use two O's. Yeah. I guess yeah. So. That's, I thought that, too. Yeah. But I it did- was really there was really nowhere to go. But that. Yeah. You know, there was. A, but that's a, it's a very interesting mind thing. Somebody very smart figured that out, you know. And uh, what is do you have an opening word that you use all the time? Uh, for some reason, I go with something that starts with a T. You know, when you watch a, a wheel like of fortune. Testy. Testies. What's that? Testies. Testy. That's, I think that's a few too many letters. Titty. Anyway. Uh, Tatas. <laughs> Uh, trust, trust, or toast. So you start with it. I try to do, like my. I, I'll do meaty. I like to get three vowels out. And, of well, yeah, but um, see that first letter is you know like if <clears throat> what did I? I was playing some. I was playing some game. Uh, oh, what was I doing? It was a um, an acrostic, maybe, where you, um, I can't remember, but um, I went to, the, you know, like Googled, like, which letters happen the most. T is a very common letter. M is less common than T, you know. And T is a good starting letter. I didn't know um, that. I think so. You, if you Google that, you can find the list. I can't remember what I was doing, and I, and... Um, so a, a different sort of uh, puzzle. I like I like the puzzles. I spend way too much time on them. Do you do spelling you know? bee? Yes. No, no, not not in the New York Times. I do the. Uh, there's one called uh, what is it called? Wordy or something? And it's like a it's like a crossword, or it's like a Scrabble. And they give you seven letters, and then they they've made twenty seven words with these seven right. letters, you know. And it's I'm going like wow how come there's a lot of le- there's a lot of words in that you know in in um, what was it today I can't remember. advice or something like that right you know and then there's vice and there's 
vase, and then there's device. Yeah, but that's right. Yeah, that's right. No, that would be too easy. It don't matter. Should we play? Hey, uh, we I liked your I liked your uh, your talk about um, religion, and I just want to let you know I do believe in a higher power. Me too. It's it's my wife. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I worship. Uh, I I believe, but it's personal. The minute you yeah, start, of course, yeah. yeah. The minute it, it there's a reason because you can't win an argument over that stuff. Let's play Howie Klein. Now, is this Let's the do funny version? Or the... I think this is the fixed version. Okay. But I, I kind of like the... If it isn't, I kind of like it anyway. Everybody welcome Howie Klein. We got him right here. He's on the line. Howie Klein. Howie Klein. Got a good idea who might be a winner. He tell you why he's cooking up a vegan dinner. How we climb? How we climb? He's also oh smart. He got a lot of brains. He lives in San Diego where it never rains. How we climb? How we climb? What he got to say gonna blow your mind. Put your hands together for how we climb? How we climb? That's I, I was trying to remember. I have like five different versions of this song because he doesn't live in San Diego. He lives in L.A. Then you did a funny version where you overdubbed it. Uh, you're, you're muted. Yeah, I just said L.A. Right, <laughs> right, right. I know, which is very funny. So on my dashboard, I see like five different versions of Howie Klein. So, well, one should be fixed. Number two or something like that. I thought this was the fixed one. but uh, So what do we do? Do we play that or do we do? No, we can we can just. Well, no, I love it and he loved it. But we. what do we do about San Diego? Well, you've got the right one there somewhere. I do. Well, how many? They all say the same thing. I try to get him to move to San Diego, but he wouldn't do it. <laughs> so... Uh, he's he's been on fire. Boy, I can't wait to read that book. That's going to be great. Oh, about his, his memoir. Yes, and I and I, there, a there's a fascinating guy. What all the different things he's done. Stevie fearless, Nicks. and he's fearless. You know, like to, you know, ask the doors to come to his college. You know, right. It's very cool. Yeah, and uh, Stevie Nicks sang "Landslide" to him. Is that right? Yeah. What more do you want in life? Yeah, really. All right. I tested negative just now for COVID. I found out. So I don't have, I'm not feeling well today. I'm kind of burnt out. Oh, you took, you took the test? That's yeah, good to I do. Yeah, I just found out I was, I was negative. So, well, test again tomorrow because sometimes the first, yeah. it takes a while for have the you viral load. I never got it. My wife and Nadine both got it. Nadine was hospitalized right. for six days. She got she got the pneumonia. That was last. God, I forget now. Yeah, I remember that. Now, are you going to uh, get? When do you get? I the, tested. At, I tested every day and never never got it. Yeah, you. Uh, you're you're a fan. Well, yeah, COVID 
I'm lucky. Yeah. I'm lucky. Oh. And you know that, but are you going to get the the new booster? That's yeah, I yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think we should do that. Everybody should do that. Yeah, for Omicron, it's it's more. Uh, I guess we're going to be doing that every year. We'll just get a like a um, a flu shot. It'll be like a flu shot we get. I just can't believe nobody wears a mask. <laughs> Not I, even in New York. No, I, it's. Just, I saw a guy today in the store wearing a mask. You know, and uh, I thought there's a liberal <laughs> <laughs> or a neurotic like me or or somebody who's got a, a, an underlying condition, you know, right. that they really. Right. But he looked pretty healthy. But he you know, he did, you know, well, I tell you what, the uh, Beto is they're pouring the money into Beto. They got some great ads. They got I should. uh maybe send you a clip of this one they do with Abbott, just Abbott's face. Uh, it's in this ominous music and you see like this eye and it's all craggy, you know, and they say, they just say, it's just litany. They never say Beto. Mm -hmm. uh, they never say, uh, they, they never mention Abbott's name. And, uh, but, um, they at the very end they have a clip of him like after the shooting in Uvalde going it could have been worse, <laughs> and the, the, and so that's what the it's a pack wow it, in, and it's called visit it could have been worse dot com wow any any chance he can beat Abbott I think he can I think he can we got a ways to go yet you know um, he came close. You With know, Ted it, Cruz it's, in 2018, it's it's, um, yeah. it's going to be um, it's going to be a matter of turnout, you know. So who knows? Women have to get out and vote. Everybody has to get out and vote. Yeah, uh, yeah, we all got to vote. I may knock on doors, you know, like I I I wouldn't knock on doors for the president. Because I'm scared of MAGA people. I am scared of MAGA people. Um, by the way, uh, there was a Michelle Goldberg article. Did you read that? Uh, yeah, I love her. Read that. She's, she's, it's, she's talking about a book by this guy who was over, I think, in the UK. And it has come back and studied um, the MAGA. And, and one of the things she said that the MAGA people are are very much, first of all, they're, they're motivated by fear and that's been introduced, but they are very, like she said, uh, he, he interviewed them and there was just a small counter protest, but they're, they're very, you know, they're afraid of Antifa and, uh, you know, um, Black Lives Matter. They, they, they feel threatened, even though they're the most, but anyway, what I would say was I would not, I wouldn't feel comfortable um, knocking on doors for uh, for uh, president, but I might do it for Beto because I just think I don't know. I I just think pr pro Abbott people are not going to shoot me. Anyway, scary. If you knock on doors, don't they? Doesn't the Democratic Party? They kind of know who's registered, and they don't send you to. They usually send out, 
they gave you like instructions to go to places where you, you're going to have a, you know, maybe like phone a, banks, maybe phone banks. Right. Maybe I should do a phone bank. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'm going to do that. I'm going to try. I've never done that. All right. I, okay, man. I love you. Love you too. You didn't do the bit. I know. Well, we, we have to save that. I didn't All think right. about it. Sorry. Right. I'm a little tired. Sorry. You're feeling bad. Get yeah. I don't rest. know what it is. I'm just kind of fried. The malaise. Yeah. Malaise. The malaise, the heat and, uh, Generalized hey, what, anxiety. One Jim. last plug. Uh, Saving Charlie Parker novel, audiobook, Audible is probably the best way to enjoy it. And the CD, the music's really good. I was listening to it on my uh, on Spotify on my phone. It sounds pretty good. I think we did a good job mixing it for, you know, like um, for phones. Because a lot of people, that's how they hear their music. But it's all up. How do we listen available. to it on Spotify? What's the title? Just go to Spotify and, and search Saving Charlie Parker. It pops up. And Apple Music, it pops up. It's Pandora. The, it's the music from Saving Charlie Parker. It's 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 incidental. It's music that I've used on the audiobook, but it's a it's a whole suite that that is is uh correlated with things that happen, you know. And the, the titles won't mean anything until you, it, unless you read the book. I don't think you have to do both. I think it's a standalone music product. And we got everything as of last week has been submitted. We submitted to the Grammy for uh, um, spoken word for the audio book. And we submitted for the, to the Grammy for uh, vocal CD. We submitted under the category of jazz vocal CD or jazz vocal album because Rosanna's sings on it's all voice you know mm -hmm. through the through the whole thing and uh now today she told me she's she's she has a killer business instinct she really knows what she's doing she says you have to have a let me see an f fyc uh you got to do an fyc uh website what does that mean i said for your consideration a place where you can Send, you send somebody, go, please visit here, and you can have your music for free, samples mm. of it. Because, you know, it, it's one thing to get people to vote for it, but they're not going to vote for it. Right. Um, you know, so, so you have to make it. And, and she says what you do is you put it out there and uh, advertise it to Grammy voters. And then once the Grammy's voting is done, then you can take it down if you don't want to sell it, if you don't want to just give it away. But shoot, it's all on YouTube. The minute it's you get pro distribution, it's all on YouTube anyway. Right. So or you can, I don't know how you can anybody do what makes I, money in this business. You can do what I've done. What's that? Give up. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I'm, I, the Emmys are going on right now, and I don't know. Who yeah, to, tonight, tonight. I don't even know are. who to root against. I thought... <laughs> Uh, do you do you watch them anymore? You ever watch them? Uh, uh, you know, I'll in and out. But you know what, Marin before he became famous used to call the TV what the resentment box. The resentment box. <laughs> uh, I know. I understand. Feel. I understand that. Thank you. Yes. All right. Thank See you, you later. Thank tomorrow. you. I mean, next week. Next week. Yes. Thank you. Mike Steinel. Go to MikeSteinel.com and pick up Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. Buy it. 
This show is put together by, it's produced by Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, Grace Jackson, Professor Jonathan Bick, uh, Joe in Norway, The Invisible Ninja, and, of course, Dan Frankenberger. I want to thank all the mods who have been helping out in the chat room. We're going to have a meeting on Wednesday to uh, get back into the swing of things. I've been kind of phoning life in. Uh, Rodrigo, how are you in Mexico? Hi, David. How are you feeling? Hi. Huh? Still sick, but I just saw a fair doctor who I think maybe uh, knows better what he's doing. So let's hope. Is this your ulcer? It's not an ulcer. Apparently, I have worms or something. Hmm. Sorry to hear about that. Thanks. That that must be. Uh... Does that wipe you out? It does not, sorry. It doesn't wipe you out? No. Sorry to hear about it. It just lays me out. Yeah. What's on your mind tonight? So I didn't have time to talk about planned obsolescence, but I have Three short updates for you. A UK update, the Metropolis decided to celebrate the date of the Queen by executing an unarmed black man, and media then pretended that the peaceful march to demand an investigation was people mourning for the Queen. What, they, they, there was an unarmed black man who was... What happened? Killed by the Metro cops. Um, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, they were talking about it earlier on Novara Media. Hmm. A Mexico update where I hope you can help me turn it into a wine liner. One of the campaign slogans of the Mexican president was abrazos, no balazos, hugs, not bullets. When he won, he created a new police force with the very original name of National Guard. Last week, he asked Congress for help putting the Mexican National Guard under the control of the Mexican army. And the funniest part is that the U.S. Congress somehow wrote that the aid to Mexico depends in part on the Mexican president not militarizing the police. Again, he created this new police force, which of course was trained by veteran, corps for, veteran cops from corrupt forces, and now he thinks the solution to crime and violence is to put his new police force that he created under the aegis of the Mexican army. Hmm. And I don't know if you saw this video, uh, Trump was putting boxes on a plane after the FBI yeah, raid, and he it. may or may not have more classified documents in those boxes that he, quote, forgot, end quote, to return. And that's all I have for now. Thank you. Okay, feel better, please. Thank you. Thanks. That is our show. I want to thank all our guests. 
Ethan Hershenfeld, go by today as now. Thank you to Howie Klein, read him over at Down With Tyranny. How about David Cobb and the brilliant Dr. Harriet Fraud doing an hour together? Amazing. And of course, Professor Adnan Hussein, listen to the Mudgeless podcast as well as Guerrilla History. I want to thank Dan Frankenberger, the quiz master, Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Marianne Cummings, follow her on Twitter at Razor Girl, and of course, Professor Mike Steinell. Go by Saving Charlie Parker, a novel, and listen to the soundtrack from the novel. It's streaming right now on all your favorite music delivery systems. I am David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. If you're thinking about going south to the Sunshine State, I suggest that you may want to think twice. I suggest that you may want to wait. They got a man named Ron DeSantis. He's got a face like a praying mantis. I'm quite sure he ain't gonna grant us permission to say gay. So if you are a teacher, you better mind your P's and Q's. A lot of people down there got the wrong DeSantis blues. They say if Trump pulls out or if he goes to jail, DeSantis is the next man up. They say he might prevail. The man is on a mission to do everything he can to improve his position so he can be the man that moves into the White House up in Washington, D.C. If that gives you the willies, you better sing along with me. I got the wrong DeSantis blues. I got the wrong DeSantis blues. I got the wrong DeSantis blues. Santa's blues from my head down to my shoes. You can bet your bottom dollar he's against the right to choose. We can only guess what he might do to the LGBT and Q. We've all seen this playbook before. Civil rights will be out the door. But if he don't win re-election, there may be a ray of hope. But then again, the Republicans will just find some other dope. Don't forget about Sarah Palin, who's taking time to reload. The path to 2024 might be a crazy road. You know, it might behoove us to bring back that crazy doofus. I'm 
talking about the orange-haired goon with the tan like a silly raccoon. But for now, I'm following the news. Don't have no time to schmooze. Gotta keep my eye on Ted Cruz while I sing the wrong DeSantis blues. I got the wrong DeSantis blues. Blue.